Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, the Triplanetary and Galactic History Herstory, and True History Herstory of Nasara. Infinite blessings as we reach the week of the solstice. Solstice blessings to each of you. Let us begin our ascension work here and our work of bringing heaven to earth by going into our heart center now. As we enter into the sacred portal of light within our being, the portal to all that is, we call forth for the full emergence and integration with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, and all of our multidimensional beings through to our God presence and Goddess presence. See yourself in your mighty pillar of light as we call in the golden light of Christ consciousness and eternal peace. See it in through and around you, filling every cell and fiber of your being. And see your pillar fully anchored to source and fully anchored to the heart of Mother Gaia. Expand your pillar as we invite planet Earth into our heart center and connect to all upon her in unity consciousness as we say the following. Please repeat with me. I am I, I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And so we connect heart to heart high heart to high heart, cosmic heart to cosmic heart with every man, woman, and child on the planet, connecting all to the cosmic heart of all that is. We invite in for everyone, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage or ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward. <clears throat> our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods to partake and receive of the benefits of what we do. We welcome as well for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing team, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our Ascension Council and Mission Council. We welcome all of the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, 
the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healing teams. We welcome the Ascended Master Realm, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant One, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, and all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. We welcome as well all of our dear friends from the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those that we work so closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus, and all cosmic galactic universal healing teams that can be with us here today. We welcome you all. We welcome assistance from the entire company of heaven, asking Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do, and magnify, magnify, magnify it 999 trillion times, 999 trillion times in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth all of the rays, all of the flames, all universal laws, all of the essential and with every frequency, every prayer and evocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively the maximum that we can receive ever expanding to perfection through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of a walk field multidimensionally on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well. Breathe and receive as we ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate With the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. We invite in everyone in our circle of support from the very first name that created it, to every man, woman, and child, to every family member and loved one, every friend, every neighbor, every community member, everyone across the planet, and all groups and organizations, all businesses and corporations, all institutions, each and every nation, and their military, and their leaders, and their governments. We call forth all of the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves to work with each government, starting with the legislative aspect of each government, 
each and every Congress and Parliament and legislature on national, state, and local levels, the U.S. Senate, the House of Representatives, the uh, all state legislatures, all provincial legislatures and parliaments, each and every city council and school board and uh, library board and so on, each lawmaking body in each nation, state, and locality, as we call forth only divine law, divine justice, divine love, divine governance, divine government, and heaven on earth be reflected in each and every law being considered or enacted. We call forth the same for the executive aspect of each government, all the rays, flames, universal laws and ascension waves into every president, every prime minister, every head of state, every vice president, every cabinet post, every cabinet member, the the, uh, State Department of each nation, the Defense Department of each nation, the judicial grant, the the, uh, Department of Justice in each nation. And that we ask that all leaders, all advisors, everyone that contributes to the decision-making process be blessed with these frequencies and that every decision that's made reflect divine law, divine justice, divine love, divine governance, divine government, and heaven on earth. We call for the same for the judicial aspect of each government in each and every nation. The highest court of the land in each nation, all international courts, the Supreme Court, in all of its cases and decisions this year. All federal, state, provincial, local City court. And each and every judge and jury and grand jury, each and every prosecutor and defendant, each and every court case and court decision, and all those working in that legal system. And we ask that every decision reflect only divine law and divine justice, divine love, divine governance, divine government, and heaven on earth. We call this for the United States, each and every nation, ever expanding to perfection. We call on everything in our circle, everything that is less than heaven on earth, all the weather patterns, all of the storms going through Florida at this time and through the coast and um, all of the um, situations um, 
that everyone has all of their met as we create heaven on earth. So we ask for homelessness and hunger to be eliminated. We ask for healthy food and water and clothing and housing for everyone on the planet. We ask that all recognize who they are at this time of the solstice and Christ man. We ask for consciousness to be activated in every man, woman, and child for them to remember themselves as divine beings and what they came here to do and what they came here to contribute in the creation of heaven on earth. So we call forth all those that assist us in, in carrying the divine blueprint. Mother Mary, the cosmic Christ, Archangel Raphael, and all those again can assist us and support us in seeing the vision of heaven on earth. Have seen planet Earth as she is meant to be. And we ask God to receive all that we receive. As we invite in all of the energies around this holy time, all of the Christmas celebrations and the Hanukkah celebrations and Kwanzaa and all of the holy days and the solstice, all of the energies around all that we've been experiencing during this month of December, we call it into our collective cup of consciousness for the transformation and the raising of consciousness to one and all. And thus, we ask God to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of our work field multidimensionally, through every ley line and song line, through every aspect of the grid system, the love grid, the light grid, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid systems, through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire, and every portal, every vortex, every monument, every sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light, as we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution at this most sacred and holy time with the upcoming solstice, as other Gaia takes a rightful place as Freedom Star. We give thanks to be of service at this time, We give thanks for this opportunity and the ability to be the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut. We call forward to mine even further to our divine great presence of all life. I invoke the transforming light of union to come and fully illuminate my thoughts, my feelings, my body, and my soul, creating a resonant field of sustained coherence that empowers the highest levels of divine alignment within my consciousness. Let 
by and through universal law, I call forth a greater embodiment of my true self. Blaze the light of presence through me. A greater opening of my intuitive channel. Reveal my connection to all that is. A greater alignment to my soul purpose. Intensify my receptivity to divine will. Keep expanding my mind into total unified awareness that I may directly experience beyond all doubt the great love responsible for my creation. Inspire the deep levels of consciousness and conscious communication within me now. Beloved Creator, please radiate these these codes of self-realization. All throughout the vast consciousness fields of humanity, as we near this time of Christ mass, accelerate our collective reorientation to the spiritual principles that govern the universe, that all beings may live in joy, peace, and oneness. May your will be done. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We call in the highest light that we can receive individually and collectively as we affirm. I live within the light. I love within the light. I laugh within the light. I am sustained and nourished by the light. I joyously serve the light. For I am the light. I am the light. I am the light. I am. I am. I am. I am a Christ of being. Just feel that golden light. We're invoking the golden light of Christ consciousness in and around us in turn around every man, woman, and child, and turn around the planet and all upon her. Just feel your frequency lifting as we affirm. I am a Christ in being. I am in unity with spirit. I am a Christ in being. I am in unity with all that is. The light of my own being shines upon my path. I am a Christ of being. I am in unity with all that will be. I hold the shining light of the source within my heart. I walk in unity with spirit. I laugh in unity with the source. I love in unity with my fellow beings. I am a Christ of being. I am a bridge between heaven and earth. I am Christ embodied. I am Christ in action. And so it is. We call forth the highest frequencies of the golden ray. See it in through and around you, in through and around the planet once again. 
I call upon the Elohim of the gold array to pour divine wisdom into my consciousness. I call upon the Elohim of the gold array to reveal the weights and measures, the balance and proportions of the universe. I call upon the Elohim of the gold array to illuminate my mind so it will be peaceful with understanding. May I be wise in my actions, balanced in my emotions, peaceful in my mind. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We call in the pink ray of divine love. Breathe and receive it. See it enter and around you to further activate our Christ self. I call upon the Elohim of the gray to pour forth divine unity. I call upon the Elohim of the pink ray to assist me in accepting my Christ self. I call upon the Elohim of the pink ray to pour divine love through my body. May the love of the Christ flow through me. May the unity of spirit work through me. I am a Christ being. I am in union with the source. And so it is. In the name, I ask in the name of Christ that I be sustained in the light. I ask in the name of God that I be guided and assisted in my service to the one. I ask in the name of the source that the Holy Spirit Shekinah fill me with her gift that I may serve more fully. I ask in the name yod hey that I may serve the light in this world. And again, I thank for this opportunity. So be it and so be it. We're calling in the blessing of illumination and the golden light especially the yellow gold of illumination for ourselves and for the planet. The attention around you as we affirm from the realms of higher mind at one with all creation. I call forth a golden light of pure illumination. May it fill my every thought, this mighty living flame, uplifting me beyond all the beyond the human game. Master teachers of the rays of wisdom and of love, shine your light upon me now. Please bless me for 
above. Light of wisdom, come to me. A blazing cosmic surge. Penetrate into my mind. Let inner peace emerge. Beloved presence of all life, I wish to now expand, to see with eyes of perfect love. Please grant me this command. Activate within my being the power to discern, to know the holy truth of one. For this I deeply yearn. The source of all enlightenment, please lift the veil of time. Awaken every human soul. Illuminate all minds. Bless life with joy and peace. Bring balance to the scale. Keep blazing universal light. Let wisdom now prevail. And affirm with me now. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We're calling in the emerald green ray. See it, sense it, feel it around you. As we call forth for perfect vision. In the name of the light of God that always prevails, we call to beloved Psychopia and Virginia and the all-seeing eye of God, all silent watchers for Tara, the angels of the Emerald Ray, St. Germain, Lady Portia, Archangel Charity, to unfold the earth and all of its evolutions in the perfect image of immaculate grace, cosmic understanding, divine direction, universal peace, and holy love. As we call forth your presence in our midst this hour through this hour prayer. Virginia, I copy a dear. Your healing light is ever near. We gaze into the eye of God. Behold the one, the flaming yacht. Let now your vision be our own, as everywhere your seeds are sown. And Tara now accelerates and rises to her true estate. Our vision plan is your plan. A perfect vision is your plan to love as God loves every man. We see with your all-seeing eye to raise, illumine all on high. Renew God's fiery, blazing light within our minds so free and bright that sensitizes us to love the healing balm from realms above. As angels sing with voices gold, the music of the spirits behold, dissolve, consume, and purify, transmute the earth in twinkling eyes. 
We look to the most holy one. We see an blazing emerald sun within our mind and forehead too to keep our vision sure and true. We see each soul as you would see, a shining beacon pure and free. Our eyes vision always clear. We see perfection flowing here. And so it is. In the fullness of your cosmic joy, we accept this prayer manifest here and now. With full love, wisdom, and power, anchored in the earth, air, fire, water, and ether, intangibly manifest in our lives and in the lives of evolutions of life throughout the cosmos. I've decided to include a prayer for peace, and that's what we are closing with. So we call forth the aspect of the golden light of eternal peace and infinite abundance for all. As we say this prayer for peace, this is from an October Facebook post by Peter Sterling. We gather in humble unity, seeking your divine guidance and blessings for the world. In a world marred by conflict and suffering, we pray for peace, harmony, and universal love to prevail. See that golden light entering around the planet, just filling everyone, bringing to the forefront their Christ consciousness in that love, in that eternal peace. May the negative forces that drive wars and division be overcome by the power of compassion and understanding. Grand us the strength to stand together, hand in hand, transcending boundaries and differences. May humanity's collective heart be filled with empathy and kindness, so that the suffering in all corners of the world may cease. Let your light shine upon those in pain, offering solace and healing. We pray for the leaders of all nations to be instruments of peace, for the wisdom to choose diplomacy over aggression, and for the courage to build bridges where there are walls. May they work tirelessly for the well-being of all, promoting the common good and nurturing a world where love knows no bounds. Guide us, beloved Mother, Father God, to be peacemakers, in our own lives, to sow seeds of understanding, tolerance, and forgiveness. Let us be beacons of hope and love, inspiring change one heart at a time. In your boundless grace, help us find the path to universal love, where we see our shared humanity in every person we meet. Let this prayer for world peace be a catalyst for transformation so that together we may usher in an era of harmony and unity. So be it. And so it is. So once again, we give thanks for this opportunity to serve. We ask that this be sealed in the most rarefied, purified, golden light 
of Christ consciousness, peace, divine wisdom, nation for all. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me in this divine service here today. I invite you to join us every Sunday and Monday for further divine service. The one exception is Christmas Day, and that's on a Monday this year. But we will be there on Christmas Eve. So, it's a teleconference call. And we use all kinds of different meditations and invocations and prayers and activations. Receiving dispensations individually and collectively for all. Every Sunday and Monday, we gather at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.40 p.m. Pacific Time, for 25 minutes of greetings, and then Tower and Mama come in for a brief update. And then we start our work in earnest at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time. And... Phone number to dial, the main number that we give out is area code 480-660-2224-480-660-2224. The access code is 946-7441-POUND, 946-7441-POUND. We'd love to have you join us to let us know where you're calling from and be a regular part of our our healing team. Um, there are other numbers. I have local numbers. I have international numbers. You can get on through the web through freeconference.com, and you, there's also an app. So if you need any additional information, please contact me. Email me at Cheryl That's C-H-E-R-L-C-R-O-I at AOL.com. And I'll get you that information. And um, we'd love to have you join us. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your divine service here today. And we want to thank Rama, their divine service, ongoing for all of these years. And my dear sister Ringbird for her divine service as well. So as I pass the talking stick, it has to have all the rays and flames and universal laws and essential ways with it. It has everyone and everything that we can talk to, all the kingdoms and so on. But it is unmistakable that it is blazing with its golden, golden light and carries all of the frequencies of divine love and Christ consciousness and those frequencies of eternal peace and infinite abundance as well and wisdom and illumination and enlightenment. <laughs> with that, sweetheart, I'm going to pass the talking stick. I wish everybody an amazing week ahead. May magic and miracles still every moment have a wondrous one solstice because it'll be after the solstice that we gather on the next Saturday. So, infinite blessings to you all. I pass the talking stick to you, Marie.
Okay, thank you, Cheryl. I'll take that talking stick, and it is gorgeous and golden. So lots of gratitude for your divine service as well. So I'm here to do the housekeeping, as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen, and I want to just help you see how you can get that done, get it done, help us get it done. So we're doing pretty good. We um, uh, Each week we need, in December, for BBS Radio, $305. And this week, or so, uh, well, actually what we need right now for the, to take us all the way through the third week of December is $833. So we've already started on December. We've got November completed, and we are so grateful for all your donations to BBS Radio. And so this is how we get it done, and we are especially want to get caught up as um, Doug and Don um, have their birthdays tomorrow. They are twins, and so they get to celebrate together, and we want to make sure that we can get caught up and they can celebrate <laughs> with our with our blessings as well. So go into your heart space and see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And what you want to click on is the schedule, and you're looking for the schedule for Radio Station 1 and Radio Station 2. So for Radio Station 2, we find this program listed at the 3.30 hour, and as you look up that listing, You'll see the icon there for our program. As you click on that icon, it takes you directly to our account with DBS Radio, and you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. And that's how that works, and it's very convenient. We have two programs on Radio Station 1. They are Thursday and Friday, and they're listed at the 8 o'clock hour. And mind you, all the times are central times, so you know when when your time is to come in and listen. <laughs> so there you go. Um, yeah, so the 8 o'clock hour on Thursday is the night at the round table with the panel. And at the 8 o'clock hour on Friday is the hard news on Friday night with Tara and Rama. So that's how we connect all three of these programs, and we hope you're coming to all three of them. Um, <laughs> anyway, we're grateful for your action for taking this action and assisting in this uh fees with bbs radio we're grateful for all that bbs radio does for us they keep they keep our archives and they um they're they they keep track of how we're doing on our shows and if anything happens they can be there to straighten it out and they just show up and we're grateful for their services so thank you for showing up. We're grateful for your donations in this matter. Um, yeah, so all we need is $833 to um, be completely paid for what we're where we are in December. And it'd be fun to be paid up by Christmas. So um, at least that part. <laughs> and so thank you for our uh, taking the action and, and making that happen. We're grateful for all your donations. And it, no donation too small. So if you feel like you don't have that much to give, just give what you can. And uh, as long as we stay with it and keep steady with it, we can get, we can we can make it happen. So 13 thank yous and honey in the heart for all the way.
ways that you show up in your life, and thank you for showing up in this way. So we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and this week they all they need is this money for their living expenses. They have all their bills paid, and they're, they're good um, till the end of the month, so I think Rama says they show up the last week of the month, so that that's not till next week. So there you go. There's this, that's happening, and here's how we make a contribution to Tar and Rama. You want to connect to the PayPal account, and you can do that by going to the web address, which is RainbowRoundtable.net. And as you go to that homepage, there you'll see the donate um, link on the bar across the top on the menu um, <clears throat> on the home the computer homepage and if you're on another device you'll see the menu grid just click on that and that menu will drop down near the bottom of that list is the donate link for the PayPal account so as you would like to make that a friends and family donation you need the, this um, email address to do that uh, the gifting email is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And I'll say it again, Koran9999 at hotmail.com. And as you put that in as a gift, it should um, run as friends as family and uh, not be charged commercially uh, for that transaction which is which is perfect because it is a gift it is a donation and uh, if you have any trouble with that I found it successful to go to the support section on the website and they'll guide you on how to access the gift option the friends and family option so there you go that's how we get it done either way is perfect we're grateful for your donations and we also want you to let us know what you sent and when you sent it. So you can email Rama uh, that information, that address, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999-39 at Comcast.net. And uh, let them know what you sent and when you sent it. And then as you need it, the mailing address is as follows. Rom D. Berkowitz. B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. And the zip code in Santa Cruz, New Mexico is 87567. So there you have it, all the information. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you for your, your contributions. And I want to pass this talking stick. And it is just got that that incredible golden light all over it. And all the things that Cheryl said at best. And I'll just add the fairies and feathers and the little people and the magical people. And uh, Excalibur sort of truth. So greetings. Tar and Rama, here comes this talking stick. Greetings. Greetings. Thank you, Cheryl, so much 
Yeah, thank um, you. And thank you, Rainbird, as well. Um, the perseverance and the determination of all of us together. And uh, miracles continue uh, to come about here. What's the latest miracle, Rama, on the big story? Oh, a ginormous solar flares today. Uh, and I could just say there are all different pockets of the planet where radio blackouts are occurring and the ascension symptoms, I don't even know how to describe them. Or the Schumann resonance, you know, we're getting a dose. And... um I sat in the plasma field for an hour today, and it just showed me geometric shapes, and I experienced sitting within the different dimensional shapes as if I was... um, like in some sort of bubble and I just watched the dimensional shapes change and the colors change in um, in terms of the big story blazed the violet fire um, war is never the answer and there will be accountability and justice. Lady Master Ma'at is here. Remember the 42 principles of Ma'at, the attributes, and that is the true laws. The, the positive attributes. That's right. Maybe you could print that out again and we could go read them later. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. And because I, Ma'at is Mother Segment's future self. Yes. So, and this is the this is the um, this is the point of light that that says because all time is present at the same time, and this is why we learned that Ranamu went 175 million years in the future. She did that in 175 million years, right? Mm-hmm. That means just one person. I'm sure there's others that did it with her. The wing makers. And they kind of are in the background. They are, you know, not talked about a whole lot anymore. Yet they are here on the planet along with the trillions of other souls that come from the Galactic Federation that are here to ensure that Ascension, in a sense, it's not a rescue party on any level. It's about us. Rescuing ourselves together. That's right. (laughs) In a sense, we are becoming the Jedi Council on the planet, a galactic Jedi Council. This is what I go to when I sit with Lady Master Nada on Saturn, and there is a galactic um, council 
for other galaxies, and I could say that the wise counsels of elders, Grandmother Fleur de Mayo is one of them, Grandmother Chandra is another one. These are the ones that are bringing in these councils that you speak of, Rainbird, the council fires around the planet. And they know about the siddhas, the gifts and abilities we all got to change this story. It's about taking the political will, spiritual will. It's thy will be done as it is in heaven, not my will. And it's about compassion and love for these life forms that... I mean, just to think about it, that the wingmakers, along with Ranamu, who is also a wingmaker, they literally did linear walk for 175 million more years into our future where one-third of this entire Milky Way galaxy was missing. And they committed to doing that, and then they all committed to coming back. And they surveyed a whole collective, what's the best time-space continuum to come back to, to correct the course, and to make it so that the Milky Way galaxy is in complete intact. And it's right now, right, huh? Oh. 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil, live long and prosper. Aye. And to add on to that, we have the opportunity with application to details and our higher conscious awareness not to cause this body harm at all, at all. And that means the body can live as long as it chooses. It choose, Yes, it has. <laughs> it the body itself has sentience at this point, right? Now. Yes, this is. Uh, you know, um, we are souls having an experience with this body. That is the part of ET one hundred one that they didn't get to teach us we had to effing figure it out ourselves well together yeah otherwise we knew that whatever differences were going on war is never the answer no oh (laughs) sorry are you talking to that other kitty yes Send that kitty some good vibrations, everybody. Yes. Yes. But the thing is, is that we have got this group consciousness uh, within this uh, within this um, within this group that's here right now. We really have that one. And um, world group service at this time is what's required. It, it is 
huge and we can do it. All the prophecies talk about that we make it. This is what the age of the sixth sun is about, where Quetzalcoatl, we get to greet and meet him. And Katumi, um, Tehuti, Thoth, you know, I, what I do know about the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, I, I haven't read it. It is kind of in the old paradigm, the way it is spoken, but it is about real magic that works with the quantum physics. And um, that's a big deal, and I don't even know how to describe it. Well, the real magic is that... Um, we bring every experience that's ever been on the collective conscious level of all of us into one final moment right here. And there's a song, and it's called One Final Moment, There Was Peace on Earth. Oh. That's the moment. Uh -huh. And so let's start this off with um, uh, Aurora Ray. It's... What are frequency dimensions and what does it say underneath there? Exploring the hidden forces of nature. And this is 10 minutes, everybody. Yeah. Here we go. What are frequencies or dimensions? Greetings, friends. We have been experiencing level after level of the process of ascension over many lifetimes. During this time, the Creator has been moving from a state of absolute unity into a state of relative separation so that it can experience itself through its own creative thought process. Through a process called evolution, we have been consciously changing from a state of being unconscious in our essence as pure spirit into conscious embodiments of spirit. When referring to frequencies, we mean oscillations per second or hertz. We are vibrating beings that are affected by everything around us, from electrical appliances to electromagnetic fields created by power lines, cell phone towers, and high-tension wires. The human body has its own frequency, as does every living thing on the planet. Our bodies are made up of atoms and molecules, which are surrounded by electromagnetic fields that are affected by our thoughts and feelings. Every thought produces an electrical charge within your body. These electrical charges can be measured by means of an electroencephalogram, or EEG. It has been clearly established in scientific studies that different types of thoughts create different electrical charges within the brain. Different emotions produce different magnetic polarities within our bodies as well. Quantum mechanics is the study of atoms and electrons. Quantum mechanics is an essential element of understanding spirituality, for it is this science that explains how spirit and matter interact. Spirit is a vibrational frequency that exists in an alternate dimension, but it can be detected scientifically. Its vibrations are felt through electromagnetic energy, which we sense and feel as our emotions. It is not possible to experience spirit 
without having a connection with the physical body, which is why we have sexual polarity, life and death in the physical world. To experience spirit while living in the physical world requires that we stay aligned with our heart's desires. If we do this, then our emotions will begin to vibrate at a frequency that matches that of spirit. This can be difficult to achieve through intellect alone because it involves being present in every moment with unconditional love, seeing every person and event exactly as they are. This awareness will expand into higher guidance, which will help you stay aligned with predestined events and people you are intended to meet. As you become aware of your intentions, feelings, thoughts, and emotions in every moment, you align with universal consciousness, the consciousness of the Creator, which will lead you to your highest good. The universe is an intelligent hologram, a living organism that is conscious and intelligent. It communicates with us through our thoughts and feelings. We are its thinking cells, the consciousness of this holographic universe. The laws of quantum physics state that human beings are made up of energy that is both physical and non-physical. The physical part that we can see and touch is only a small part of who we are. Quantum physics tells us that everything in the universe is interconnected and that there is no such thing as emptiness or absolute nothingness. Quantum entanglement, also known as spooky action at a distance, shows that if two particles have interacted in the past, they will always remain connected regardless of how far apart they are now. If one particle changes its state, the other particle will change at exactly the same moment. The non-physical part of ourselves includes our minds, our emotions, our bodies, our DNA, and the energy field around us. It does not matter whether it is inside or outside of the physical body, it can be anywhere in the universe because it has no boundaries. Reality exists because we exist within it. Our consciousness creates reality by encoding frequency patterns into matter and energy via our thoughts, emotions, and words. Superconsciousness is the highest energy form that we can perceive at this time, which is why it is referred to as God. We are not separate from God's consciousness. Therefore, there is no need for us to pray or ask for anything because it is already present within us. Our task is to become aware of its presence within us by developing greater sensitivity to subtle vibrations. As we raise our vibration, we become sensitive to all aspects of vibration, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. We begin to realize that consciousness flows through all things, including us. The Creator's love and light are within us, as well as in all things. All is one. Are you experiencing an expanded awareness of intuitive knowing and spiritual guidance in your life? Do you feel the presence of a divine source that you have not been able to put into words? This is a glimpse into the consciousness of all beings and everything that is imbued with unconditional love and brightness. It does not always appear as a bright light. It may come to you instead as a deep sense of peace or as an understanding. Whatever form it takes, this expanded awareness reflects our inherent connection to all things and beings. 
it is a clear signpost directing us towards spiritual growth and fulfillment. As we increase our sensitivity to subtle vibrations, we begin to enter this consciousness and experience being one with all things that are. It is important to note that we do have free will at every moment. Knowing this allows us to become aware of the thoughts and emotions we are choosing at each moment, rather than simply reacting or responding to situations or circumstances based on what was programmed into us from the past. Whether you are aware of it or not, you are in a constant exchange of energy with the universe and everything in it. You may feel that your thoughts, feelings, and emotions are yours alone, but they are not. You are constantly surrounded by and connected to everything in the universe. As we begin to awaken to this fact, we begin to recognize our true nature as pure consciousness that is one with all that is. It is important to remember that at any moment, you have a choice about whether or not you will honor the subtle intuitive signal that is being given to you. This can be very empowering. As you become more aware of the subtle intuitive guidance being given to you, you will realize that there truly is no accident in your life. There are no random occurrences happening on a daily basis. There is only perfection in divine timing and divine unfolding. This means that if there is something in your life that needs to be addressed or healed, there is nothing to worry about because the power of your own presence will dissolve any blockages or limitations. Your conscious awareness will shift you into a higher level of vibration where there are no problems because they simply do not exist. The intuitive voice will always lead us back home and bring us back into alignment with our true nature. The awareness of the creator is not a belief system. It is the consciousness from which all creation comes. The creator exists within each of us and collectively as the universe. All things are created from this original energy, including our thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations, perceptions, and experiences. Sensitivity to this energy can be developed through meditation and prayer, so we can begin to experience a greater degree of happiness than what is experienced in the physical world. In this higher realm of consciousness, we have access to all knowledge, wisdom, and intuition that guide us to develop new talents and abilities. We become more attuned to our body's innate wisdom and healing ability so that sickness no longer has a hold on us. The more we develop our intuition, the more information will be revealed to us in meditation. This is one way that we can find peace and contentment in our lives by learning to trust ourselves rather than allow others to influence our decisions. This level of consciousness is available to everyone, no matter what their religious background or beliefs may be. Our thoughts create our reality, so negative or fearful thoughts do not exist here. As we begin to practice being present in the moment, we learn how to shift from fear-based thinking into intuitive thinking that opens our minds up to all possibilities. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation.
was great. Mm. All right, so we're going to continue. Um, this is with Jocelyn Starfeather, and the title of this is called Mythology of Solstice, of the Solstice, a time of light, a time of dreaming, and New Year intention setting ceremony. And uh, during this uh, fun and inspiring video, you will learn about an oracular solstice dreaming practice from the ancient Norse traditions, how to receive the light codes of the sun to make your dreams and visions more vivid, plus which vitamin to take as you cannot remember your dreams. <laughs> That's good. The power, of the, the power of the conifer trees and eternal life. It's another thing that she's going to address. Our sun has a fractal of the great central sun. Mm -hmm. Why the ancient people honored the solstice in so many of their temples and stone circles. I will guide you in the beautiful shamanic journey to connect with the light of the sun and stars at the very moment of solstice. And receive your unique sacred instructions for the new year, 2024. I mean, just because the day has come and gone doesn't mean that this doesn't happen. It's only 16th today. Yeah, but all time is present. I'm That's just saying, right. even though the linear thing says it was four days ago, it's all present. All yeah. time is present. Okay, just so you know that. I will guide you in a beautiful shamanic journey to connect with the light of the sun and the stars at the very moment of solstice and receive your unique sacred instructions for the new year of 2024. All right. So this is uh, how many minutes, Rama? Hour and one. One hour and one minute. So we'll get started now. Here we go. One second. And one second? Oh, an hour and three minutes and 21 seconds. Oh, an hour and three minutes and 21 seconds. All righty, here we go. Mm. Uh. There we go. And welcome everybody over on YouTube who's joining now. On YouTube, please put your name and location into the chat as well. Um Let's see here. I'm just making sure all of my technology is working properly. There we go. Okay. Hi, everybody. As you're all streaming in, we're going to have a really beautiful and light build gathering today. And we are just a few days away from the solstice. So this is the perfect time to connect in with the energy of that solstice and really prepare to be uh, receiving the most from it. So welcome, Karen in Connecticut. Welcome, Nathalie in France. Great to see you, Nathalie. Welcome, Diane in New Mexico. Sue in Toronto. Welcome, Michelle in Brighton, UK. Welcome, Hej in Sweden. Welcome, Luzia in Austria. Jan in Wales. Verena in California. Pamela in Scotland. Crystal in France. Eva in Sweden. Welcome, Vicky in Belgium. Carolyn in Denver. Wonderful. So beautiful to see you all. Welcome Jennifer in Tennessee, Maureen in Arizona, Melanie in Bavaria, Germany, Stuart in London. Hi Stuart, great to see you. 
Welcome, Frode Emil in Norway. Great to have you here. Welcome, Cynthia in Charlotte. Hello. And Cynthia is here. She's going to be offering a cacao ceremony tomorrow for the solstice. So I hope everybody will get to attend that one as well. Welcome, Swanika in the Netherlands. Welcome, Elena in British Columbia, Salt Spring Island. Welcome, Al in Malaysia. Great to have you here. Hi, Taria in Asheville. So good to have you here. Welcome, Rebecca in Burlington, North Carolina. Yay. Bonnie in Hollywood Hills. Wow, so great to have you all with me. And welcome everybody on YouTube as well who's watching this live. So good to have you on with us. So this is a really beautiful and important time of the year. And I just wanted to share with you a little bit more about the mythology of the solstice and why is this so important for us? Why has this been memorialized in the ancient temples for millions or not millions, sorry, thousands of years? Um, why was this time so important for our ancient ancestors and why is it still important for us today? So let's take a look. I have uh, some slides that I will share. And toward the end of this call, we're going to do a beautiful guided shamanic journey to really connect in with the solstice energies. And I will guide you in a process that will lead into new year intention setting. Um, and this is really a perfect time to be setting our intentions for the new year because we have a waxing moon. We had our new moon on the 12th of December. And then we are also in Mercury retrograde, which is actually a great time to reflect, to review from the year that we have, that we're just about to complete and then to recalibrate our ideas of, okay, what do we want to do next? The Mercury retrograde is not a great time for like taking huge new actions and signing contracts or things like that, but it's an amazing time to be in a dreaming space, to be in a visioning space and to be in a recalibrating space around what do I, what do I really want and long for and dream of for next year? Right. So this is an amazing time for the intention setting. And not only those two things, the waxing moon and Mercury retrograde, but also the solstice time. I feel like the solstice time is really the, the new moon of the year. You know, it is the, uh, the winter solstice, uh, in depending on which hemisphere you're in. Right. But the winter solstice is like the new moon every year. It's, it's the, the new moon happens once every lunar cycle and it's the darkest time and it's the most inward and reflective time. The winter solstice is that same point in the year cycle. Um, so this is an amazing time to be really reflecting and then beginning to plan for what we're going to birth new in the upcoming year. So let me make my slides full screen here. Here we go. Okay, and for anyone who might be meeting me for the first time through this video, I just wanted to say hi, nice to meet you, and here's a little bit about me. I'm a visibility coach for visionary entrepreneurs, a spiritual alchemist, astrologer, and a global conference creator since 2015, and I'm the founder of Sacred Planet. And my mission is to guide you in breaking free from everything that has held you back in the past. So you can learn more about my work at wearesacredplanet.com, and I have many wonderful free and donation-based courses and workshops and free gifts that you can find there. So lots of treasures. Go and explore. Um, also, be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll get updates when I go live with new astrology forecasts and all kinds of other wonderful things. So what is the solstice? 
Well, just so that we have, we all are on the same page and we have a basic understanding of what the solstice actually is. This is the time when the sun is at its furthest distance from the Earth's equator. Okay, and so this means the sun is either very far to the north of our equator or very far to the south of the equator. Of course, that's based on our perspective standing here on Earth. (laughs) Um, Wouldn't be the same if we were standing on Mars or uh, the moon. So on December 21st each year, the sun is at its southernmost point from the equator. So this day is the winter solstice. It is the shortest day and the longest night for those in the northern hemisphere because the sun is furthest away from us in our perception of it, our view from Earth. And December 21st is also the summer solstice, which is the longest day and the shortest night for those in the southern hemisphere. So while I am here in the northern hemisphere celebrating winter solstice, those of you who might be in New Zealand or Australia or South Africa, you are celebrating the summer solstice. So there's another factor here, which is that the the tilt of the Earth. Okay, so December 21st is also the time when the Earth's North Pole is most extremely inclined away from the sun. That's what creates our shortest days around the winter solstice. Okay, and then uh, December 21st is the time when the South Pole of the Earth is most extremely inclined toward the sun. So it's this tilt that gives us the changing length of our days and nights throughout the year. Now, then, if we were to look at the other six six months from now, right, the other side of this uh, (laughs) spectrum, June 21st is basically the opposite of everything I've just said. (laughs) It's when the sun is at its northernmost point. That's the summer solstice in the northern hemisphere, winter solstice in the southern hemisphere, and so on. You get the idea. Now, the ancient people honored the winter solstice in their construction of so many of their temples and their stone circles. So we know that this time was very, very important for them. Now, as I have shared in previous presentations, which I will link in the description field below for those watching this later, if you're interested in checking out more, the ancient people were aware even of the great 24 to 26,000 year cycles, the great year cycles. This is what the Mayan calendar was based upon and many other ancient long count calendars of our ancient ancestors. So they were deeply tuned in to these cycles, these cosmic cycles. And clearly for them, the winter solstice was a really important point in that cycle. So on the left here is Karnak Temple in the image on the left, Karnak Temple in Egypt. And on the winter solstice, the sun lines up, as you can see here, with the central precessional um, aisle of that temple. And magical things happen at that time, as I've heard from people who've been there at that moment. Um, and then on the right here, we have Stonehenge, of course, beautiful Stonehenge. And you can see here a picture of the sun aligning with the center of the stone circle on the winter solstice. We also have divine alignments between the sun and the structures at, Sto- at uh, Newgrange in Ireland, Karnak in France, Chichen Itza in Mexico, and many other sites. 
interesting. I've always found it interesting that, you know, Karnak in France, Karnak in Egypt, they have the same name, both aligned with the winter solstice. Now, of course, all of these temples have other alignments, too. For example, Stonehenge is also um, indicating eclipses and many other alignments. We could talk about Chichen Itza also has amazing alignments that happen at the equinoxes where it appears that serpents are slithering down the side of the stairs, right? So these temples are not only indicating the winter solstice, but it is one of the key things that they're pointing to in their structure. So why was this time so important for the ancient cultures? And a big part of the answer to that is that the winter solstice is a celebration of the victory of the sun or the light over the darkness. So if you can imagine in ancient times, particularly in far northern or far southern latitudes. So in the north, if we think of Norway, Scandinavia, right, as we get closer and closer to winter solstice. The days get very, very short. And in fact, in some places, the sun may not rise or may barely rise at all around the solstice time. And so just imagine in ancient times, um, even going back to during the ice ages, you know, how cold and dark it was and how that must have affected the people, right? It must have been quite something to live through those times of darkness. So the solstice is this pivotal moment, this pivotal turning point where we change course instead of being as we see it from the earth, moving away from the sun further and further and further away. On the solstice day, we turn and we begin to move back toward the sun once again. And once this has happened, We know we're moving toward the spring, towards the rebirth, towards the light-filled and abundant time of the summer once again. And so this was cause for tremendous celebration. And in ancient times, they would light huge bonfires. There would be singing, dancing, feasting, gift-giving. Or in some places, like the Nordic cultures, the Yule log was lit and would burn all night long to honor the light of the sun. And there were also dream practices, which I'll share one of those with you in a few minutes. So these Nordic traditions of the Yuletide are the source of many of the ways we still celebrate today, right? Decorating a pine tree, giving gifts at the winter solstice time. And so we can see that these very ancient earth-based traditions that existed long before the time of Jesus Christ were then adapted into today's Christian traditions. There's so much in the Christian traditions that actually originated in the earth-based cultures um, of ancient times. And this is one of the really big ones. I love the, um, the fact that in the northern cultures where the reindeer were so important to the people, the people followed the herds of reindeer because they really they depended on them for the meat and for the, their their coats and their fur, you know, to stay warm in the winter. Um, and they honored the reindeer. They held the reindeer very, very sacred, a sacred um, kindred. And so the reindeer, actually the females keep their antlers in the winter and the male reindeer lose their antlers 
And so in these northern cultures, the traditions held that the reindeer mother was the one who flew up into the sky and brought back the sun, like turned it back around toward the earth on the winter solstice. Isn't that so beautiful? And so this tradition that we have, you know, that many celebrate around the world of Santa, you know, with his sleigh pulled by reindeer, um, you know, clearly came from this idea. And that would mean that all of the reindeer pulling Santa's sleigh are female. (laughs) Isn't that really amazing? So this is a very magical time. The ancient and indigenous people have always honored the solstices. You know, this was going on since long, long before the beginning of recorded history. And the ancient and indigenous indigenous people know that the veils are particularly thin at this time and the light shines extra brightly through to us from the liminal realms. So this is interesting because this is a time of great polarity, actually. There is the darkness that's happening, the very short days, the very long nights, um, the sun feeling so far away. And yet there is such bright light breaking through to us at the same time. And so there was just so much to celebrate. And this was always considered a very holy time of year. And I love to reflect that, you know, regardless of all the disagreements that may be going on in the world right now, pretty much all of the major world religions and most spiritual traditions all come together in acknowledgement that this time of year is sacred and holy. And so this is really a time um, to pray for peace, to hold the vision for peace, because this is something that we are all very aligned on, that we all come together on. And this is so beautiful how universal the solstice is for all of us. Now, also universally around the world, we find that there are mythologies of the return of the sun deity, the sun god or the sun goddess in some cultures at the solstice time. So if we think about this on a big macro level, okay, we can we can see that our sun is a small fractal of the great central sun. So the great central sun that could be seen as the creator or the original singularity that all of the galaxies spin around. Okay, the center of the universe. And every star is a fractal or a mirror of that great central sun and is receiving the light and the energy that it needs from that great central sun. And in the same way, our star in the Milky Way galaxy, our sun, provides all of the energy that powers every plant, animal, and biological or environmental process on our planet. Now, we truly do eat the sun. So just consider this for a moment. The sun provides everything, all of the energy that is needed for life on Earth. All plants, all animals, all biological processes require the sun. And so how do we get our energy? Now, the way that plants versus animals get their energy from the sun is very different. And the plants hold this very powerful, very sacred role 
of actually taking the sunlight and through their leaves and through photosynthesis, they convert that light, they convert that energy into matter. They convert it into physical form. Now, this is amazing. If you really stop and think about this, that the plants, the way that they grow is they're taking that light of the sun, turning it into the body of the plant. They're turning it into leaves and bark and roots, etc., and flowers like we see here. And so this is this is very amazing. First of all, what happens at the level of the plants and then the plants offer their biological, their physical matter to us to eat. And whenever we eat, right, as animals, whenever animals eat, we're either eating plants or we're eating another animal that has eaten plants. So all of the energy that we take in as food must be converted to physical matter first by plants. And so we take in our food and as our digestion combusts that food, it is releasing the light of the sun, the energy of the sun within us. And so our body heat is the fire of the sun combusting inside of us, right? So we literally eat the sun and we are the sun. You know, we are all living things on earth are the light of the sun in a transformed state. It's really beautiful to think about this. So having said that, this time of turning back toward the sun at the winter solstice is quite significant for us. So on a deep inner psychic level, a biological level, as well as a mythological, symbolic and celebratory level. So that's why we will find a sun god or a sun goddess in almost every religion and spiritual tradition. So this is the one who is bringing back the light, right? And who is born or comes back to the people at the solstice time. So Jesus, of course, right, is a sun god. He's born at Christmas, which is the solstice. Mithra, who is in this image here, this is a very ancient Persian sun god. So these were the cultures of ancient Iran. And you can see around his head, He's shining as brightly as the sun. Now, this is very similar to the sun rays that we see and the the golden halos around the heads of Jesus and the saints, right? Um, We have Horus in the Egyptian culture. He is the sun god. We see that huge sun disk at his head. Amaterasu is a sun goddess from ancient Japan. Aine, I hope I'm saying that right, is a sun goddess in Ireland. We have Apollo in Greece, Inti in the South American cultures. We have Surya in the Hindu cultures. So there are many, 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 many more. These are some examples of sun gods and sun goddesses. And this is so universal once again, because we are the sun. Our entire life is granted to us from the sun and, of course, the earth as well. Right. But that light streaming in is essential. For all that we are. So this is a time of dreaming. And it is meant to be a time of receiving. And I say this because 
if we're following the natural cycle, the natural rhythm that we see in the world around us and that we feel what our body is longing for at this time, we're going to automatically want to sleep more, rest more, and be more inward and quiet at this time of the year. Now, I'm speaking here, of course, about the winter solstice, and this presentation is primarily based on the winter solstice. Um, so if you're watching from the Southern Hemisphere uh, or in December, right, <laughs> this may not all resonate for you, but come back and watch it around June 21st, and it will. Um because this is more presentation is just more focused on the winter solstice. And it's such an interesting thing, you know, for those of us who are in the winter solstice right now, it's hard to even imagine the summertime. It's hard to even imagine the summer solstice and vice versa. Those who are in their midsummer, it's hard to even imagine winter, right? They're such opposites. So coming back to this idea here at the winter solstice, we're naturally wanting to sleep more, rest more, be more quiet and these are the spiraling layers of our cycles and seasons of life. So as I had said earlier, the winter solstice is like the new moon in the lunar cycles. It is a time of pause and slowing down and reflection. And this quiet time is so necessary and important to honor, right? Because in order for life to spring forth, once again, we need that time of rest. And so this is what the entire earth is doing at this time in the winter. The animals are hibernating. The deciduous trees have lost their leaves. In some places, there's snow covering the ground. And all of this is rejuvenating, pulling the energy in for a little while so that life can spring forth once again when the sun grows high in the sky once again, right? And so when we surrender to the darkness and to this call from the body and this call from the earth. When we go to bed a little early, sleep in a little later, we can receive more dreams. We can also revitalize ourselves and rejuvenate our hearts and minds. And so we would be wise to follow these cues from the life all around us. Now, I have a really beautiful dreaming practice that I will share with you that you can celebrate during these longer nights. So this is the 12 days of Yule dreaming practice. Now, this is so powerful. I've been doing this for a number of years. And if you are in the dream symposium with me and Taria, which we just held yesterday, um, you've been doing this probably for a couple of years, too, because we've been talking about it there. So this is uh, a way that we can access our dreams for oracular divinatory purposes. And so it has been discovered that the dreams that we have around this solstice time, starting with the night before the solstice, so the night of December 20th, these dreams each night are giving us uh, an illustration or an energetic representation of what's going to happen in each upcoming month of the year, the next year. So, Dreams that you have during the night of December 20th will be an oracle for the month of January in the next year. Dreams that you have the night of December 21st will be an oracle for February and so on. Now, as I mentioned, I've been doing this for a few years and it is 
fascinating. It is fascinating how the imagery that comes through on each of these particular nights, and usually you'll remember some, you know, dreams some of these nights, but not all. If you remember them all, that's amazing. Um, but then you go, so let's say you have a dream on the night of December 26th and you write it down and you're like, okay, this is my oracle for July. And then you see what happens in July and it's absolutely incredible how the events that you experience in July line up perfectly with the dream that you remembered from that night. Now, I've even been doing this with my kids. And so my one daughter, she had a, an amazing dream um, on the night of December 23rd last year, 2022, that really told exactly something that happened for her in April. Um, I have many different stories about this, at how incredibly accurate it is. So I really, really welcome you to give this a try and see what your experience is with it. And so what you would want to do is now as you're watching this video, Begin to set your intentions to remember your dreams. Begin to set your intentions to write those dreams down. Or if it's, I don't write them down. I actually record them on my voice recorder on my phone because I find that easier. When I have to get up in the morning and take care of my kids and things like that, it's easier to just record it. In some way, you want to record these dreams and then save them and mark them, especially so you can come back to them each month of the year and see what happens. Um, and I would love to hear, you know, come back to this video later on and put a note in the comments on YouTube. What happened? How did it line up for you with your dreams as, as oracles for these months? Now, another thing that I hear from people a lot is that, you know, I they don't remember their dreams, right? I haven't remembered a dream in years. And I have a really simple recommendation for you if that's the case. Um, because the thing is that, there are the, the part of our brain that controls the recall of dreams um, can actually be deficient in certain vitamins, particularly if we are vegan or vegetarian or don't eat a lot of meat. OK, and one of those is vitamin B12. So I really recommend taking some vitamin B12. If you don't remember your dreams, it's probably something you need anyway. If you're not remembering dreams. The other thing I have found helpful with this is to take iron. So, of course, if you have any concerns, check with your doctor or health practitioner first. But generally, iron and uh, and uh, B12 are good for us and very healthy for us. So if you want to, you could start taking those now. And then by the time that these days come around, you'll have more likelihood of remembering your dreams. And the person who originally shared this practice with me, her name is Villamain Moss. And I worked with her a lot in previous years in, in my business. And um, she lives in the Netherlands. And so she had heard about this 12 days of the old dreaming practice. So I have a quote from her here on this slide. So she said, when we honor the dark, it's possible to receive insights from our unconscious mind. This can be in the form of visions, dreams, or insights. Dreams occurring during these dark 12 nights have divinatory powers and hold powerful messages about the coming year. So it's, as she says, it's really incredible what our unconscious mind already knows about what's going to happen in the future. And so when we set our intentions to receive the dreams, right, in this oracular format, then we can get the most amazing information. 
I'm going to just check the chat and see what everybody's saying here. Okay, yes, Lily, give those a try, the B12 and the iron, definitely. And Jennifer says, try to stay in the same body position as you are waking, and it helps to recall. Yes, that is really good advice, Jennifer. Thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely, Rebecca, that's fine. If you just, yeah, just link back to this video. And yes, amazing, amazing. And also it can be helpful to um, whether you're going to like if you're going to write down your dreams, keep your pen and your notebook right by your bed. Very easy to reach for. Like, don't even put your feet on the ground. Just reach for it. Um, if you're going to record it in your phone, keep your phone somewhere easy to get to. I actually don't recommend keeping your phone right by your bed because you don't want to have the EMFs all night. OK, but keep your phone maybe in the next room over someplace. Very easy for you to get to right when you wake up. Yeah, so give it a try and let me know. I would love to hear. And I'll also include a link below and I'll, I'll let me um, jump out of the slideshow for just a moment because I want to invite you all, if you're not already attending, to our monthly dream symposium. So let me just pull up the link for that and I'll put that in the chat here. And you can read more about the dream symposium and sign up here. Um, we do have new dates that haven't been published on this page yet in the new year. So if you sign up, you'll get notifications. And this is at, uh, at my website. So it's at jocelynstarfeather.com backslash dream symposium. That's my other website where I have this listed. So wonderful. Okay, so let's go back into the slideshow. And for the Dream Symposium, that's something that Dr. Taria Ward and I do every month. And we basically open up a Zoom meeting and we have a global dream group and we hear all the dreams that our people are feeling called to share on that day. Most of the dreams have just been received in the last few days before the symposium. And it's incredible the messages that come through. So if you want to work more with your dreams, come and join us in the Dream Symposium. And you also get to hear the dreams from others, hear the collective intelligence of the dream time coming through. It's really amazing. So I'll put that link in the description field below, too, once we're done this recording. So let's also talk about receiving the light codes of the solstice sun. So as I mentioned, the veils are really thin at this time. And the light is so bright as the sun is about to turn back toward us or just having turned back toward us. And I know every year around this time, I become just really innately drawn to wake up early and watch the sunrise, which honestly is not even that early at this time of year, watch the sunrise and to really tune in to the sunset in the evening and this is a practice, you know, sitting with or meditating with the sunrise or the sunset is a practice in many, many, many ancient traditions. And so there's a lot of powerful information that you can you could read online if you want to research this about how when we take in the light of the sunrise or the sunset through our eyes, we are able to really receive and, and consume that light in a very powerful way and take it into our bodies. And I notice 
that when I do this, when I really take the time to be with the sunrise or to be with the sunset or both, that my dreams become much more vivid. My meditations, my, my visioning, it all becomes clearer and more, I would say, you know, at least in my case, multidimensional. And so I really invite you to try this, particularly at this time of the year. Now, it's wonderful to tune into sunrises and sunsets at all times of the year, but especially at the solstice, there's something really powerful that's happening right now in our connection with the sun and the codes of light that the sun is sending to us. And there's this amazing um, you know, the, the glow of the sunrise or the sunset where all that time where all the colors appear, the bright pinks and oranges and even purples and blues can appear. Um, there's something really magical about that time. And it's, it's something connected with the, the liquid light or the plasma light of the sun and how that is streaming into us. And so we can really set our intentions to receive that to be in meditation at that time, to be gazing toward the sunrise or the sunset as that shift is happening, right? Um, and, and really let ourselves receive it. We can also do breath work at that time and be breathing in the sun, breathing, taking it in through the eyes, through the breath, you know. Um, we always take it in every day through our food. We take in that sunlight. But there are other ways to receive it. Um, that I think can amplify our spiritual experience, amplify our connection with that light, with um, the divine intelligence of the cosmos and the divine intelligence within us. So I invite you to give that a try in the way that's right for you. Uh, another amazing thing you can do is to take a glass of water and place it in an eastern facing window at night. And as the sun rises, you can you can speak to the water too, right? You can say you can ask the water, dear water, please receive the light codes of the sun as it rises tomorrow morning, and fill yourself with those light codes so that I can then drink you and receive them too, right? And so we can be in this connection with the water and the fire of the sun all at once. So give that a try. I bet you it will amplify your dreams and your your spiritual practice. This is an amazing opportunity at this time of year. I also want to share with you about the conifer trees and eternal life. So there's a book that I read recently. Um, you know what? I think I have it right here. Let me just grab it so I can show it to you. Hold on. Actually, sorry, wasn't where I thought it was, but um, it's called The Empires of Atlantis and it's by uh, Mario Vigato. I will put that in the description field, too, and I'll put it in the chat right now. Um, it's an amazing book. Let me just put this in here. Atlantis by Mario Vigato. Now, this researcher, Mario Vigato, went to such extreme depths of research to pull together information from every possible source, every ancient culture, the ancient texts, the king's lists from Egypt and Sumeria, um, from the Bible, from the many, many, many different cultural 
and, and ancient civilizations around the world to look for proof of Atlantis. And he found a lot. He found a lot of proof. But one of the very fascinating things that he found was that there were references in some of these really the, the more deeply ancient texts of connecting the god Osiris with the conifer trees. Now, this is really fascinating because, of course, in Egypt, where we know the god Osiris, it's the desert now. It's the Sahara Desert. There are not conifer trees there. Mm. Um, they would not do well there. But so the conifer trees do do better in the northern, you know, and probably far southern um, latitudes where it gets very cold in the winter. And so this is fascinating and it indicates that we've had great, tremendous shifts in climate and that maybe Osiris originated the concept of the god Osiris originated in a much more northern place, which is what he's um, the, the theory that he's positing in this book. And then eventually migrated to Egypt over many millennia. But in any case, if we take a look at the god Osiris, he's usually depicted in green. And he's known to be considered not only the god of the duat or the afterlife and immortality, but also the god of agriculture. And he is vitally connected with the force of vitality and life that pushes the green things up from the ground in the springtime that brings life back. But if we look at the deeper meaning of Osiris as connected to the conifer trees, this is about eternal life because these trees do not lose their leaves, right? They stay green all winter long. And so um, this is just another, another aspect for you to dream into and to consider as you're looking at a pine tree, right? As you're looking at a conifer tree, or maybe as you're noticing the incredible sacred geometry of a pine cone, consider that this is a symbolic representation here on our planet Earth of eternal life that was deeply connected at some part, at some point far, far back in our history with the god Osiris, who helps us to make that long journey into eternal life and into the halls of Amenti. It's really amazing. I've also recently learned that pine cones are like wombs. <laughs> and this is just amazing. I'll show you. I have a few here. Um, pine cones, the this third is, eye. These are, if you can see this pine cone, let me actually stop sharing my screen for a moment. This is a beautiful rosette pine cone. I recently found these. They're growing on just a few trees near me. I had never seen a pine cone like this. And I started researching them. And this is true of any any pine cone, what I'm about to tell you, is that this is the female pine cone. Okay, this is a womb. And so the seeds of the male uh, pine tree will fall into the pine cone. And then the pine cone closes up, closes up around those seeds and begins to gestate those seeds. And a new pine tree will grow out of the pine cone. Um, which is, you know, holding that gestating seed. And then after the seed sprouts, this pine cone will disintegrate back into the earth, right? It will dissolve back. But the new pine tree will be started. 
So isn't that just amazing? There's so much um, beauty in the pine cones and the sacred geometry of the pine cones is amazing. So these very sacred conifers that are really present for us around this time of year uh, hold deep meaning for us as well. I have just a few pictures here of Karnak Temple in Egypt because whenever you go there, you really experience light in a very powerful way. And so this is an image of the sun shining. It was just amazing. It was like really, really rainbow light shining down through these massive pillars in the center structures of Karnak Temple. And then um, this is a room off to the side of the Chapel of Sekhmet. Now here's beautiful Sekhmet. She is um, one of the few statues that's considered to be still living, um, truly still living. And she is really, really alive and powerful. And there is a room off to the side of her chapel where this light streams in. And you can see me catching the light in my hands there. Just an amazing place of light and highest consciousness. Now, I have a really cool solstice gift for you. Um, and this is how to create your own winter solstice ritual. So I invite you to take this with you. And if it feels aligned, you can give it a try. Um, I'm going to put this in the chat and I'll put this in the description field later as well. There we go. So I'm put it in the chat. So if you would like to claim this free gift, I hope you'll really enjoy it. And so in this free gift, it's an ebook, full color ebook. It's really beautiful. And so it includes which key elements to include in your ritual how you can let something go or welcome something new into your life at this time, bringing in the dream time, gratitude practices with the sun, and how to make your ritual very simple yet inspiring and sacred. So it's a kind of really short and sweet, but very, very um, inspiring and informative ebook. So I hope you'll go claim it if that inspires you and enjoy. Okay. So let's take our shamanic journey now. And I will actually put up an image for you to gaze out while we're doing the shamanic journey. So bear with me one moment. Find the right image here. Here it is. This is the one I wanted. Okay, so you can get really comfortable in your space. And as always with the shamanic journeys, you know, if you would like to lay down, go ahead and do it. Really listen to your body, whatever your body needs. If you need to lay down and just relax, do that. If your body is feeling active and you prefer to be moving and make it a movement journey, that is wonderful as well. Whatever you prefer. Or you can sit up with your spine straight. And so I invite you to get really comfortable in your space. And then you can close your eyes or lightly gaze at this image here. And I invite you to begin taking some deep breaths into your solar plexus. So this is just above your belly button. 
your solar plexus chakra. And this is actually the chakra that is yellow, like the sun, and is said to hold the fire element within us. So let's breathe into that solar plexus chakra and see it as a yellow lotus flower shining brighter and brighter with the golden light of the sun as you breathe the beautiful oxygen and sunlight into it. So you can take a deep, deep breath into that solar plexus chakra, breathing in, filling up with all of the light of this solstice time. Filling that yellow chakra, that yellow lotus flower with light and beauty. And then breathing out slowly, slowly. And on the out breath, just let go of anything you're holding on to. Anything that feels hard or challenging, just let it go. Release it for now. And as you're continuing with this deeper rhythm of breathing, I invite you to imagine yourself in a very beautiful place in nature where the brightest solstice sun is shining down on you. And maybe you'll find yourself at a sacred site at sunrise or maybe some other place where you can really feel the power of the sun. So take a moment to look around you and notice where you are. Notice the terrain here. Is there water nearby? Are you in a forest? Are you in a temple? Just taking in this magical place where you have landed. And I invite you to see yourself there barefoot with the soles of your feet really connecting in with the power of the earth in this place. And you can connect with the earth through the soles of your feet and allow her to send you the most beautiful, unconditional love up through the soles of your feet and into every cell of your body. And then you can raise your hands, raise your palms straight up to receive the light of the sun. And allow that sunlight, that cosmic consciousness in golden streams of light to stream in to the palms of your hands and then down your arms and then into every cell of your body and into all levels of your body, your physical, emotional, energetic, all levels of you. And just stay here for a moment, allowing yourself to receive from both the earth and the sun. Unconditional love from the earth and cosmic consciousness and light from the sun.
And when you are feeling really beautifully filled up with these amazing energies, send your gratitude, send gratitude from your heart to the sun and from your heart to the earth. And you are really strengthening and solidifying your connection to the great above and the great below. And so now as you look around this place, once again, you notice a guide approaching you. Now, this might be a power animal, might be an angel, might be one of your ancestors or another kind of guide. It could even be a conifer tree or a star. So really notice who shows up for you here. Who is it that wants to be your guide for this solstice journey? And when they arrive to you, as you see them getting closer and closer and then they arrive, Go ahead and give them a hug if you would like. Thank them for coming. And then tune in and lean into them because your guide right now has a beautiful and important solstice message to tell you just as they are arriving. So listen in carefully. See what your guide says. And once you've received this beautiful message from your guide, thank them again. And then your guide is going to beckon to you and is going to invite you to come and stand in a really specific place here, somewhere in this beautiful spot that you've landed in. And your guide is telling you that if you stand right in this exact place, At the exact time of solstice, you will receive the most incredible light codes from the sun at that solstice moment. Mm -hmm. And so go ahead and follow your guide because they're going to take you to the right place for you to stand. And they tell you that the exact moment of solstice is approaching in just a few minutes. And so you go. And you stand, or maybe you sit, really pay attention again to your intuition. What is the position that's right for you to be in? To receive the light of the sun at the exact moment of solstice here in this beautiful place. And as you stand there or sit there, you can feel the energy of the solstice sun almost as if it's clicking into place you can feel the divine movement of the sun in its relationship to earth coming to this pristine divine moment in time so i'm going to give you a minute or two just to experience this the sun coming to its exact solstice point 
and all of the lights and all of the codes that will stream into you at that moment. So really tune in and let yourself have this full experience of the solstice sun and all that it wants to send you at this time. I guess that was the end of that. Okay, Rama, tell everybody what we're going to play now. Thank you, Don. Or Doug, I think that Thank was. Thank you. Um, this is um, Amanda Ellis talking about the energies of the 1212 portal. And... Popping the balloons of distraction and defeat. Here we go. Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon. Good evening. Whenever it is that you are tuning into this video, a very warm welcome. My name is Amanda Ellis and everybody is very welcome here, whether you're new or whether you are a returning subscriber. So let's get into today's video. We're going to be having a look at the energy of the week ahead, particularly with the focal point of the new moon in Sagittarius, which also happens to be taking place around the 1212 portal. So we're going to be pulling some cards, getting some guidance from the guides, in particular Archangel Metatron and Archangel Uriel are here. Um, and and I'm just going to get straight into it today. Okay, so, right, let's start then with the 1212 energy um, and a little look at the numerology of that as well. And then I'm going to pull some cards in terms of what I feel might be arising with regards to that number portal. Then we will also be looking at the new moon energy itself, which sort of sits on top of it. Uh, so let's start first with the 1212 energy. So the 12th day of the 12th month of 2023 adds up numerologically to a 13 vibration. If you add one and three together, we get the energy of four. Uh, four can be linked into the energy of Uranus, which is expect the unexpected. So there may be some sudden changes taking place, uh, things that we don't see coming, things that we see flying through the air. And in particular, I'm going to be talking about that because Sagittarius, of course, is the, has the symbolism of the centaur and the archer with the bow and the arrow. So we're going to be looking at the energy of the arrowhead, the energy of air, but absolutely what is traveling through the air, whether that be words, whether it be energies, whether it be viruses, whether it be um, all, all sorts of other things that it could potentially be. But let's just stick with the numerology to start with. So we've got two numbers I want to look at, 13 and 4. So as I say, 4 is linked into sudden change, Uranus, and 13 is the energy of rebirth. 
um, which of course comes after a sort of a death energy. So it feels as though we've all been confronted with having to let something go through 2023. This might be a continuing process, but it feels as though we're getting nearer to the rebirth moment, which of course also is what Christmas brings to us a moment of rebirth. So uh, powerful, powerful energies this week with this 1212 energy and also the new moon in to- on top. Now, I will say before I get to read the cards specifically, uh, I was just shuffling the lunar tarot deck uh, off camera and three cards fell out, which I was about to put back into the deck, but I thought they're really interesting. And this whole thing about expect the unexpected not necessarily maybe for this week, but maybe in the run-up towards Christmas or New Year, we have the potential energy of a leader in our midst because we have the Hierophant. Hold on, let's start with this card. We have the Hierophant and we also have the King of Cups, but then we have the energy of Three of Swords, which in this deck we have the word grief. So... This could be a physical person that may be about to pass. It could be, it could be that, absolutely. King of Cups and the Hierophant together is a leader uh, with uh, grief and an ending. And if we look at that King of Cups, actually, in this deck, he is silhouetted by that very big moon behind him. If it's not that, it's the ending, the ending of a dream, an ideology, a belief system, something we thought was good or true or something that we leaned on, something that we believed in that is being shown in a different light, is coming to an end in some way. So shall I just pull a fourth card actually to go with those three and then we're going to move on because I was just slightly intrigued why they did fall out and I wanted to honour the fact that they had. So is there any other message please to go with this change and ending okay it's a card just flown out change and ending which come is coming in around governance we've got the king of wands leadership has just fallen out of the deck as well so there seems to be change of leadership this could just be somewhere in terms of a specific country or if not that it's the baton being passed energetically to a new energy. I can't see the divine feminine in this this spread. It's a very masculine spread. Uh, the three of swords, the hierophant, the king of cups and the king of wands. You see the hierophant is sometimes depicted as a female in other decks, but here we've got it as a masculine energy. So we've got the three masculine energies. Sorry, I'm just realizing, uh, because those of you that follow me on Instagram and Facebook will know that this thing about the three kings, 
and realising what's behind me on the wall up there. The three kings, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We travel so far. Following wonder star. Yeah. So it could be that, that it's the return of that energy, those type of kings. And remember the three wise men were versed in esoteric knowledge, astrology. Is it saying that that could be returning as something else ends around leadership? I would like to think so. Anyway, I'm going to leave those cards just there because they're intriguing me and more might come from them later on in this reading. So that's just from the numbers, okay, the 1212 portal. Now let's have a look at the new moon in Sagittarius energy. And before I pull any cards, I'd just like to tell you about some imagery that I received today around it. So I'm just going to close my eyes so I can fully remember what I was shown, which effectively was a sky filled with um, balloons or pockets of something that was to be popped. I don't believe the balloons are literal. They are symbolic. And the sky filled with these balloons represented an assault, but there is a countenance to this, which is positive, so bear with me. The balloons represented an assault, lots of balloons coming, and inside the balloons were different energies, which were challenging and difficult. And our job as the arrowhead, the Sagittarian bow and arrow, the archer, our job as the arrowhead is to pop these different balloons in the sky. What is within the balloons are energies such as, and I've written them down, narcissism, I can't say it, narcissism, uh, negative attack, psyops, agendas, viruses, virtually everybody I know, slight exaggeration, but a lot of people I know are unwell at the moment, a lot of viruses around, and thoughts. So, an information I'm hearing, misinformation. So just imagine you're walking through life and you've got all of these sort of pockets and bubbles and balloons in the air with all of these destructive energies in them coming our way, trying to thwart the rebirth, the new earth, the Christ light, the highest timeline that we wish to be on. And our job this week is to pop as many bubbles as we can. And once popped, they self-destruct, they disintegrate, they are transmuted to light. They don't rain down their negative contents onto anything else or anybody else they are able to be dissipated. The elements can also help this, which is why there is a lot of gales and storms and wind and rain clearing the air, 
clearing the atmosphere, clearing the astral as well. Because what I'm being shown is that these balloons are emanating from the lower astral realms. It's as though there is a gateway that's been opened, which is allowing them through. It's sort of similar to something like uh, the solar bursts that we get from the sun, uh, the CMEs, um, these blasts of high intensity, um, solar flares that we get coming to Earth, which can be actually very positive and can bring in an enormous amount of light and upgrade. It might make us feel a little bit wobbly and all over the place and our physical body might not understand it, but it can be very beneficial. But what I'm seeing is the opposite energy to that, which is coming in from the lower astral and blowing into the world. Now, the good news is that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Forewarned is to be whatever the expression is. (laughs) Humor also is a very good way of popping these bubbles. Now, because the point is that these bubbles, these balloons absolutely are happening at a collective level, but they're also happening at a very individual level. People coming at us for whatever reason. Um, goodness knows there are so many reasons why people can be triggered or not like somebody or try to take somebody down or just even though you think people mean well, actually they don't or there's sort of an underlying energy. And it's a form of attack. So what we do this week is we play a bit of a game is what Metatron is saying. You see it as a bit of a game and you have to be lighthearted about it. Bringing an energy of heaviness, um, an ultra defense isn't that helpful. Staying in a more playful, a joyful state where we pop these balloons is far more effective. I'm being shown like an old-fashioned computer game, something like Pac-Man, but it's that type of energy that we need to be in. We're all in this very stimulated, uh, stimulated and simulated universe at the moment. One thing I wasn't sure what I wanted to mention in this video, but I will because it's a good example at a collective level, is we know how much programming there is in our society, whether that be through advertisements, whether it be through television shows, whether it be through music, whether absolutely it comes via Hollywood. And increasingly, as Hollywood's role diminishes and its power diminishes, and that will continue, we're sort of going from one frying pan into a bigger fire. The rise of Netflix, as an example, is can be positive. There are some nice films on there, but there are also some other stuff which is absolutely programmed. Have any of you caught um, something that's going on which is a film that is about to come out on Netflix. Let me just get the name of it. Uh, And Barack Obama, I believe it's his film company that he set up with his wife. I think it's his first film that's going to be released on Netflix. It's a disaster film. 
is called Leave the World Behind, based on the 2020 novel by Ruman Allen. It's the first fictional movie from the Obama's production company. Um, effectively, what it does is show a communication blackout and the um, upheaval that comes from that. So I'm just trying to find the best article to read to you. Um, you can obviously look it up yourself, but Obama was has been involved in the script and um, heavily involved in the production of this. And if you look up what it's actually about, it's pretty frightening. It's a frightening scenario. But it starts with this communication blackout, the grid going down, as I have been talking about in various videos, and then a uh, a coup taking place. So a coup taking place, like a takeover type energy and the, the destruction of society in many ways. Anyway, we don't want to get too much into that because what we need to do is get our arrowhead out, okay? Uh, this was actually sent to me by one of you from, I believe this is from, um, the American Southwest. Thank you very much, Trisha, that sent me this amongst other goodies in a box. It's an ancient arrowhead from the American Southwest. And what we do when we see a piece of propaganda or programming coming in, I don't want to get into the whole Obama attack energy here. It's not what I'm about, but I did. It was the first thing I saw this morning when I woke up on uh, X. I, I saw that and I thought, hmm, I'm seeing that for a reason. We pop that with the balloon. What do we mean by that? As light workers, we are very powerful people. We either feed the fear and we feed the darkness by gobbling it up as much as we possibly can, uh, watching the film, for example, over and over again, telling everybody about it. I know I just have, but I sort of have to, to be able to pop the balloon. <laughs> um, or we pop it in terms of manifesting in a lack of success for that project. Because over and above the fact that actors have been played, have been paid, interesting I said played, to be in it, it is absolutely a classic example of a piece of predictive programming. So if we can pop the predictive programming and make it less successful, well, we're going to have a better end result, aren't we? Because we know that when something is out there and everybody's invested in it, then it grows and mushrooms and can become reality. Uh, that's just one example. Okay. There's lots of things we could have chosen to talk about as an example, but that's the one that I wanted to bring in today. Uh, as I say, if we just refresh the memory in terms of the other things that were given to me today in terms of these energies within the bubbles, we've got the energy of narcissism, which is definitely on the rise. Uh, pop in that, pop in the narcissism bug bubble, uh, negative attack, which can take so many different forms. PSYOPs, agendas, but viruses is the other one I wanted to mention as much as I can anyway here on YouTube. Um, again, we're in uh, virus season. As I say, lots of people unwell at the moment. And okay, so the analogy I'm going to give you is this. 
So I'm about to travel to Yorkshire to see my family. I'm going to be on a train for basically 12, at least 12 hours there and back with God knows how many other people sneezing, coughing, all the rest of it. The likelihood of somebody being on that train with something is extremely high. Uh, now I can either go onto that train thinking, uh, the air is filled with these little pockets and viruses and they're coming at me. Or I can be there in quite a playful mode and just pop the bubbles as I see them, okay, as I sense them. In fact, what Metatron's saying is what you can do is you can get on the train and just do a great big pop before you even get, get into, into, into the train. The whole, uh, carriage, you pop the, um, you pop the any any potential virus that is there, and that would be true if you were, I don't know, in a, a restaurant or a concert or anywhere where there's a large gathering of people. So can you see that that energy is far more playful, it's far more proactive, it's not coming from a place of, oh my God, fear, it's just coming from a place of, I know it's there, I'm going to deactivate any potential threat that is around me, whether that be in a form of virus, whether it be in the form of mind control, propaganda or anything else. So a bit of a heavy, uh, heavy message to start with guys but that is what I was told to tell you okay so think about yourselves now as the arrowhead okay remember Sagittarius uh, the centaur half man half horse he has the arrow he has the bow what are you going to do with what where are you shooting this arrow and for what purpose you see, the other thing that's very important is when we're trying to disarm and deactivate lower energies, toxic energies, we do so from a place of love. Put it this way, in the old days, this would have had something like poison on the end of it, maybe. Maybe it might have killed you. Whereas the arrows that we're sending out are to do with deactivating, not killing, not producing more poison, more toxicity into our world, because that's just going to grow the whole mushroom of fear and negativity and darkness. So it's a bit like I believe that the Galactics, one of their jobs is to deactivate nuclear arsenal at a point when it was, if it was to be used. And this has been well documented through the centuries um, that this has happened, that the warheads have become defunct or haven't worked or have malfunctioned. Um, can't remember the name of the guy. He'll fill me in. I'm sure I've mentioned him before in the 1980s in Russia. Let me just pause the camera so I can tell you what he's called. Stanislav Petrov, yeah. Okay, so he was somebody who was able to neutralize an attack that was potentially uh, incoming, so they didn't react to it. You know the story, don't you? So it was flashing up on Russian screens that there was a missile coming in from wherever it was, America or wherever, and he 
it was his decision that stopped Russia from firing back. Uh, he, he, he understood that it was probably a malfunction of the computer, which it was. Uh, he neutralized via his mental decision. But equally, there have also been examples where the actual warheads have been neutralized. So this is really what I'm trying to say, that your job is to neutralize negative energy coming in. And you do so with the bow and arrow given to you this new moon in Sagittarius. So use that wisely. Okay, let's get to some other cards now. Let's see what else wants to come through today. I'm going to use the 13 moon oracle cards by Ariel Spilsbury, um, particularly because this... Uh, 1212 portal adds up to a 13. So let's see what cards want to come out from this particular deck. Okay. So new moon in Sagittarius. What energy are we looking at in addition to anything that I've already said? So we have a very powerful card. Let me just read it before I show it to you. It says catalyze. It says transform. Ignite, reveal, burn away, awaken. We have the energy of lightning. Um, lightning, beautiful card. Isn't that powerful? Really, really powerful. And it feels as though it goes very nicely with this spray that I wanted to show you. This was the one that I'd chosen for today, which is the Archangel Uriel energy. Can you see how that matches completely the colour tone that we've got here? And I realise now, and I honestly had not appreciated this until I sat down and looked back at the camera, that of course the colours in the flowers I've chosen are very much these as well. The oranges, the reds, the crimsons, and that big white light coming in as well. So we have the sacred tool of lightning and lightning is power. There's nothing like a storm to clear up, to clear the energy. So it may very well be that we have um, storms that are rippling around the world. This 1212 portal, a new moon in Sagittarius. If it's not uh, a physical storm in terms of the sky, it's definitely a storm in another form. What do I mean by that? Uh, let's see. What do I mean by that? Let's pull one more card. What goes with the energy of the tool of lightning? Okay, we've got harmonize. We've got pattern, center, manifestation and structure. Okay, because what was coming to me was, let's look at this one first, that the lightning to me is also to do with flashes of inspiration, ingenuity, illumination. It's ideas. It's the mind. It's clarity coming. But it's, it's, you're more able to be able to think clearly and strategize whatever needs to happen in your life if you've cleared away the dross. And that's what I mean by these bubbles, these um, pockets of energy that we need to just be clearing. We need to be clearing so we can actually see what it is that we have already within our hands. What I mean by that is what is within our power to change, to manifest. This is the card of manifestation, uh, to bring in 
to our being. This is a powerful card. If you look at the energy of that, it's a powerful card. Um, let me read what it says about that card, actually. So the card of harmonize. Uh, this is a deck that does not have any numbers. <laughs> My pet peeve. Am I going to have to turn the camera off? No, I found it. Okay. It's, so it says, uh, this card is a call to harmony. Whatever is presently dissonant in your life is being invited into the harmonizing effects of inward reflection and focus. Um, what in your life is asking for the gift of harmony? Uh, interestingly, one of you this morning, I put a little video up this morning on Instagram or yesterday, and they said, oh, you look much more harmonious. And I, I sort of thought, well, that's a strange question. That's a strange thing for somebody to write because did I look in a state of disharmony before? Maybe I did. Maybe it's all part of the jigsaw piece. Maybe we don't realize when we're in a state of disharmony. And then when we come back into harmony, it's more noticeable. So maybe I'm ahead of the curve, guys. <laughs> maybe that's what we're being invited to do, to be in a more harmonious state with ourselves is what I'm hearing, with ourselves, with different parts of ourselves. Um, I was thinking about the Heart Squad videos that I do. I've done a lot of them over the years. And I always remember a comment that came in from somebody. And I can't remember which Heart Squad member it was that I channeled, whether it was John Denver or the latest one, Marilyn. But anyway, this person said, well, I didn't bother to watch because... I'll use Marilyn as an example. What's Marilyn got to do with me? And the more I felt into that energy, if you watch my Heart Squad videos, you'll know there's always a collective reason for why I'm doing it. There's always a message within it that's absolutely for you. But what's Marilyn got to do with me? What's John got to do with me? What's Prince got to do with me? What's any of them got to do with me? It's this inability to understand that we are all connected, that we are all one. And actually, particularly when people are on a bigger stage and are well known, they've become well known for a reason because at some level of being, they represent an aspect of us that either wishes we could paint like that or sing like that or act like that or, I don't know, whatever, create like that. I wish I had that quality. That's often why we uh, put people on pedestals. I don't believe you should put people on pedestals, but it's because you see something within them that you would like to be. Um, or indeed, if you're triggered by somebody, it's because there's a wounding within yourself that is being set off by that person, that what you dislike in somebody else is often what you dislike about within yourself, although we're often unconscious about it. How did I get into all of this? It's the whole thing about disharmony and harmony and realizing that everything in our universe is there to teach us something. Um, but definitely the energy of just bringing harmony back this new moon, because new moons are about new starts. They're about new initiatives. And uh, it just feels as though we've there's considerable power available and potential this December. It can be what Mesotron is saying is the biggest springboard into 2024 if you choose to 
see it as such, but equally to clear the board in the first place. I'm being shown one of those springboards that used to absolutely terrify me as a child. I used to go to this swimming pool, have lessons, all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, the really high diving board, the likes of which, uh, you know, uh, in the Olympics, you see people diving off and doing these amazing pirouettes. But, you know, they're so high up. But what I'm being shown is a diving board like that. And you're being given the opportunity to dive um, from a really springy board to be able to achieve something magnificent, like a, like a beautiful spiral in the air or whatever it is that you're wanting to do with your life in 2024. But the point is, unless you start to pierce all of these bubbles, all of these negative energies which are around, which are around um, the steps to the board are all cluttered. It's almost like the board is just closed, you know, sorry, can't go up it. It's too dirty. It's too, uh, it's too slippery. It's too, you know, the steps haven't been maintained. It's, uh, there's no, there is, there are no steps. That's why it's important to not be frightened of any collective energy coming our way or any individual energy coming our way, uh, to try to just answer it with love. Uh, and then keep calm and carry on, as we say here, you know. So that's really a lovely, lovely message. Um, I would like at this point to use the air elemental. Okay, so let's just see what the air elemental would like to say to us today. Air. I'm aware, of course, that Sagittarius is a fire sign, which is why we've got the lightning. But I also want to bring in the energy of air because at the end of the day, lightning comes through the air. So air elemental, just cleaning the decks is what I'm hearing. Clearing the decks for the new the new year, clearing the decks for the new year. Um, what Chinese, what is the Chinese new year? What's the next animal? Because it's like I can sense it, but I don't know what it is. Hold on a minute. Chinese, excuse me, Chinese New Year 2024 is what? Um, the dragon? Is that right? Oh, okay, it's the dragon. <laughs> the dragon needs no introduction is what I'm hearing. Um, so it falls on Saturday, February the 10th, 2024. It's going to be the year of the dragon. Okay. Uh, well, dragons fly through the air, that's for sure. Um, I'm feeling as though there's going to be a lot of dragon energy next year. And I'm particularly seeing it as air dragons. Uh, also now feeling into the energy of Quan Yin, of course, who flew on the back of a dragon. So that's all to come for next year. I'll try and weave that into a 2024 reading. Anyway, let's keep keep to where we are now. Uh, let me have a look at the axes of emotion, <coughs> excuse me, that is around us right now. So these are these cards that I use from time to time that have got um, opposing or dualistic uh, words, two ends of a spectrum maybe. Okay. Right, that's perfect, actually, for Sagittarius, because from memory, Sagittarius is a mutable sign. I think I'm right in saying that. So it's the energy of flexibility. We've got the energy of adaptable and hypervigilant. So where do you fall on that axis? 
are you hypervigilant? And I would, I'm feeling the energy of rigidity with that. You know, things have to be a certain way. I'm on the lookout the whole time. I'm on a state of constant alert the whole time. Um, I'm not in a particularly relaxed state if I'm hypervigilant. Uh, also, hypervigilance to me feels as though it's twinned with the energy of fear versus I'm actually adaptable. I'm adaptable. I will go with the flow. I will, I will meet whatever comes to me in the best way that I possibly can. You see, this is the thing about the arrowhead and the energy of air. Because once you shoot the arrow, it leaves the, it leaves the, the bow. It's in the air. Yes, if you're a skilled marksman, hopefully you know where it's going. But the air, you know, if it's a windy day, the wind can take the arrow in a different way. Um, it can land somewhere maybe different or it can do something different or it can, you know, whatever. So I feel as though this thing about adaptability is important as well. Going with the flow. I mean, how many times have we said it on this channel? But really, really feeling into that now, how important it is to be adaptable. In fact, you know, and going back to the whole pre-programming in films such as this, this latest Obama thing that's going to be coming out next year. You know, I don't believe in a doomsday scenario. I don't believe that, you know, the world is about to end. I don't believe that the worst agendas that powers that were are putting out there will win. Because by nature, yes, I'm a glass half full girl, but also I'm a light worker. And also I believe in the power of love. And I believe that we didn't come here to fail. And I believe there are enough of us that can tip the balance. So um, it's important to bring in an energy of adaptability as well, though, because even if you are positive and you're a light worker, you deal with whatever cards come up at any particular year or any particular time. You just dig deep into your medicine bag, as I call it, and bring out what is needed to tackle whatever comes in in front of us. Have no fear, basically. Have no fear with whatever arises. Um, there's far too much fear and anxiety out there in terms of what could happen and not enough energy going into meeting it with... Uh, with an answer, with an answer. And the answer is always light and love and hope uh, and heart consciousness, which is the strongest energy on the planet. So whatever comes at you in terms of these bubbles, if you answer it with that, you're going to be okay. Going back to the train carriage uh, analogy, because I think it's a good one. The other thing Metatron said to me today is, Rather than sitting on in that train for 12 hours thinking, oh, God, well, you know, I'm going to be ill then, aren't I? Not that I would be like that. But he said, if that was your mindset, imagine sitting on that carriage just beaming out, basically, or, you know, positivity and light and healing energy, not to deplete yourself, but just because you've got enough maybe to give out in the first place. Um, that your energy being well and hum in harmony and whole can affect that whole carriage. Have you seen the, um, the videos that did, around, did the rounds a couple of years ago of the laughing guy on the carriage, you know, uh, and basically this guy gets onto a train carriage and he starts to laugh and everyone's sort of like, we, if it was in the 
UK, everyone's reading their paper, trying to ignore, you know, the person that's got on trying to laugh. But eventually the whole carriage is laughing because it's a higher energy. It spreads. Um, that energy of joy spreads. Joy is one of the highest frequencies we've got. It spreads. It's contagious. And then the guy who originates it, you know, starts to laughing. He just gets off the carriage and he goes onto another train. And it's just a beautiful piece of film. And um, that's what I'm being shown by Mesotron. So it's always a choice in terms of how we respond to anything. And remembering, you know, the arsenal that we have within ourselves, which is actually in terms of the medicine bag, it's full of frequencies. It's full of frequencies. Always choose the highest frequency. Okay. Um, it's interesting. On the bottom of this deck, I've just noticed we've got this card, which says the North Star, and then the polar opposite energy is Envy. Now, uh, let me just look up North Star because... The brightest star in Ursa Minor at the end of the handle of the Little Dipper, the northern axis. But the 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 northern the north star in astrology is that where your destiny is. North star astrology. It would make sense in relation to what I want to say. Um, Your North Node, I'm thinking of the North Node, Cosmic Destiny. Okay, well that's what I'm that's what I'm feeling that this card is saying anyway, whatever the astrology is. I'm feeling that those of us that are just following our destiny, following our calling, following the star, okay, this painting up here from the Christ Consciousness Deck, which has the three magi on it. We're back to the three magi. They followed the star. Um, because they believed, they just believed. Let's get the card out. They believed. Uh, others would, you know, just think, well, what the hell does that mean? It's just a star in the sky. It's a bit brighter than normal. What significance does that have? You know, the energy of en well, envy is when people haven't got what you've got in terms of your belief, your trust in something higher, a destiny, a calling, a moment, okay? These magi, they knew, they just knew and they believed and they trusted and they just upped and they left and they followed the star. Other people are envious at our ability to be able to get into that frequency, but get into it anyway, my friends. Get into it anyway. Um, also got the armor of God uh, here from the Christ Consciousness deck as well, which goes with the Magi because they didn't go unprepared. Okay, they didn't go unprepared. Um, okay, sorry, I have this message coming out from the Christ deck here. And I'll just pull the cards out. They didn't go unprepared. They they were armoured up, for want of a better word, but the armour that they were wearing was energetic. They knew they were protected because they had a mission to fulfil. Um, it was divinely orchestrated. They were protected by the divine, as are you. But 
But equally, what I'm feeling is that one of the three had some doubt, had some doubt, but took the hand of the others and followed the star. And that's rather nice to know that because sometimes these old stories, and the Magi is a good one, it is what I've just said it is, that they trusted, they followed the star, and then it can almost feel like it's unobtainable to get to that type of frequency. Whereas what I'm feeling today is that there was at least one of those magi that was still, even though they packed their bags and they left, there was still like, oh, you know, I hope this is going to work out. <laughs> I hope we are right, you know, because that's a very human thing because they were human. Um, so that's nice. The other extraordinary card that has just come out, you know, I was talking about the fact that I feel as though this uh, new moon, but really I'm talking about the rest of the year. OK, so leading up to full moon in Cancer, uh, obviously Christmas and then the new year itself. I just feel as though there's changes in leadership coming up somewhere in our world. So I've said all that. But we've got this card that just came through, which is Joseph of Amarathea. Now, Joseph of Amarathea is to do, the card says, trailblaze and innovate. Joseph of Amarathea was a leader in a different way to this older energy that feels as though it's on the way out. Whoever this, whoever these older uh, leaders are in our, I'm, I'm not necessarily meaning chronological age here, just old earth leader energy, wherever they are in our world, whatever country they exist in, they're on the way out. There's a, it feels as though it's their grief more than our grief, actually. I mean, there might be some people that are grief stricken just because they're hanging on to the old system. Uh, you know, it's the energy of better the devil, you know. So it's like, even though we don't particularly like this leader, it's all we know. So, you know, we're a bit grief stricken because they're gone because now what? Um, but this new leader represented by Joseph of Amarathea, I feel as though we've got our fourth king. And remember king here, I'm talking in terms of sovereignty, um, divine masculine energy. Joseph of Amarathea, again, he just trusted. He was the one who traveled to Avalon, to the UK. He founded the first church in, uh, in, in the British Isles. He planted the Holy Staff in, uh, Glastonbury, which flowered. Um, and it was just, it, there was no under, well, no, it's not quite right to say there's maybe no understanding, but there was no expectation would be a better word to put it, that the staff that was planted would become what it led to. Okay. It was just a process, a bit like the Magi of trusting for whatever reason, I'm being asked to travel overseas. I'm planting this staff. I know it's going to flower in some way, probably long after I've died. I'm not going to see the results of it, but I'm going to fulfill my mission. This feels important for you watching, okay? We've all got a bit of the three magi in us. We've all got a bit of the energy of Joseph of Amarathea in us. We've all got the energy of the old leaders and the new leaders because we're the bridge between the two. But what is really important is particularly with all this very fiery energy right now, okay, coming in on the back of the Sagittarian moon, 
um, that we are adaptable, that we are adaptable. I'm also hearing green eyed monster, which obviously is an energy linked into envy. Um, now, those of you that watched my advent, the first advent video that I've done, do you remember I was talking about the qualities of peridot and peridot being very good to uh, ward off envy and jealousy? So it's quite interesting that, again, we've got this message coming through again about the same thing. Um, this is the energy of the... Um, the evil eye as well. So that symbol being very powerful right now as well to maybe hang an evil eye in your home to ward off, um, to, to just to ward off negativity. Uh, lots of people, I'm picking up an energy here of people being nosy in terms of what you're doing. But again, this is collective. This is like big brother state. You know, it's like, what are you doing? What are you reading? What are you, uh, we're tracking what you're watching. We're tracking what you're saying. If you've got an Alexa in your home, I wouldn't have one personally. You know, they, they track everything that you're saying. There's a record of, you know, everything, private conversations, get rid of, get, I shouldn't say it, but get rid of them. I would be get, getting rid of them if I had one. Not that I do, because it's sold on the basis of it being a help, but it's not. There's another side to all of that. But anyway, it's just an example of the all-seeing eye, which is in our home. I mean, it's also here on our phones. So what we do is we don't go into panic. We don't go into fear. We just counteract it. We are the arrowhead. We neutralize this stuff. Okay, we neutralize this stuff. I will never be one of these people that you listen to which just gives you a whole load of fear porn with no ability to neutralize it and uh, get yourself into a higher frequency. There was uh, something I read in the paper a few days ago, some poll done in the UK, and uh, I don't know how exhaustive this poll was, but it was something along the lines of, do you feel that the UK can turn around the difficulties that we've got at the moment, something like that. And it was something like, I don't know, 65% of people said no. And I just thought, oh, for God's sake. That is so defeatist. It's so lower frequency. I shouldn't say for God's sake. I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. But I'm a human being. But it's like, come on. You know, come, of course, we can turn it around. We can turn anything around. The defeatism never won a battle. Okay, <laughs> never won a battle. And um, that's not what we are about here. So, of course, we can turn anything around. Absolutely anything. Uh, that is why Metatron showed me these bubbles in the air this morning. Okay, right. Let's just finish with a final few cards and then I will love and leave you. And uh, have we sprayed Archangel Uriel yet? I don't think we have. Let's do a little bit of Uriel. Let's see what he has to say. Um, let's, let's see what Uriel has to say. I, I really want to put him up again with this card of lightning power. Okay, I'm being shown uh, an activation and a download that is available this week. Um, it comes in via uh, the light light codes. It's coming in uh, via the crown chakra 
and it wishes to work its way down through the spine, through the chakra system. Very important that it reaches the earth. Okay. Um, what I mean by that is that I'd like you to imagine um, a, a download of light energy coming in via Archangel Uriel, coming in via your crown, and it illuminates your body and your aura. So your aura lights up like this. It lights up with this frequency, the energy of Uriel. Those of you, those of you that have got the Uriel spray, get it out, use it. Um, spray it above your head, <coughs> excuse me, and just imagine that it's flowing down your whole body. So let's just do that now. Also to hope that help those of you that haven't got the spray. So Uriel. Okay, and I'm being shown you as a tree. Okay, us as a tree. And it's as though the Uriel's light comes down over you as the tree. Actually, it's you taking shelter in the tree. Um, I know normally you wouldn't do that with lightning, but that's just what I'm being shown. This is just holy light. It's sacred light. It's light that's not going to hurt you. It comes with the ferocity and the power of lightning, but it is not <coughs> fork. It's like a flash lightning type thing down over your shoulders, down your back, through your organs, through your bones, through your skin, your hair, your joints all the way down to your knees, your ankles, your feet, your toes, into Mother Earth, rooted in power, rooted in power, rising in power, harmonized, whole, but very much like the tree, able to be flexible, able to bend, able to flow, able to move, able to let go of what it needs to let go of, the branches that need to fall, let them fall, whether they be old ideas, uh, friends, acquaintances that no longer match, let them go. And then just feel this energy of strength coming in, which is going to bring in the rebirth. Yeah. Okay. Final card. Still a final card. Let's go to the lunar tarot. Final card for the people watching. Okay, it's just flown out. What is it? It's the nine of pentacles. It's the energy of abundance. Nice. Nice. <laughs> so you as the tree now have a branch or will have branches full of fruit. Um, ripeness, potential, abundance. Look, it's set against the moon. What does abundance mean to you this moon time? What are you wishing for? What are you hoping for? What are you putting into action? And on the bottom of the deck, we have the eight of pentacles, which says attainment. The two A's, abundance and attainment. What are you going to work towards achieving? Abundance, what are you, what are you putting into it to make it work? 
Uh, we've also got our first queen appearing towards the bottom of the deck as well, and it's the Queen of Cups. And what's interesting about this depiction of the Queen of Cups is she's an older woman. She's got grey hair. She's substantially older than the queens that typically are represented in a lot of tarot decks, which I really like. Never noticed before that this Queen of Cups is old, older. Um, but with, with, with her elder years comes great wisdom, comes great softness. Um, and it's the energy of support. I really like the feel of this particular queen and this depiction of this queen. Um, that feels as though it's an energy for 2024. What else can I pick up with regards to her? She feels very new, although she's very old. Oh, okay. This links into another card in the Christ Consciousness deck. Those of you that have got it. This is the card of, uh, it's, it's the energy of the old lady. Where is it? Uh, I kept this painting actually. It's out in my hallway. I love it. Uh, it's to do with flexibility and adaptability. This one is called New Vintage. It says, be open minded. It comes from a passage in the New Testament, which is about you can't put new wine into old skins. I'm talking about old wine skins. And we did the reverse on this card. We decided to paint an older lady with an older skin. But the trick was she is still youthful uh, because she has drunk off the new wine. What is the new wine? The new wine is new ideas. Uh, new, new, new ideas, being open to change, being adaptable, not being stuck in your ways, not being rigid, um, being open. And so that's what keeps her young. It's what keeps her agile. It's what keeps her mind active. And here she is in all of her glory. And absolutely, that's her energy here with this Queen of Cups. So we've got to be like her. We have to be open-minded. Um, we have to be open-minded. But you see, the thing about the elderly lady here, going back to the, the bubbles and the balloons that I was showing you earlier, which we have to sort of fight off, is that she's loving, she's open, she's wise, but she also can see the truth. Okay. She's not, nobody's fool. Okay, so you can't sort of, um, you can't manipulate her. You can't try, smoke and mirrors isn't going to work with this lady because she's seen it all. She's done it all. She knows, she's wise basically. Um, So she's not naive. There's no naivety here. She knows what she has to do to keep herself spiritually clean. Uh, whole, harmonious, happy, but she's open and she's willing to listen to people, but she will not be taken advantage of. That's a lovely, lovely uh, energy coming in for 2024. So, yeah. Um, a crystal I also wanted to give you, probably linked into the fact lots of people are a bit unwell at the moment, um, Moss Agate. Green Moss Agate was shouting at me today. Very good for um, the immune system. It's also a very good uh, clearing stone as well. So I wanted just to give you Moss Agate towards the end. Okay, guys, lots of love. I will leave it there for now. 
And I will be back next weekend with the uh, second and last Advent video, which is going to be focusing on the energy of joy and love. And then I'm hoping to also do the ancestral video that I've promised. And then we will be into Christmas week and we'll be doing something linked into that. And obviously also the full moon in Cancer, which is on the 26th, I believe. Yeah, the 26th. Okay. Lots of love, everyone. Take care. Thank you very much for watching. Please like and share the video if so called. Bye-bye for now. Bye. So, Rama, what are we doing next here? That was really something top full. Rama's going to send these things to Penny, and if you want to listen to them again, you will be able to do that. Um, the story from Um. Okay. Where is this? Yeah, I gotta look for the uh <laughs> Okay, we're just looking around here. Hmm. Um, where is it? Sacred space in the human power of resonance. You gotta say it much louder because I don't see it here, so you say it. Oh. Read it to everybody. Sacred space in the healing power of resonance. And read the rest. Best-selling author and researcher Freddie Silva reveals how ancient sacred sites and real crop circles contain an energy code that can be transmitted at a distance to heal organisms, including people, a concept found in resonance therapy and radionics. Dr. Reif. Oh, what's his first name again? Wilhelm Reif. Dr. Wilhelm Reich. Oh, yes. Here we go. All right. How many minutes, Rama? Forty-six. Forty-six minutes. Let's see how far we get. Resonance is the key to everything. When two organisms share the same resonance, information is exchanged between them. Understand this, and you'll come to know what ancient temples can do for you and to you. It's one of the great secrets of the mysteries, and it's what lies behind sacred sites and the healing power of resonance. As humans, we can't help being attracted and distracted by the visual beauty of ancient temples and other sacred places. 
We marvel at their physical characteristics, admire their ornamentation, stand in awe of their elegance. And yet behind their outward appearance, there's a lot more going on. In ancient Egypt, for example, the temple was not regarded as a physical object, but looked upon as a living entity, to the point where prayers were conducted at dawn by priests who walked every room, chanting, as though rousing a sleeping being from slumber. Their architects describe how temples were designed for times when people lost their connection to the elemental world around them. The temple was there as a reminder of their godliness without religious overtones. You could say the temples are the original self-help centers, particularly when they share a rich history of healing. The idea that sacred sites have curative properties is an ancient one. For thousands of years, people have visited these temples to interact with their energy, particularly those in need of improving their well-being. Such a long tradition obviously proves there is something about them that works. Even today, mothers still take their sick children to these standing stones and pass them through the ring seven times, in accordance with the local legend. It's like a Neolithic version of a CAT scan and a lot cheaper. It is true that this type of stone chosen for this temple is naturally radioactive, just enough to trigger the body's immune system and eradicate harmful bacteria. So these pilgrims, both ancient and modern, were right. There is an invisible technology at work behind the scenes. Similar miracles have been taking place for over 4,000 years at Santuario de Shimayo, a site once used by the Anasazi, who came here to use its healing mud. Although it is now a highly Christianized site, the efficacious soil is still sought after, and judging by the number of crutches discarded inside the church, clearly it still works. This healing ability is also true of sacred springs. These are the original sacred sites. Later, they were adapted into holy wells, and each well is associated with a specific cure. Some work for the eyes, others for liver, limbs, even rickets. One famous holy well lies beneath Chartres Cathedral. And long before this magnificent building was erected, even before the times of Druids, people undertook pilgrimage here to drink the curative water. After all, there is a good reason why this is called the well of the strong. The effectiveness of the water is due in part to its dissolved mineral content, as well as the electromagnetic properties that flow through the location and its geology, making for a very potent combination. Out of the thousands of case histories of people's interaction with sacred sites, perhaps my favorite is the story of Englishman John Trelisle, born in 1640 with twisted limbs. For the first 16 years of his life, he was partially paralyzed. But after experiencing a prophetic dream, he was instructed to crawl around the particular holy well three times, then bathe in its waters and sleep above the underground stream. In the following days, he regained strength and was completely cured of the knotted sinews of his limbs. In fact, John went on to enlist in the king's army where he served gallantly for many years. When you enter a temple, what you're actually walking into is an invisible world of harmonics, resonance, and subtle energies. 
When combined, these elements affect the human body to an extraordinary degree, because both the human temple and the constructed temple are built upon the same laws, and that is the laws of nature. If you look at the human body, it's actually not very physical at all. It's a series of atoms and molecules spiraling at enormous speed, giving the illusion of solid appearance. But squeeze all the air out, and what you'd be left with would fit in a teaspoon. Then there's DNA, the essence of who we are. At its core, its chemical bonds are constructed from two geometric shapes, the hexagram and the pentagram. Expressed numerically, that's a ratio of six to five. This ratio is also inherent in the temple we come from, the Earth. The reason why life exists here and on no other part of the solar system is due to the unusual rotation of the Earth. The pole completes a full cycle every 25,920 years. While this is taking place, the Earth's axis tilts four degrees over the course of 21,000 years. The ratio between the two is again six to five. Thus, the Earth is mirrored inside the human body. This correspondence establishes a direct relationship between the two, and probably lies at the heart of why we are drawn to geometric forms. Such harmonic resonance defines everything around us, even in the subatomic world. It is the underlying language of nature, the very essence of life. And it's particularly obvious when it manifests in the simplest single-cell organisms called diatoms. This resonance is also the foundation of sound, for when sound is made visible and photographed, it displays the very same harmonic forms, proving that vibration is an essential component in the process of manifestation. These scientific observations are actually fundamental beliefs in every ancient culture, and they incorporated these concepts in their sacred art. To them, actions taking place in the physical follow the rules and principles of harmonic resonance taking place in the non-physical. The temple builders apply these rules in a practical way, because sacred geometry epitomizes the perfection of nature, what they call the domain of the gods. Ancient architects encoded these harmonics invisibly in the blueprint of temples. It is disguised in the way the elements relate to each other. The temples feel right because their proportions are based on natural laws. It is part of the reason why sacred places affect our senses. Their harmonics interact with our subconscious. They remind us of this perfection that we strive for in our lives. Because every geometric form is an expression of an underlying consciousness, each shape was observed in nature and deliberately chosen to generate an environment for each temple that induces a desired effect. One excellent example is Stonehenge. As far as the average troglodyte is concerned, Stonehenge is a jumble of large rocks, but underneath its skin, every form of sacred geometry lies concealed. Each shape defining the placement of its arcs and circles. The builders of sacred space also understood that intent is an energy in itself, a view now accepted throughout the enlightened scientific community. 
So when a group of people enter Stonehenge with the intent to work with, say, healing and the application of the life force, that intent triggers the only parts of Stonehenge that are defined by the pentagram. When another group works with sounds, on the other hand, they will invoke the geometry associated with sound, the seven-sided heptagram, and thus the entire original site. The same idea was employed in Gothic cathedrals by people following the exact same recipe, and it is not by accident that visitors to places like Charter are significantly moved inside these buildings above any other design of the period. The effect has little to do with religious belief and more to do with the interaction between the body and the resonant environment. To prove this, experiments by scientists in Bulgaria found that building hospital rooms shaped like pentagrams improved the rate of health. Rooms shaped like trapezoids improved schizophrenia and spherical shapes improved the coagulation of blood. Our ancestors also understood that the energy of an object does not stop at its physical boundary, that all forms possess a radiant energy field. And we call this field by different names. Aura, resonance, radiance, morphic field, chi. Regardless, it is a field that exists around an organism where information is stored. You could call it the organism's business card or soul. When the energy of two organisms intersects and their resonance is sympathetic with one another, a bond takes place and information is transferred between the two. We know this process by another common name, love. Since ancient times, people were known to have the innate capacity to fully engage with this invisible universe, with the source hence the term sorcerer. The problem is that at some point over the course of time on Earth, things go very, very wrong. Ego takes over. You begin to associate with the material world to a point where you become disconnected from the source. In such a state, the orderly geometry of your atoms and molecules becomes disorderly. You enter a state of duality, a separation between physical and spiritual. To put it simply, you are no longer at ease with your environment. Instead, you have become diseased. To remedy the problem, the temple builders created environments to remind people of their state of perfection and bring them into a state of balance. In fact, a phrase written inside certain temples states that the temple is there to, quote, transform the person into a god, into a bright star. In other words, the temple was built to alter that which has become imperfect into something perfect. At the temple of Edfu, they even made a joke about it. And it reads, we will keep building temples until people recognize the temple in themselves. Let us now look at what makes temples energetically active and why they were looked upon as living beings. First, all sacred sites, without exception, are located on magnetic hotspots. Decades of research in Britain reveals how hundreds of its main ancient sites are sited along the path of two of the Earth's major electromagnetic pathways. 
Another major study, this time in northern France, was conducted by an electrical engineer named Pierre Moreau. Interestingly, he was skeptical that ancient megaliths held any special powers, that such things were figments of the New Age imagination. Moreau concluded his painstaking scientific work by admitting that the sites are alive. And structures such as dolmens behave like resonators, many ears like coils, and stone circles like batteries. And what's more, these supposedly dead lumps of stone actually received, stored, and emitted electrical pulses at regular intervals. He essentially validated all the world myths describing standing stones as living entities, as sensitive beings who are congenial, and yet, like us, are easily offended. We can now understand why people use the very same sacred sites to heal all manner of ailments, even to facilitate childbirth for thousands of years. Until recently, fertility dances were performed in Northern Europe, in which women would slide the stones between their legs to improve conception. A few years ago, I undertook an experiment to monitor the energy field of a sacred mound in England. This animation shows the mound from above, and the ripples of energy measured every two weeks over the course of one year. Red is positive or masculine polarity, blue is negative or female polarity. Shown in sequence, these ripples moved as though the site is breathing in and out. But what amazed me most was the spatial relationship between the ripples. Each space is defined by the very sacred geometry that defines the orbits of planets on organic life forms on Earth. So this humble sacred site emits electromagnetic pulses that shift according to seasons, to solar and lunar impulses, even the Earth's rotating core. Bear in mind that a small change in the local electromagnetic field is all it takes to alter information received by human DNA. Mounds, pyramids and underground chambers were designed to shield certain frequencies and generate an artificial energetic environment within. At Delphi and the Great Pyramid, for example, the base resonance is 7.8 Hertz, which happens to be the brainwave frequency of healers and psychics when they are working. So when you interact with sacred places, these specially designed environments behave like living organisms whose resonance alters the information received by your DNA. And in doing so, they act on the imperfections inside the body, reshaping them, enabling a person to achieve optimum health mentally, spiritually, and under the right circumstances, physically. There is one more element that creates a healing environment in sacred places and it's one we take for granted, and that is water. All sacred sites are placed above or adjacent to springs, underground streams, holy wells, aquifers, and other bodies of water. Water is the fundamental element in every temple. The relationship between water, electromagnetism, healing, and sacred sites has been known for centuries. In Celtic times, 
holy people founded oracles in churches at locations where they observed animals choosing a certain spot on the land to give birth. The same observation has been made by dowsers who saw how sick animals are attracted to hot spots where water and electromagnetism combine and generate an invisible vortex. Animals will not behave like this unless there is a direct benefit to their well-being. The English dowser Guy Underwood made hundreds of careful studies of ancient sites and Gothic cathedrals, and his drawings prove the direct relationship between the size and placement of the structures to invisible paths of energy. Science has also shown that water at holy places possesses greater properties of resonance. It can absorb a greater frequency spectrum of light, and when observed under the microscope, holy water shows hundreds of spinning vortices as though this water is truly alive. The curative properties of this living water were known to doctors in cities like London even in the 19th century because they regularly sent their patients 200 miles by train to sacred springs to be cured of tumours or eye problems and other afflictions they could not cure. When you build a temple over a spring or flowing underground water, the site attracts electromagnetic pathways as shown in this image made by a magnetometer. The resonant environment inside the stone circle behaves like a vortex. And this sets up a unique correspondence with the human body, because the body is electromagnetic, and it is composed of two-thirds water, part of which is in the blood, which itself requires a vorticular motion to move it through the body's arteries and veins. It demonstrates once again how the temple and the human body are mirrors of each other. Interestingly, when water spins, it does two curious things. First, when it slows down a hole, it takes on an angle of 19.47 degrees, which happens to be the angle at which energy is released from the core of the earth. This concept was not lost on temple builders, who applied this angle to reference temples to each other on the landscape. Secondly, when it spins, water generates its own electromagnetic fields, enabling water to record information. In other words, it makes water have a memory. The funny thing is, this was already known to Egyptians in 8000 BC. The Egyptian god of wisdom, Jehuti, wrote, this is the property of our medicine into which the previous body of the spirits are reduced. Now at first, one part thereof shall tinge ten parts of this perfect body, then one hundred, and then a thousand, and so on, infinitely on. And by how much more often the medicine is dissolved, by so much more it is increased in virtue. Today, of course, we call this process homeopathy. You take four drops of a solution, diluted a million times, and spin it, and the water retains the memory of the original solution. The idea that a highly diluted solution can retain the essence of its original was proved 40 years ago by Jacques Benveniste, whose experiments were replicated in no less than five independent laboratories in Europe. That water is capable of remembering the resonance of living energy was further developed by Edward Bach, 
whose plant tinctures still carry his name and provide healing to millions around the world. But water can also be shaped by the energy field of a human being, specifically its focused intent. Remember, the human body is two-thirds water. You add its electromagnetic field plus intention and you have a very, very powerful tool. This was the idea proposed by Japanese scientist Masuru Emoto, whose controlled experiments clearly show the influence of human intent. Here, he shows the crystalline structure of ordinary water and the same water after it comes into contact with a photograph capturing the moment a young child imagines a positive thought. In another notable experiment, the same water was placed in two vials and given to two people. One was asked to write the words love, appreciation with focused intent on the label. The other wrote, you make me sick, I will kill you. The results speak for themselves. It demonstrates the power of focused intent and the capacity of resonance to exchange information between two organisms to the point where another organism can be drastically altered and improved. Our story now takes a dramatic turn. For many years I've wondered, what if a person lives too far from a temple? Can the resonant energy of a sacred site be tapped at a distance? And the answer is yes. And how I came about this method will surprise you. It just requires an open mind. In my first book, Secrets in the Fields, I outlined the science and evidence proving that the genuine crop circles appearing across the face of the earth in past decades incorporate identical principles used in temples. They even contain information, part of which is a code that is capable of being transferred to living organisms. In fact, I went up so far as to state that these mysterious symbols are the new temples. They certainly incorporate identical encoded geometric harmonics common to ancient temples. They reference each other as well as temples on the landscape using that 19.47 degree common to water and the earth. The visual aspect of crop circles follows the same harmonic laws of sound. And like sacred places, they contain a measurable electromagnetic field that differs significantly on the outside than inside. And when this resonant field interacts with seeds, it has been proven to increase vitality in plants, invigorating seed growth by as much as two to one compared to ordinary seeds. And the crop circles are also manifesting using the same vortex motion of energy found in nature and sacred sites. And just like sacred sites, water is fundamental to crop circles. They are always found beside sources of water or above aquifers. This infrared image shows the crop circle, how it has displaced millions of gallons of groundwater. In blind tests, it was discovered that the water from inside non-man-made crop circles was potentized up to 136% above control samples. If so, what could this be doing to people who visit these modern temples? 
because all of these elements, electromagnetism, water and spin, are common to the human body. Experiments monitoring people's brainwaves inside crop circles using EEG devices show a measurable increase in right brain activity compared to normal environments. The same effect also takes place inside Gothic cathedrals. But perhaps the most startling evidence pointing to an interaction with the human biological field is how they contain a signature frequency range of 260 to 320 MHz. In the early 70s, the body was found to be composed of a range of frequencies, much like a radio stations along the dial. But there was a noticeable range where there exist no stations, and that range is 260 to 320 Hz. So it seems that crop circles are filling in the missing frequencies of the human body and upping the frequency tenfold. It suggests there is a definitive interaction taking place between the two organisms, even more so when you consider that one particular crop circle references the points in the DNA molecule that are not coded for protein. Since both the human body and crop circles are electromagnetic organisms, the implications are extraordinary. Consider, for example, that changes in the local bioelectromagnetic field can be transmitted to DNA. And in laboratory experiments in China, it has already been shown that genetic information can be successfully transmitted from one organism to the other using this technique. Indeed, crop circles are living organisms. Just like temples and trees, they possess a measurable energy field that expresses itself in several forms. Radial and concentric, like ripples in a pond. The latter is identical to the energy field shown earlier, that morphic field where an organism's information is stored. And this information is also expressed with geometry, the language of living nature. Remember how human DNA is also geometric and how when two sympathetic geometries interact, an exchange of information takes place between organisms. Now we begin to see how crop circles could share information with people who interact with them and why we react to crop circles with such strong emotions. Since crop circles manifest along the same paths of magnetic energy as nearby sacred sites, many of which already come with a rich tradition of healing, it's quite possible that crop circles carry the same potential. As it turns out, there are hundreds of case histories demonstrating this. In one case, shortly before an osteopath presented the lecture, he walked through the audience and handed out copies of this image without saying anything about it or what he was about to discuss. By the time he returned to the front of the room, a woman in the audience held up her hand and said to him that she had suffered from acute arthritis for many years, but after looking at the image of this crop circle, the pain in her joints suddenly and permanently went away. To which he replied, Welcome to an evening of crop circles and healing. <laughs> Another situation involved an 82-year-old woman called Margaret, who too had suffered pain in her joints for 15 years to the point where she required assistance to lie down and get up. One day, 
her regular helpers took her for a picnic inside a crop circle that had appeared near her home. Margaret was very skeptical of these things, believing them to be clever pranks by people, but she went anyway. As they were about to sit down in the field, the two helpers moved forward to assist Margaret, but she brushed them away, saying she wanted to do this by herself. They watched her sit and lie down unassisted for the first time in over a decade, and then rise to her feet, all from being inside a crop circle. Then there was the hay fever sufferer who walked a mile into a canola field to which she was allergic, who visited a crop circle and ever since has been cured of a condition. One of the more dramatic cases involves a young man in America named Ethan, who was diagnosed with a 99% malignant eye tumor. He was put on a strict medication, which he declined to take. Meanwhile, his mother has visited a crop circle in England, and in a clairvoyant moment was told to take some of its seeds home and give them to her son. Even did exactly that for several weeks, as well as visualizing the same crop circle. When he returned to the hospital, doctors were astonished to find the tumor had gone. And when they asked Ethan how he was able to cure himself, well, the reaction was priceless. I want to share one more story. A friend of mine named Abby called me one day to tell me how she wanted to help her neighbor, a dear friend who had just been sent home from hospital to spend her last hours in peace with family. She had been diagnosed with terminal bone cancer and was given 72 hours to live. Abby asked me how she could use the crop circles to heal her friend. At this point, I had to basically stop her and say, crop circles do not heal but they do carry codes that have the capacity to influence another organism, particularly where there exists a sympathetic resonance between the two. And of course, the organism, or person in this case, needs to want to heal. Contrary to belief, healing in its wider context also includes death, because for some things, dying may be the best form of healing. As bystanders, we cannot know or judge someone else's ultimate intent or purpose in life. Only they know what is best for them, consciously or otherwise. Nevertheless, Abby wanted to try it. After all, what was there to lose? So I instructed her to let her friend look through the images in my book and see if there was one she reacted to. She did, and very strongly. So I instructed Abby to take the photograph place a vial of spring water on the image. And the next step was very important because she had to act as the conduit whereby the energy of the image was visualized being transferred into the water. She's like an intermediary. And then she created a tincture. She was to give four drops four times a day to her neighbor, much like the Blah flower remedies. As much as Abby wanted her friend to just get up and walk, I had to remind her again not to put any judgment or expectation on the outcome. Perhaps this illness was something she needed to experience. Perhaps dying was her way of healing. Two weeks went by. Abby's neighbor, who for all intents and purposes ought to have been dead and buried, drove herself to hospital and continued to live a reasonably healthy life for several more months. It's a wonderful and true story, but there's a sad ending. The woman stopped taking the remedy, 
lapsed into a state of disease and eventually passed away. When I met Abby and discussed this experience, she informed me that her neighbor was a fundamental Christian. And the fact that a seemingly alien artifact cured her frightened her. As far as her belief was concerned, this was nothing more than witchcraft. In other words, her belief prevented her accepting this magic. This energy short-circuited the connection. The energy of the crop circle was no longer able to find its sympathetic counterpart, and contact stopped. The experience taught me a useful lesson. It proved that crop circles, just like ancient temples, are not miracle cures. They do, however, contain a potential, and we are part of the process. We have to meet this potential halfway. All this was beginning to answer my original question about bringing the energy of the temple to you. The problem with using a photograph in this digital era is you cannot be certain if the original image has been distorted, because if it has, then the energy is not retained. So I had to find a more reliable method of treating organisms at a distance by tapping a subtle energy code. And this method does exist. It's called resonance therapy. It's also known as radionics. Radionics works on the principle that every living organism is surrounded by a morphic field containing a code which enables the organism to resonate with its environment. The scientist who made this discovery was Albert Abrams. While studying nature and the resonance of living organisms at Stanford University, he reached the conclusion that all disease is based on vibration. In 1924, the British Parliament investigated his outlandish claims and upheld them, maintaining that his method of transmitting a healing code to another organism across space and time does work. Abrams' method was taken a stage further by Malcolm Ray, who developed a system using a series of simulator cards where the magnetic geometric representations of remedies are stored in the form of concentric rings and radii. These cards were then fed into a device and the code transmitted to a receiving substance such as water. It was here that I made the connection. Where had I seen these patterns before? In the concentric ring and radial energy patterns of crop circles, of course. It occurred to me that if there exists a link between the two, then the crop circles also contain a resonance and potentially healing code. This is where I came across the work of the Institute of Resonance Therapy in Germany. IRT specializes in revitalizing ecosystems in distress, as well as people with all manner of ailments. Their method is to take a map of the area to be treated, or a photograph of a person, and then supply the missing code to the ecosystem in distress. They found this code hardwired in a variety of forms. Radionics cards, mandalas, letters from ancient alphabets such as Sanskrit, even the symbolic language of runes. Essentially, IRT locates the organism's hard drive, supplies the appropriate software, and enables the organism to reboot and heal itself. 
Evidence that a sympathetic resonant code also exists in crop circles was discovered when IRT used these images to revitalize a park in Austria. The problem was this. The local council had invested a good amount of time, money and energy into landscaping this park, yet few people felt comfortable there. At the request of the local authorities, IRT quietly transmitted the code from a crop circle image from their office in Germany to this park. After two years of remote work, the park became a focal point for community life, as though some discarded energy had been cleared. In researching the history of the park, it turns out that a major atrocity had been committed there during the Second World War and the trauma of the event had been memorized by the water trapped beneath the park and trapped ever since. Later, IRT worked on revitalizing dying forests in the Czech Republic. After three years of ongoing treatment at a distance using crop circle images, the vitality of trees was as much as 65% above trees of similar species throughout the country. As a bonus, the first wave of crop circles appeared in the Czech Republic as a kind of validation of the work undertaken by the company. Soon, more evidence began to appear in support of the vibratory power of crop circles. In one independent experiment, the crystalline structure of tap water was photographed before and after it came into contact with a photo of a crop circle. The result, again, speaks for itself. It seems the crop circle images behave like mandalas, so the next logical step was to see whether they retained their energy fields when simplified into accurate diagrams. Inspired by the Malcolm Ray simulator card system, I developed a series of crop circle resonance cards where these remedies, so to speak, are stored in their perfect vibratory state. More to the point, they achieved my original idea of being able to bring the temple to you so you can access this tool anytime, anywhere. A number of kinesiologists were enlisted for initial trials. I gave them no instruction except to play the cards as they saw fit. The results were dramatic. In every case, patients' energy fields reacted positively whenever the cards were used in applied kinesiology or muscle testing. In one case, despite the practitioner having a wide range of remedies at her disposal, the only positive response was when she used a crop circle card during the process. That card was then used to create a homeopathic tincture that healed the patient. So it's true, crop circles in diagrammatic form retain their information and can be accessed by any organism in distress. I place no limitations on their potential. In fact, I am constantly amazed by the unusual ways people apply them. One massage therapist tunes into the cards prior to her client's arrival and asks for the correct card to make itself known for the highest good of that client. She then uses it to stimulate the energy field of the room during a session. I personally know her approach works because she tried it on me without my knowledge and for over an hour while lying flat on her table all I saw in my mind's eye was the image of this very crop circle she had picked out earlier but only showed me after the session was over. 
Then there's a nurse who works in a hospital where she is responsible for assisting patients before and after surgery. She asked each patient to pick a card, any card. She said that they would pick one symbol that made them smile and place the card on their belly button, the solar plexus, and watch these people losing the fear of going into the operating theater. When they returned, still under anesthesia, she would replace the card on the solar plexus. One day, she said, a team of doctors marched into the room demanding to know why the patients in her care required fewer days of recovery after operation. Obviously, it was affecting the hospital's bottom line. And she just said, I place a crop circle card on their belly button. The doctors apparently just walked out in silence and never returned. I once saw an attendee at my lecture walk over to a set of cards sitting on a table. I hadn't mentioned anything about them. In fact, they were going to be the subject of the following day's presentation. I had not anticipated the gentleman to return because he seemed very skeptical of my work, and yet he seemed intrigued by these symbols, and then he left. The following day, he was sitting at the front row, and I expressed my surprise at seeing him again, whereupon he said, I've been smoking for 10 years. I had no idea what these cards were. I just put my hand over them, and for the past 12 hours, I have not picked up a single cigarette, nor do I feel the desire to. What is it with these things? These examples are not figments of people's imaginations, because a blind test was conducted on the cards using a device developed by Konstantin Korotkov, a physicist and president of the International Union of Medical and Applied Bioelectrography. The results show how the bioelectric energy field of an activated card is noticeably different to the card that is no more than ink on a piece of cardboard. It proves that the cards retain the information coded in the original crop circle. With the manifesting of crop circles, we are witnessing an extraordinary potential being encoded into the earth. As these new temples, like their ancient predecessors, invite us to rediscover a universal system of knowledge that helped bring diseased biological systems back into harmony with their environment. We stopped building sacred places after the 13th century. We have forgotten that energy hotspots exist around the earth that help re-establish a bond between us and the natural world. And as our ancestors correctly predicted, denying this connection would result in the imbalance of the individual and unhealthy society and ultimately the downfall of entire cultures. It seems that the crop circles, by their design and behavior, are filling this gap, reminding us of a legacy that is waiting to be interacted with. We already know these temples can code water, so why not the potential to heal people? In 1999, it was discovered that when DNA is altered, as in the case of cancer, a single atom of rutherium placed at each end of a short strand of DNA makes rutherium resonate with a diseased cell, causing the deformed DNA to be corrected. Within hours of this discovery, this crop circle appeared featuring a short strand of DNA with a large atom at each end. 
as though validating the scientific breakthrough. Could these new temples also be encoding ideas into our biosphere? One thing is certain. Like temples, stone circles and sacred places, these symbols require a bridge that springs them into action. And by demonstrating that our intent is that bridge, ultimately we are the co-creators of the spiritual technology. As the Hopi say, we are the ones we're waiting for. And they're right, of course. But because we are only too human, we sometimes need a little nudge from an intelligence beyond life. We are going to take a little break, and then we'll be back with music and a look at the stars with our brother Richard and Kay Pacha and Tanya Gabrielle, and we might get a little story or two from uh, Richard since we've got an extra 20 minutes, and we'll see what he has to say, but we will be back soon <laughs> and we just want to say happy birthday to Don and Doug tomorrow happy birthday. <laughs> happy birthday tomorrow to Don and Doug and that'll be a 55 year marker um, big change double five is change 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 for the good okay everybody we'll see you in a little while take a little break now namaste How's the talking stick to you, Richard? Hello, hello. Hello, Richard. Good evening. Good evening, everybody. All right. Looking at the chart for Blue Ridge, Georgia at 9 p.m. tonight. We... (coughs) We got the moon in Aquarius. What is that small print, man? 20 degrees. 20 degrees Aquarius is the moon. That's kind of halfway between Scorpio and Taurus. And it makes a T-square with Venus opposite Uranus. Okay. Venus is at 15. Scorpio. Yes. And what else here? We've got uh, Mercury is retrograde. It's now at 8 degrees. 
the new moon, it was at nine degrees. And uh, Venus is moving fast over a degree per day. It's at uh, 15 there. Mars is at 16 degrees and 20 minutes of Sagittarius. So Mars is trying Chiron. And that Jupiter's at 6 Taurus now, retrograde. Saturn's direct, third degree of Pisces. Uranus at 20, retrograde, Neptune 25, Pluto 29, and so all of that is pretty much the way it's always been. Now, we'll say next week, next week, next Saturday, the moon will be uh, in Taurus, so we've got that, we've got that T-square going on. Uh, and we got, yeah, that, 30, 30, 60, 90, yeah, Jupiter square Pluto is operative. That's not fun. Uh, Mercury trying Jupiter... Yeah, uh, Mars square Neptune, Sun square Neptune. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of confusion around. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know where your sensitive points are, because I don't know what your ascendant is, and I can't see your chart right now. But it's challenging. And we're getting to the point where all the planets are on one side of the chart. Right now, the, the, the distance from Venus around to Uranus is 100, 106 degrees, 186 degrees, 180 plus 6, okay, 186 degrees. As Venus goes forward, that concentration is going to shrink so the middle of the arc of the active planets is in Aquarius so half you know if you're if you're on the moon looking at the earth on your right hand shoulder is Saturn and on your left hand shoulder is Pluto all right, and then on your right-hand side, you, you've got Neptune and Chiron and, and Jupiter and Uranus. So those are all outer, outer planets there. Then on your left-hand side, once you get past Pluto going in the other direction, you've got Mercury, Sun, Mars, Venus. So that's the way it is. So... When Venus rises in the morning, all the planets are below the horizon. Right before Venus sets, 
oh, roughly three in the afternoon, something like that. All the planets are overhead in the sky. So lots of lots of lots of active energies during the day and the the quiet time is at night. Quiet time will be quiet not quiet time begins when Uranus sets, which will be about six hours from now. So as, as you know, Saturn's still above the horizon. As it comes down and sets, things will get quieter, and then Neptune will be on that western sky, and then Chiron and Jupiter. And uh, so right now you can see Jupiter pretty much right overhead on the east coast, and Saturn about ready to set over on the western horizon. That's it. All right. I'm ready for Kaipacha now. Okay. Okay, Richard. Here we go. All ears. Yeah, I've picked out a. I've picked out a. I want to look at the astrological mandala for Mercury retrograde. So I'm going to read you nine. I'm going to read you nine Capricorn when we come back. Okay. Mm. And then there's look at something else. I mean, Mercury retrograde is kind of important. It the is. The moon is kind of important. We're like four days into this lunar cycle. Mm-hmm. So we'll look at, we'll go back and, and look at the new moon, which was on Tuesday. Okay. All right. Go. Go, Mr. Rama. <laughs> It's Kaipacha with the Weekly Pele Report. And this ain't no Bali, baby. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, man. Back in the old U.S. of A. Shoo-wee with a Mercury stationing retrograde. Actually, it was while I was sleeping, so I woke up and it's just started to go backwards. It's going to go backwards for three weeks, okay, uh, you know, and it's going to hit the sun uh, on December 22nd, and it's going to go back into Sag and hit Mars at 24, uh, and then it's going to station uh, direct back there in Sagittarius, and it's going to come back and it's going to hit Mars again. Uh, you know, on January 26th at 16 degrees of Capricorn. So, yeah, we're we're in a stage now. I'm going to talk about that retrograde Mercury. Uh, it does come into a nice trine to Jupiter on Monday. That should be super cool. Um, good good communication, interesting with a retrograde Mercury. But I'll I'll talk to you about what that means and indicates. Um, besides Mercury. Okay, yeah, the moon has gone into Capricorn. Kaboosh. Right? We had that new moon in Sag, which was nice. (laughs) 
Now she's going to get serious on us in Capricorn. Mercury in Capricorn, Moon in Capricorn, Pluto in Capricorn. Ah! She conjuncts uh, with Pluto on Friday. Okay, so... Uh, and then goes into Aquarius, squares Jupiter, all right, and, uh, you know, moves on through there uh, by Sunday. Uh, she's going to go into Pisces and uh, conjunct Saturn, right? And uh, and then uh, move on through Pisces until Tuesday. We're going to see a great shift of energy uh, by Tuesday uh, because the sun will conjunct the galactic center. That's what I really want to talk to you about today, next Tuesday. But you got to give it a couple of days, a degree a day, you know, give it three degrees. It's going to be amazing. Before that, on Saturday, the sun is square Neptune. Yeah, so we're coming into late Sagittarius. Okay, you know, just before the uh, solstice happening. You know, next week is the solstice. And, um, yeah, the galactic center squaring Neptune. Very interesting. Something to, like, really talk about. And uh, what else is going on? Well, Mars, uh, in, you know, moving through Sagittarius, is trying to Chiron this week. Uh, and that is exact on Friday. So I think that those are the... the you know, those are the aspects that I want to talk to you about today. So enough of this. Let me look at the camera. All right, everybody. Let's knock this baby out. <laughs> but first, a message from our sponsors, New Paradigm Astrology. Hey. <laughs> we have a Christmas sale going on. If you didn't see my video the other day. Uh, for beginner astrologers, the Astro Bundle. I mean, like all of my teachings, I've got hours and hours and hours that I've done on signs, planets, houses, aspects, videos galore, going into like whatever you want to know about, slash the price in half for Christmas. That sale is happening now. And my What is Love book, the poem that I wrote, about the little kids going from sign to sign. And Daisy Moon illustrated it. It's absolutely beautiful. We've got that on sale for United States people anyway. You got a new publisher and it's looking really sweet. The paperback is awesome. So it's at a new low price. And yeah, please, you know, check it out. It's awesome. Links are below in the notes of the YouTube video. And yeah, so this is the season to be jolly. Ba la 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 la. And yeah, it is, you know, we're approaching the, the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere. You know, the darkest night. I just, uh, got some, a telegram message from my friends up in Norway. They haven't, they don't see the sun for days. I can't even fathom, I can't imagine, I am a sun person, <laughs> not seeing the sun for days, ah! living in the dark, living in the mystery. This is very, this is a very potent spiritual time. 
the sun squaring Neptune. Let's give it this week, really. You know, I mean, it's it's the strongest on Saturday, but you can start to feel it now. I was born with the sun square Neptune. Neptune, the ruler of Pisces in the 12th house. It has to do with the invisible spiritual world. And that's what this mantra is about this week also. Tapping into the invisible spiritual world. And, you know, I can say how this is going to play out with the collective. Neptune is the collective unconscious. And it, it appears to the collective consciousness as chaos, as magic, as illusion, as dreams, as phobias and, you know, crazy psychosis. I, I mean, the, the conscious ego just cannot comprehend, it can't explain the spiritual world. <laughs> Spirit is non-logical, non-rational. So this is where we get into this magical realm. But then it's also very confusing for the ego and very confusing for the ordinary citizen listening to mainstream media because since the Renaissance, I would say, we have really been descending down into materialism, into the physical world, into the world of money and physical sex and power, you know, by how much property you own and how, you know, how expensive your house is. I mean, whatever. There is this descent into the material. And, and so, you know, many people have descended. The consensus ruled by Saturn, 75% of any given population is like not really able or capable of seeing the spiritual world. And so for them, the sun square Neptune equals like disaster. Like, what? Who? Uh, what's going on? We, uh, I don't believe in magic. And I, I don't, you know, I don't believe in, you know, Ebenezer. They, they turn into Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> yeah. What is that? A Christmas story or something, you know, where the, the ghosts of Christmas past and Christmas present and Christmas future come to visit Ebenezer Scrooge. So you may get visited by ghosts. But it's such a time, I mean, the higher frequency, reality of Neptune Pisces is love, spiritual love, the law of one, the unity of all that is. So this can also be experienced, particularly by those in the spiritual stage of evolution, which is 5% of the world's population. In between that is the 20% in the individuated stage. That's ruled by Uranus. So we have Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, right? Consensus, individuated, spiritual. So material, intellectual, yeah, love, heart-centered, spiritual. We ba 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 ba. I was thinking about this on the hike down here. 
which was a real trip because I, I spaced out even putting on gym shoes. I mean, I, I hiked down <laughs> in my street shoes. I just go walking out the door to do the Bailey report like I'm going to the grocery store. <laughs> I got these slip-ons, and I'm climbing down the cliff over here going, ah. So, yeah, this retrograde, stationary retrograde Mercury, it's like our right, our left brains are not functioning uh, at 100% right now, you know. <laughs> but what was I thinking? Yeah, I was thinking. Yeah, because I think it's the U.S. Constitution or something that says, all men are created equal. Really? Think about it. We were all created equal at the Big Bang, at the way beginning like thousands of lifetimes ago. And evolution takes work. It takes accepting change, letting go of the past. Uh, you know, striving, spiritually striving, doing the inner work. Yeah. So if you think that we've all, I mean, reincarnation says we've been around the block here. We've had thousands of incarnations. So we're not equal anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> there are, you know, there are people that have advanced in their evolutionary stages and there are people that have not, right? So that's why, you know, yeah, it's it's a little tricky doing these Pele reports. And I'm going to do the astrology for 2024. It's going to be a weekend workshop, February 13th and 14th. Uh, I'm getting it together now to put up on the website. But, you know, in, in really looking at what's coming you know, it's going to be very different for different people. There's actually a split happening here. Yeah, between. Anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to get too far off track because what I want to do is I want to talk to my audience, which is people that have been listening mostly to the Pele Report for quite some time. And you're on a spiritual path. You're on a spiritual journey. You're tuning into Neptune at a higher frequency. And yes, it's still a little confusing when it comes to like, you know, making grocery lists or balancing your checkbook or, you know, day-to-day -day realities. But it's extremely inspiring. And this is a time for dreams. This is a time for opening to a higher reality, to a possible future that we co-create. That is amazing. Particularly, it's not just square Neptune. The sun is conjunct the galactic center. Ow! Come on! Let's talk about the galactic center, okay? Right now, I mean, it moves a degree, you know, or so every 72 years with the procession of the equinoxes. I mean, it doesn't move at all. We are moving around the galactic center. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's at 27 degrees, 11 minutes of Sagittarius right now. And when the sun comes up into alignment with that, let's look at it. The galactic center. The scientists have now proven there is a black hole. 
at the center of our galaxy. And our galaxy has two arms, the Perseus arm and the Sagittarian arm. And our solar system, our sun, we are just beneath the Sagittarian arm, just off of the galactic ecliptic, right? It takes us 240 million years to orbit the galactic center, our whole solar system. We're going around it. We are 30,000 light years away from the galactic center. That is how far it takes light, the speed of light to go in a year. You multiply that by 30,000. That's how far we are from the galactic center. Now I look at the galactic center as a transformer. You know how it's cheaper to send electricity through these big thick wires, but then it has to be, they have these transformers mounted that downgrade, right? So you take your 240 and you downgrade it to 110 voltage, right? You, you So you, you, know, you take the high energy power voltage and you down it, boom. So now we have to understand that there are billions of galaxies in the universe and they have now proven that there are multiple universes. I mean, we cannot fathom this with our ego consciousness, okay? How many planets there are, how many stars there are, how many galaxies, I mean, oh my goddess. Woo! (laughs) I love it, I love it, man. It's it's Neptune, it's boundless, it's limitless. There's there's no... It's infinity. So, but what I feel is like, I feel like I've always looked at it as the galactic center is like, you take metaverse intelligence and it gets transformed, it gets downloaded, downgraded, like funneled, you know, into our universe. And then our universal intelligence gets funneled, transformed, downgraded through our galactic center to our solar system. And then our sun receives. That's why they used to worship the sun, Ra, in ancient Egypt, yeah? The sun worshipers, man. Because the sun is another transformer that takes it from the galactic center and sends it out to us in rays. That's why the breatharians, they just look at the sun and the sun, you know, I did it for a little while, you know, you do it right, right at sunrise for a half hour and it's sunset for a half hour and you get directly fed from the sun. This is true, pure spirit, Light, spirit, energy, genius, inspiration, vision, 
I mean, and this is Sagittarius and Mars after the sun. The sun's going to be there, you know, we can say for this week. But then Mars is going to be coming along, too. Wait till Mars hits that galactic center. You should see where it is on your chart, man. You should mark it on your chart. It's freaking awesome. Um, what aspects do you have to the galactic center? Super powerful. And probably very difficult to integrate into the lower, denser, third-dimensional frequencies of ordinary daily reality. So on top of that, then, we have Mercury stationing retrograde for three weeks. And it, and Mercury retrograde has a real bad rap, you know. It's like, yeah, I've had, you know, I've had computer problems and car problems, electrical problems, you know, nervous system problems. I mean, you know, Mercury is a lot of things. And it's communication, miscommunication, and just like, you know, you're talking to somebody. So, I mean, we do kind of have this going on for the next three weeks. Happy holidays. But words are not the only way to communicate. I saw a play last week, and after the play, uh, the whole audience broke out into singing a Christmas carol. And I almost came to tears. I mean, it was so beautiful. And I felt at one with everyone in that audience. It was, I mean, this is what people go to concerts for, right? Singing. And not just singing then, chanting. When I do, I do my workshops, we sit in a circle and we all meditate together, you know, in silence. This is communication from the heart. That is, that is still very clear. That is very healing. That is this Venus in Scorpio. She's coming up to oppose Uranus. I'll talk about that next week. But Uranus too has to do with enlightenment and breakthroughs. We can have heart breakthroughs. And what we want to do is just try to remain mentally flexible non-judgmental, not jumping to conclusions, you know, or, you know, just, yeah, it's like, have to like relax our nervous system, relax that mercury that wants to, you know, figure it all out, da, 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 and open our hearts and open our minds to great mystery. And this then we can, this is our spirit work. This is the evolution of the soul. That can really happen for us this week. And what is so freaking beautiful is that Mercury is stationing at the eighth degree of Capricorn. And it and comes up and sits at that eighth degree from Monday to Friday. Yeah? So it's at this eighth degree from the 11th to the 15th. It's there right now. And what is the Sabian symbol for that degree? It is an angel carrying a harp. The revelation 
of the spiritual meaning and purpose at the core of any life situation. Notice he said the core, not the surface, not the appearances, the core. (laughs) This picture simply says that heaven is within us. All we have to do is be open and listen to the total harmony of life. A harmony in which we play a part that is necessary to the completeness and meaning of the whole. In order to do this, we have to surrender our separative ego consciousness and flow (laughs) like the river, baby, with the universal current, which to the religiously minded person is the will of God. The technique it implies is that of, in capital letters, attunement, attunement to the rhythm of universal life. Angels are to be considered personalizations of various aspects of this life and totally subservient to its rhythms and purposes. I've looked into angels, you know, there's Gabriel, Raphael, uh, you know, Michael, there, I mean, there, then there's archangels. I mean, the interesting thing about angels is they have no free will. They have no choice but to embody, manifest, and radiate universal will. We are, you know, we're beneath that angelic realm in this human realm. We've got the free will. We, like I always say, we are the breaking edge, yeah, of the expanding universe. And it's our free will, yeah, that that is it. That's why there's, you know, such a great clamoring for souls to incarnate on planet Earth. That's why the population is going up. And that's why the dark forces want to cut the population. (laughs) Slow down the evolution, man. I'm going to talk about more about that with the uh, astrology of 2024. Not today. Today I'm going to stay positive. (laughs) Yeah. Into the great wide open. I think that's the song for this. Uh, you know, I was I, coming down the cliff here. It's like into the great wide open. I think it's Tom Petty. I forget the rest of the words, but I like I like that part. <laughs> oh yeah. Last thing. Energy follows attention. You're going to see what you're looking for. You know, the scientists today, they're just looking for verification and validation of what they want to prove. And they're finding it, you know. Oh, let's use this example. Let's use that report. Let's, you know, let's look at that. Let's look over here. Let's not look over there or not look at that. (laughs) 
You know, we don't we don't want to look at the VARS <laughs> reporting system. You know, we want to look at da 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 da. You know, and then we'll come up with these conclusions. So what we believe conditions what we are going to look at, what we're going to look for, what we're even going to hear, or what we're going to not hear. Like, I don't hear what I don't want to hear, because I, I don't believe that, so I'm going to tune that out. I'm going to cancel my subscription to that channel. <laughs> you know, I don't want to hear that, right? I, and, and so, you know, over time, over lifetimes, we start to see more and more and more Okay, of what we believe, of what we want to see, and we validate for ourselves. So now is an opportunity for us, right? And this is what the Galactic Center does. Oh gosh, one more thing. I gotta go in. I'm gonna put a link to Philip Sedgwick. He's an old astrologer friend of mine. I, I, I knew him back in the 80s. I don't know if he's still alive, but he talks about the Galactic Center. And there is infrared radiation bursting out of the galactic center. And it hits us, particularly in the root chakra. And it awakens the kundalini. And that kundalini and that radiation is in some ways a destructive force that wants to clean away our memories and clean away the past and wipe out our learned behaviors and old beliefs. So we can be, it's like we're getting, we can be getting blasted. It's like he, he, he likens it to a defragmenting of your computer disk where it rearranges everything in, in the memory, right? For quicker access. So we can, we can be experiencing a real upgrade in our perceptive ability if we're open to it and we allow it to happen and allow ourselves to be reconfigured into a greater, higher efficiency. This can happen. And we can also resist it and be kind of bowled over or overwhelmed or yeah anyway I think of those uh, I don't want to get sidetracked so the more I believe in the spiritual world the more I see it exists Within and between, though not always seen, like love, it unites all that is. There's a lot of, you know, materialism denies the spiritual world. It's the commercialization of Christmas. Buy presents, buy, you know, buy candies and chocolates and eat and gain 10 pounds and, you know, da, 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 you know, all this kind of, you know, uh, it's, it's, 
a little gut-wrenching what they've done to this particular... In fact, the Christian church stole Christmas from the pagans who celebrated the solstice. I am more into celebrating the solstice. You know, boom, on the 21st. This is when we really want to tap into, you know, and now especially, right, you know, next Tuesday, the sun on the galactic center... This is the natural order of the spiritual world coming through us through nature. And if we believe in it, we're going to look for it. We're going to listen for it. We're going to watch for it. We're going to become more sensitively attuned to the workings of spirit in our life. And we're going to see, you'll look at the clock and it's 11-11, you know, and we're going to think of somebody and they're going to send us a message or we're going to, I mean, and we're going to start seeing it with synchronicity and serendipity happening more and more in our lives. The more we believe, you've got to believe. <laughs> It's real, man. <laughs> Magic. I, I, I could just go on forever. I don't know what time it is, but... You know, like, I, I, I... There's no such thing as magic. There is mastering of the laws that govern the universe. So, when you levitate, the yogis levitate, they've mastered the laws of gravity. And it looks like magic to everybody else. It's not magic. It's highly evolved understanding and application of spiritual laws to the physical world. <laughs> yeah. So let's all of us work a little magic. Yeah. Work a little magic this season, this week. With yourselves, with love, with your brothers and sisters, with your lover, with your family. Heal those wounds. Let go of limiting beliefs. Let go of past memories and grievances and, you know, and step into the light of oneness. And that's what's going to really change the world. The more I believe in the spiritual world, the more I see it exists <laughs> within and between, though not always seen, like love. It unites all that is. May you become one with the light and love and unite with all that is. Shanti, mahalo, so much love. Ho, 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 Merry Christmas. I hope you're having a great time out there. Happy holidays. And I want to make your holidays even happier with some astrology. 
Christmas sale. We're having an astrology Christmas sale. First of all, there's the Astro Bundle, where you can learn all about the signs, the planets, the houses, the aspects, all about your chart. I've gathered together like what I have done for, this is hours and hours of teachings that I use for my school and my students, and it's just a whole background. I put this whole bundle together just for Christmas and chopped the price in half. <laughs> so it's like really special. If you know anyone who is really interested in getting started at the very basics of just like what all the basic elements of astrology are, the Astro Bundle is going to be perfect. So that's that's one good thing. And the other is what what is love? <laughs> this is the book that it's it's it is a kids book, but it's not all just for kids. This is you know what is love to Aries? What is love to Taurus? What is love to Gemini? The kids go through the whole zodiac and and the artwork is beautiful. And we're having a good sale on this What is Love book just for Christmas. So uh, it's not just for kids. Adults love this book, too. It's great for on your coffee table or wherever you would like to do it, you know. It's great. <laughs> so you're like, what is love? Where Where is... Uh, I'm going to show you Scorpio because... Yeah, these guys are, there's Scorpio love for you, but I, I'm not going to read it. It's a secret, but what is love on sale now? Only till the end, only till Christmas. So come and get your stuff right now. Hit the buttons right below the, uh, the video here and uh, the links will take you right to my website, right to the store. And you can get these before Christmas if you order today. <laughs> okay. Namaste. Aloha. Merry Christmas. <laughs>
26, 27 next Saturday night, 27 Taurus. So Friday, Saturday, Friday moon conjunct Jupiter, Saturday moon conjunct Uranus. And that, that moon conjunct Jupiter usually brings new news from the global situation. You know, it's like this week, we ended the week with the, uh, the final uh, declaration from that little gathering in the Mideast called COP28. Oh, yeah. Yeah. See, and that, that, you know, that, that whole movement is an Aquarian movement. It's, it's distorted. It's not pure. It's got a lot of players in it. Mm-hmm. But it, it'll, it should eventually mature to uh, to a more rational uh, situation here, you know, depending on your definition of rational and what you think about the human attribute of reasoning, you know, which is holding multiple ideas at once and doing compare and contrast and, you know, all, all of that mental activity, you know, that's, that's one of the things that this current situation points points to is the growth of mental abilities. That would be Chiron and Aries. So humans are, some humans are becoming more intelligent because you can actually practice being a, a better thinker or reasoning in better ways, you know. You can get better data. You get more accurate data. But without without knowing that those are required to improve one's intellectual capabilities, the average human is still pretty dull and pretty slow but you got you do have uh, potentialities so since he read he read mercury he read that nine nine capricorn uh-huh. i decided that i would going to read where saturn is which is which is three pisces because Saturn, very important, very, very important. Because you've got to come Saturn back to the mic. We can't hear you back there. The ability of humans to say no. Okay. This is the yeah. Some some people use the path of renunciation. Hmm to get to the kingdom of the spirit. Here's what he says about three degrees Pisces. 
petri- the picture is petrified tree chunks lying broken on desert sand. I thought this was interesting as I pre-read it. The power to preserve records of their achievements, which is inherent in fully matured cultures. Okay. Yeah. I don't. I don't think. I don't think that our 2023 worldwide culture is fully matured yet. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. He says, especially in the United States, Richard. Huh? Especially for the United States. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but see, governments everywhere are all having the same problem. They're not governing by goodness. That's right. Not divine. All right. Yeah, okay. When a, when a vast group of humans succeed in building a culture with strong institutions which express themselves in significant symbols and works of art or literature, such an effort of many generations is rarely lost altogether. In one form or another, records of this culture endure or are mysteriously preserved simply because they reveal the place and function of this or that particular culture in the long process of the unfoldment of the potentialities inherent in archetypal man. It is such a concept that has been mythified and popularized in the religious idea of the resurrection of the dead on the last day, capitalized last day. The symbol of petrified wood in the Arizona desert, however, tells us that the actual preservation of the records is never perfect or total. Only fragments remain significant enough to reveal the essential archetypal form. Now, this this, uh, sequence here brings the promise of social immortality, i.e. the preservation of the enduring factors in whatever man attempts with in his culture. This is a symbol of indestructibility. So that's you know, that's uh, 
That's Pisces, three degrees, which is the current location of Saturn, which is no longer retrograde, okay? See, then you, then you move into heavy car traffic on a narrow isthmus linking two seashore resorts. And this is a this is a mobility the mobility and intensity of the interchange between people which make possible and characterize complex social processes. What is stressed is the need to establish unceasing dynamic relationships between all aspects and functions of the social life. The more complex the relationships, the more dynamic and Maybe restless. Because you got to get back here really fast. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. These dynamic relationships between all aspects and functions of the social life. generate, I'm going to paraphrase here, they generate restlessness in society. So, you've got politics, that's a social thing, you got humans in their complex relationships, and we have restlessness all over and around the world. The natives are restless. And uh, so now we've got enough time for Tanya, Gabrielle, and I'll turn it over to her. And I thank you. Okay. Thank you, Richard. The natives are indeed restless. Here we go. It's very restless. Very 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 well, you'll find I, I, hello there I, it's Tanya Gabrielle Wealth Estimron I'm away okay say that again Richard no go ahead all right okay hello there it's Tanya Gabrielle Wealth Astrologist. welcome to your weekly astronomy forecast for December 11th through the 17th now in this forecast we cover selected highlights for the week in the stars and numbers, the astrology and the numerology. And this is a big week because on 12-12, we have the Sagittarius new moon. And Sagittarius is such a beautiful sign of expansion. And 12-12 is the number of being the eternal students. It reduces to three. One plus two for 12 equals three, which is play and creativity. And Sagittarius always wants us to play more so that we can expand in a joyful way. Now, the moon and sun are together and they are going to be square to Neptune, which will be exact later in the week with the sun. But a square to Neptune means you're much more impressionable and you really want to focus on your spiritual nourishment because you may not only be more sensitive, but question reality as well. 
there's a dreamlike sensation with this aspect. Now, what I love about this new moon is that Jupiter, the ruler of Sagittarius, is trying to Mercury and opposite Venus, which means that you can share your life joyfully with Mercury. You can talk about things in a very optimistic way. It's a beautiful trine. Trine is harmony, and Jupiter trine Mercury means you're going to communicate with humor and playfulness. And negotiations in business, any dealings regarding that front are really going to go well. Now, Venus opposite Jupiter means that you are open to new emotional experiences. You're, you may be more sensitive when relating to your loved ones, but the happiness and optimism factor is really heightened. It's wonderful for friendships. So let's go to the second important moment in this week, and that happens on Saturday, the 16th of December. And on this day, we have the exact square between the sun and Neptune. Now, this weekend, you definitely want to get a little bit more rest. You want to take time out from working too hard. If you can start your holiday week, that would be amazing because your spiritual nature will be calling for your attention. And that means your inner voice needs to be heard, which means you need silence and not a noisy environment and clutter (laughs) info coming from all directions. I know it's a busy time, but this is really a weekend for silence and serenity. And you really need to pay attention to being creative because if you don't and your creativity goes by the wayside, then you might feel out of sync, energetically depleted, disillusioned. So take that extra time to not only rest, but also use your imagination and listen to beautiful, uplifting music, appreciate art, appreciate creators of music and art, and surround yourself with exquisite beauty to nurture your soul. Now, to help you with that, I have a free masterclass at spiritualmasteryclass.com, and it really helps you get into the spirit of your spiritual inner life. It really is about taking your, your power back. And so enjoy that this weekend. It's free, and you can watch it at spiritualmasteryclass.com. Have a beautiful week, and I will see you in next week's forecast. Lots of love. Take back to you, Richard. Yes, I'm here. Oh, I don't know. I, you know, um, I'm kind of done for the day. Mm-hmm. All right. That's that's we've good. Got, we've got a good idea of what's what's going on in the world. You know, what are you gonna? What are you going to focus on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We got the longest night in the Northern Hemisphere coming up here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and then we'll be into Capricorn, and we'll be into the new year, and all of that. I did take a little look at the chart for January 2nd, because things are going to be rather, especially in the business world, things are going to be uh, really active, and with Mercury retrograde, uh, and it's... uh, noted transportation problems and all of that, you know, I'm not planning any trips between now and, you know, now and the first of the year. And uh, that's, you know, it's like uh, just, uh, but then again, my situation is unique to me, you know. This is true. And, uh, you know, without, Without further information, I can't really help you very much. Well, Mercury retrograde and the whole world going through what it's going through right now. Um, Well, I heard heard in passing sometime this week that there were 35 active engagements using guns or bigger. 35 active engagements using guns when? Right now, on the planet. You mean to hurt somebody? Yeah. Mm. And that includes the the small ones as well as the ones that we know about and make the news, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think I'll just wish you all a good, safe week. Be careful out there, and do your best, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Richard. I accept. Thank you. Very much. See you in the next Saturday we come together. It'll only be the 23rd. (laughs) That's true. We got nine days to Christmas. That's true. Monday. It's going to be a long, yeah. A week from Monday. That's right. So while Mercury's retrograde, work on your plans for the new year. Mm -hmm. Good idea. Thank you, Richard, so much. All right. All right. Aloha. Namaste. Peace out. Namaste. Peace out. Okay, Rama. Let's have our phone numbers for our conference together. Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. One more time, honey. 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, everybody, let's have a chat on our conference line, and then we'll be back here after that, right back to BBS Radio, best radio in the universe, and let's, for the highest good of all concern, happen here, Uh, and for 
for love and truth and um, will send more love to those that don't practice their best, as Richard was saying, for the best that we can do. Let's do the best we can do. Okay. Uh, Aloha. We'll see you on the conference. Namaste for now. We'll be back in the top of the next hour here. Okay. Namaste. Oh, Oh my. (laughs) What was that last one, Rama? A salutation to the light on the darkest of nights. Oh, that's for the 21st of of December. Winter solstice. Thank you, darling. All right, so this is um, called Communicating with Water. Back to water. Does human saliva hold an imprint of the frequency of the words we use. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal, everybody. Um, Veda Austin, researcher, shares crystallographic images to demonstrate how frozen water from a variety of sources, including the human body, communicates with us. From verbal intentions to memories and feelings, Austin captures Waters' consciousness through frozen responses to words, thoughts, and intentions using a glass Petri dish. Her studies explore ancestral information held by amniotic fluid, as well as the impact of 5G technological interference on water's resilience and coherence. Austin also shares her findings on water's ability to heal by proximity, as well as the unique properties found in the primary, and that's as far as it goes. So I guess we better go and find Mm -hmm. out what this is all about. This is 45 minutes, so let's get started. aspect of water is the observer. One of the songs that I did repeated studies with was Stairway to Heaven. Every time I would play that song, I would see a stairway image appear in the ice. Water freezes into the energy of a word, and when you eat that ice, people have actually been having incredible results. I took spring water, and I put it just right beside a 5G tower, and we saw one of the most disordered patterns I've actually seen. I've done a lot of questions like, what on earth was inspired by aliens? Oh, and there you got the pyramids of Giza. Uh-huh. Tell us how you capture these images in case some of our budding scientists at home want to do this themselves. Absolutely. Many of you have heard of the brilliant work of the late Masaru Emoto, who demonstrated that water is conscious and holds memory. 
Mr. Emoto is gone, but a woman from New Zealand, Veda Austin, has picked up where Emoto left off and has developed an even finer body of images and information on the brilliance of water. Welcome, Veda. What an absolutely amazing, stunning body of photographs and video you have. And it wasn't hyperbole when I said that this is an even finer body than what Mr. Emoto produced within his lifetime. So first of all, Let's talk about how you started with water and maybe what influence he had on you. Sure. Well, Emoto really was a pioneer and he opened the doorway for people to see that they are sensitive bodies of water, sensitive to thoughts and words, emotions, feelings, music. And he was inspiring to me because I became very curious. Does water really store information? Does it have memory? Is it conscious? They're very big questions, and I think that what I wanted to do was to see for myself, but all those years ago, I didn't actually have a microscope, but I realized that the secret was in the freezing, where the unseen becomes seen, and so I found a way to really investigate for myself. And you have done an amazing job, and everybody here is going to have the benefit of seeing these images. And we're going to, in fact, in a moment, we're going to play a little film that you made. So, first of all, you say that it's an anomaly, that water itself is an anomaly, Mm -hmm. that it has 66 anomalous properties to it that have never been explained. Just give us a little feel for that. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I call water the rebel element Mm -hmm. because it defies the laws of physics and gravity. It can go up woods through trees and it expands when it cools. It kind of doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting because by molecular count, not by volume, we're 99% water. Our eye lens is 99% water, which means we literally see everything through the lens of water. And yet we know so little about it. Absolutely true. So what I'd like to do to give people an idea of what we're going to be talking about is play a little film. Can we do that? Yeah. Let's play the little film. Water. What do we really know about it? Some scientists say it seeded the earth from meteorites, while others say it came up from within the earth's mantle. Fondly known as the rebel element, water defies both physics and gravity. It expands when it freezes and makes its way upwards through tree trunks. Water is mentioned 722 times in the Bible, more than faith, worship, and love. The Quran says we have created every living thing from water, and the Upanishads say the whole universe is made up of water. All beings are made up of water. When we look at a water analysis, we only learn about what water holds. But what do we learn about water itself? Does it have a spirit or a mind? Does it have the ability to store memory? Over the last decade, I've been studying water in its state of creation, the phase between liquid and ice, and I've discovered something extraordinary. Water appears to intelligently respond to human consciousness. It uses its building blocks of ice to design recognizable pictographs, enabling it to share its messages or acknowledgement back to us in picture form. Have you noticed a little sailboat appearing in the ice? The influence was the thought of a sailboat. 
My first experience of this phenomenon was when I projected the thought of my hand into a petri dish of water, froze it, pulled it out, and in the architecture of the ice was a hand. I then froze some seawater and an image of a fish appeared. I now have over 40,000 photos of water responding this way. Here are a few examples showing the influence on the right and the ice response on the left. I inspire water in many ways, including thoughts, music, media, words, photos and emotions. I've even spoken to water and received written responses. The photos you're seeing now were all taken on my iPhone, not altered or photoshopped. They were designed by water and crystallized in ice. So what does this mean? Could the ancients and indigenous be right? Could water really be a living being? I love that little video. That's why, because it has such a bang, has everything in it. I wanted to start so people could see what we're talking about here. Because you've had conscious conversations. You've been given answers through images from water directly. Mm -hmm. And so let's go back kind of where people are already comfortable. And that was the world of homeopathy. A lot of the people watching this have used homeopathic remedies. And so... You know, 200, 250 years ago in Germany, that's when they started really producing these remedies. And still today, the homeopaths are arguing to have a place in society, despite the fact of the clear effect that it has on people's bodies and, and their emotions. So let's talk about homeopathy for a moment before we go into some of the more esoteric stuff. Absolutely. Well, I actually have done quite a lot with homeopathy as far as using my crystallographic method. And when I've put little drops of various um, homeopathic remedies into water and frozen it using my technique, I've seen imagery that really looks very similar to the plant that the homeopathic remedy was originated from. Interesting. And someone was asking me, you know, why do you think that the higher dilutions of homeopathic remedies actually work better? And I, I think of it, in a really interesting way after my observations of interesting things that have happened with water is that the spirit of the plant essentially is expanding the further away it gets from the body of the plant. And so I think about liquid water as being the visible body of that houses the spirit of water. And the spirit of water is in all living things. So the further away the spirit gets from the physical body in within the water of the homeopathic remedy, it's actually expanding. Someone once said to me that um, dying is kind of like taking off an uncomfortable shoe. Mm-hmm. You are able to expand much further and become more of an observer. And I actually think the more spiritual aspect of water is the observer. And when people die, this is just popping in my head, when people die, that little bit, that a small percentage of an ounce that disappears with them, do you think that is part of the fluid of life? I do. I think that it's very relative to the Maori word, which is wairua for spirit. Mm-hmm. Wai means water, rua means two, the physical and the spiritual waters. And I think it's the spiritual water that leaves the body alongside consciousness, perhaps, 
like I've said before, my friend Moses Hackman, he says that water is the glove on the hand of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's water transitioning from one phase to another. Because mm-hmm. many people talk about spirit like a gas. Yes, yes, right. they do. Yeah. So this is totally random and not in our line of questioning, but what happens to a human being or an animal or a plant or anything when it becomes really dehydrated? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot happens through dehydration. We start to have like a fuzzy memory. Um, we start to not be able to kind of think quite right. Mm -hmm. Even the smallest amount of dehydration can really make quite a big difference, especially around our memory, Mm -hmm. which is quite interesting. Memory. Memory, yes. Yeah. And so there's been a lot um, of talk around hydration, and it seems that virtually everybody in the world has some level of dehydration. And I think it's more about understanding that there are different kinds of water, and that comes into the fourth phase of water. There's a liquid, solid, gas, and then a type of gel or plasma. And that's the kind of water inside of our cells. And it's kind of like a battery. So how do we best feed that? Well, I think then understanding where this fourth phase water is within the liquid water. So Dr. Gerald Pollack, he has a book with the fourth phase of water. And one of the things that he talks about is where you might find fourth phase water. Now, you always find it in cells, um, So, but in liquid water, it's often found in deep aquifers or deep underground springs because when there's pressure, it creates this fourth phase. Now, it's a fourth phase water is actually um, H3O2, and it absorbs more light, It has a negative charge. It has an ordered structure. So it's really important. The negative charge. Minerals it's exposed to. So Mm -hmm. minerals are important. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's important because it makes up human beings. Right. I mean, in these deep aquifers, there are minerals and the stones they're running through. Well, actually, I think it's the minerals and the salts that hold and store memory. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because when I use distilled water in my work, I see a signature pattern of distilled water, which is a, a pattern that commonly occurs for different types of water, but I don't see complex imagery. So I actually think that it's because of the salts and minerals that the water is able to store that information and share it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, another aspect of homeopathy is cell salts, Mm -hmm. the cell salts. And I think there are about 12 of them, which also goes with the zodiac calendar. And each person supposedly has a cell salt that's aligned with them from birth. Mm -hmm. And that that must be part of this hydration process and the holding of memory. I believe so. I mean, if you take a look at us, mm-hmm. we're not distilled water. We're an ocean mm-hmm. within a body. Yeah. And salt's an interesting one because we're kind of made, pardon the pun, we are boil, if you boil it down, yeah. we are water, salts, minerals, and consciousness. Mm-hmm. The salts and minerals and water, both immortal things. Mm-hmm. So water doesn't die. It's always transitioning from one stage to another. And salt is really interesting because when you put salt in water, it disappears. It gives uh, the water electrical charge. It mm-hmm. becomes a liquid crystal. Mm-hmm. But then when the water evaporates, hello, there's the salt, there's the salt. in its cubic form. Yeah. So even when you're cremated, the ashes are actually salts. 
So when you think about that, you think about, well, there's this combination, this marriage of salt and water that has everything to do with storing memories. Mm. What about, um, again, another random one here. What about the notion of deuterium depleted, depleted water? What What's up with that? Dr. Jack Cruz and others speak about this mm-hmm. for acting as a healing agent for certain conditions. What's, this, what's deuterium depleted water about? Well, I mean, my area especially is in crystallography. Yes. But what I do know about um, deuterium depleted water is that it's kind of um, an interesting one. Because when scientists were trying to prove that water came from outer space from meteorites, they based it on the amount of deuterium that they found in these in these rocks, right? And it had the same amount of deuterium as the water on the surface of Earth. But then when you look at primary water, which is the water that's held within the ringwoodite of the Earth's mantle, and there is more drinkable water inside the Earth's mantle, <laughs> Then all the seas on the surface of Earth, and we're told that, you know, we're in this, this kind of, uh, lack. Oh yes. But, uh, sorry, that's another story. Yeah. yeah. But that type of water is created within the Earth, mm-hmm. and it's deuterium depleted. depleted, and that's supposed to be the most true, pure, healing, hydrating water for humanity. Mm-hmm. So in essence, you have access to that through deep aquifers, right? Yeah, well, it's meant to be found by coming up through very, very high springs. Mm-hmm. So if it's if you've got a spring bubbling up that's high on top of a mountain, mm. it's possible that it's primary water. Mm. So uh, there's a lot more to that. Mm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so now let's get back to your belly okay. with these beautiful <laughs> images, okay? And the creativity, artistic creativity of water. Yeah. And so what I thought we'd do is take a look at a few photographs that have been have been exposed to specific pieces, musically speaking. Okay. Do you want to, which one would you like to talk about first? Well, I started doing a lot of music um, influences or mm-hmm. inspirations, I prefer to call them, mm-hmm. with water because my son had seen Emoto's work, which was very contrasting. He showed heavy metal kind of versus classical music. And um, my son saw the extremes and he couldn't identify with either. So he came to me and he said, I think water hates me. I'm like, why? And he said, because, you know, I like Tupac and Tupac swears and and so therefore water hates me. And I'm like, no, water is never in judgment. I'm pretty sure whoever did heavy metal didn't like it. So I did all these genres of music. And what I discovered is that water seems to like to pick up on words from songs. And one of the songs that I played repeatedly and did repeated studies with was um, Stairway to Heaven. Yes. And so every time I would play that song, I would see a stairway image appear in the ice. And I tested it again and again. And then I ended up writing the word stairway. It's absolutely fascinating yeah. because you did repeat this experiment. Yes. So, yes, there's some there's consistency mm-hmm. there. Um, we saw little hints also in the beginning of water being exposed to images, mm-hmm. pictures, mm-hmm. your thoughts and it will reflect it back to you. It's like it's trying to ha- develop a language with you. Mm-hmm. Someone, I did a podcast once, and uh, the podcast ended up being called The Water, the Liquid Language of God. Yes. And so there is definitely a relationship, and this is built on relationship. I don't see what I do as experimenting. I'm a body of water, and what I see is that water is responsive 
not just reactive to consciousness. Responsive. And so it's literally like a relationship. Yes, it's reaching through to communicate with you mm-hmm. in direct response to your questions and the images you're putting forth. But it also shows the incredible power of the mind. It does. So what happens in a field where so many minds are really in chaos and fear and such, looking at it through the lens of water? Mm-hmm. Well, what I like to see is that one drop of water that has been blessed can completely transform tap water. And tap water is often really disordered. We're going to look at that Mm -hmm. next. That's what I want to go to. And so why I say that is that Mm -hmm. so often we can easily get caught up in in what we think is the, the collective fear. But actually, I see that within the realm of water, water has the power to transform a whole ocean with one drop of pure love. And and this is also happens with tap water and spring water. It has to be happening in our bodies. Well, absolutely. We have the power to transform our entire life with a transformation of our perception. Water sees us. It reads potentials. So something interesting that I did recently was start putting seeds in water, removing them and freezing them, the, the water that had been imprinted. And I did one with a sunflower. I put a sunflower seed in the water uh, for 30 seconds, removed it, and water read the potential of the seed and designed an incredible clear image of a sunflower. <laughs> I, I did it. the same thing with a flax seed. But when I put a pistachio shell empty with no pistachio in it, the water designed the shell only. So it reads the potential of things. And I think it reads our potential. So you mentioned a moment ago the tap water. Mm-hmm. So we're going to look at some images, just kind of classic city tap water. Yep. City supplies, some is fluoridated, some is not, some is not fluoridated, or are they all fluoridated, or just random? Um, it's a little random, but mm-hmm. 90% of them are fluoridated. Mm-hmm. And we can see here, so what is so stark when you look at this? What surprised you about this initially? Well, I, I guess I wasn't so surprised, <laughs> to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, what we see is very disordered patterning, and it's consistent. In fact, I took some city water from one of the hospitals in New Zealand, and it's quite interesting because it was one of the most disordered waters that we see but that's because of where it was coming from from that particular area of the city there's this municipal tap water and you can smell the chlorine in it so what we see is water's response to what could be seen as trauma right um and at the same time after seeing and getting to know those structures i think what surprised me more So I would basically do the crystallography and then let that melt. And then I would hold it to my heart heart in its liquid stage for a minute in a very loving way. And then I put that same exact water into the freezer and refroze it. And then it refroze into incredibly beautiful fern patterns that were very coherent. Yes. So there was a structural change, but not a chemical change. So what does that mean? What that means is that water is responding in what could be seen as an emotional way. Yes. To me, this is without end. It's endlessly fascinating. Yeah. And so then in contrast to that, you took really 
clear, fresh spring water. Yeah. And let's take a look at what that image is showing us. Sure. With spring water, what we see is that it responds in hexagonal patterns. So hexagons really are the blueprint of water's original point of health. It's kind of like the snowflake pattern. Yes, it's very Mm -hmm. much like a snowflake Mm -hmm. pattern. And what we see is that water that has been frozen within half an hour from being taken from source gives you the truest response. So what we also know is that spring water or waters from a deep aquifers that are very, very vibrant form huge hexagons. I have taken a photograph of water that was taken from this beautiful cave um, in the middle of nowhere in the top of the South Island of New Zealand, and it formed a hexagon that took up the entire Petri dish. Wow. It's very, very rare to see. So what we also see, though, is that that hexagon shape starts to become smaller as the longer the water is held in a bottle or the longer it's not flowing. So you see the hexagon turn into this flower shape, which eventually turns into this kind of um, little hexagon, which then becomes a dot. And the hexagon is like the outline of a hexagon mm-hmm. without all of those beautiful kind of starry uh, fern patterns in the middle of it. What happens then, because probably most of the people watching this have some kind of purification system at the tap in their home. Yeah. What happens then when you take purified water? Mm -hmm. I mean, reverse osmosis, say. Yeah. I've used used all different types of waters in my crystallography. Mm -hmm. And what's that that look like, though? What does reverse osmosis look like? It has its own signature pattern. So it, it looks a tiny bit like the signature pattern of rain. So rain looks like a fanning pattern, whereas reverse osmosis, for, for it kind of has more lines that look a little bit straight. Mm-hmm. And so that's a signature pattern of reverse osmosis. So it has its own pattern. Not necessarily incoherent then. No, not necessarily incoherent. Mm-hmm. Purified water, I think it gives water a chance to breathe without the any toxins mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. So I think there really is a spirit of water. And, and that's where my uh, true realm lies. I think we need to understand what the crystallography is. Mm-hmm. Is it that water is more drinkable because it has beautiful hexagons? Or is it that the water is having an re- emotional response? Is it showing its state of health, its energetic state of health? That's actually what I think we're seeing. Yeah, and and of course everybody's wondering, depending on what they're putting in their body and what they're consuming, yeah. does the beauty and the beautiful crystal structure of the water affect their mind-body emotions when they take in this beautiful water, even though that state may be impermanent. But if they're taking it in that fresh, glorious state, like mm-hmm. that huge hexagram from the cave, yeah. what does that do to us? What do you think it does to us? Whereas this is still being studied, obviously. Yeah. Well, I think that we are the welcoming committee. I think whatever water that you drink has a chance to heal you, but it's very dependent on how you receive it. So, of course, we all want to drink the beautiful spring water that has giant hexagons, but not everybody can do that. That's right. Yeah. So I've done studies on saliva, where literally you spit into a dish and you freeze it. And what I've discovered is that the last sentence or the last word that you speak holds a vibration in your mouth. And that is so relevant. So 
when I've frozen the sample, I see an image literally in the bubble. So if I said, oh, I just made a wonderful lemon meringue pie. I love lemons. I love lemon trees. Lemon, lemon, lemon. And then you took the saliva. You'd probably see something that looked like a a lemon. Really? (laughs) I did. I did one where I was talking about the number eight. Uh And um, I said the number eight was the last word I said. Uh-huh. I froze the saliva uh-huh. and there was this clear, clear as day um, eight stamped into the bubble. So what that's really saying is that the words that we speak have a resonance that is in our mouth. And when we drink water, our saliva is the first liquid that mm-hmm. it touches. Mm-hmm. And then, they, of course, that brings into the intelligence of our body reading that information and of course that water is also intertwining with the information in saliva so that ties in with saying a blessing or being grateful saying a prayer before you drink water and how you receive it literally is how the water is going to respond in your body so if you don't have the perfect water and all you have is filtered water and you are consciously mindful of that last word of how you're receiving this fluid, which is, which is so life-giving, that is where going the to imprint it. So it's kind of like in Masaru Moto's work, it became very much part of pop culture to go to Whole Foods and buy your clear glass bottle with love etched on it, for example. Yeah. So it's the same thing, but you can do this simply by bringing it into your mouth with the thought of love and the feeling of love. It's going to do mm-hmm. the same thing. You don't need the intermediary. You know, actually, my children taught me something very interesting. Even more than uh, writing words or saying mm-hmm. words um, and drinking liquid water, as I've been doing my crystallography, my daughter, I was holding up a pretty sample, and she said, can I have that, mummy? And I said, sure. So I gave her the ice, and she started to eat it. And I said, oh, oh what are you doing? And she said, it's good for me, mummy. And I was like, okay. I stored it away, and then a week later, my son was doing the same thing. He said, can I have that? He ate the ice and said it was good for him. And then as I've been teaching my technique, I have all kinds of parents and they say, you know, my children are eating. They want to lick it. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's quite interesting because yes. what we've started to see is that when you write words, uh, water reads the energy of words and freezes into the energy of a word. And when you eat that ice, although it's very, very early days, People have actually been having incredible results from headaches to stomach aches to all kinds of things. Because if you think about it, you know, words have so much power. We've just talked about yes. that, even the written word. And so uh, if you ha- uh, if have insomnia, maybe, and you write the word rest, mm-hmm. and Deep then you're sleep. eating this, yeah, mm-hmm. you're eating this ice. Mm-hmm. If you do it every day for about a week, you really seem to start noticing a huge difference. Interesting. Yeah. You were talking about the saliva and what popped to mind was um, a series of books, the Anastasia series. I don't know if you read them, but in book one, Ringing Cedar series, Anastasia, I don't think you can even buy them now, which is a shame. But in the first book, this amazing woman from the deep forest in Siberia told, told the man who wrote the books um, that what their practice was, was to take the seeds plant and put them under the tongue and allow the saliva to permeate the seed and then to plant the seed so that it expressed all of the nutrients and minerals your body personally needed. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I actually know uh, someone who has a farm that has said that is absolutely true. Yeah. Although there is science to say that it's not true. There's, it's interesting because, you know, you kind of have to wonder, well, what's really true and what's not true. And if you have personal experience of something, then that's your truth. That's your truth. Absolutely. I just, I, I love that. Okay. Now we're going to get into a kind of touchy one and that is 5G Mm -hmm. and these technological effects on water. So why don't we take a look at what 5G exposed water looks like here? We can see this and go ahead and explain what we're saying. Yeah, well, what I did was I took spring water, which I knew its beautiful signature pattern, and I um, basically put it in a bottle and I put it just right beside a 5G tower. I did one for 15 minutes and one for half an hour. And when I did the crystallography within half an hour of having done that, uh, we saw extremely disordered patterns, one of the most disordered patterns I've actually seen. So that was um, really quite interesting because it was even more disordered than when I put the water by a router. And so I was curious to see that if I let that water melt and refroze it, would it continue to express disorder? So I did that six times. On the sixth time of melting and freezing, the water had actually gone back to its original pattern. So I found that to be at least something to consider is that the first initial response was like a shock. Mm -hmm. But water is able to and constantly seeks to go back to its original patterns Mm -hmm. if it's given the opportunity. And I think within the freezing melting stages, it helps water to go back to its original patterns. So how would you... Correlate that to the body's waters that are being exposed to these frequencies. Again, I think that, well, EMF is very real for a lot of people. A lot of people are very sensitive to these frequencies. What we're seeing is water responding and then finding ways to self-heal. And I constantly see that water will have a shock and react in a big way. And then if you keep letting it melt and freeze, you see improvement. So I think that we So what can we proactively do if people are living in an area that has 5G, maybe Mm -hmm. even has routers, and maybe they're in an apartment building, Wi-Fi, everything's running through them? Do you know what I've actually observed is that um, when you get magnesium oil and you rub it on your body, your Mm -hmm. skin, Mm -hmm. it actually does seem to create some kind of shield. Oh, interesting. What about if you take magnesium internally or does it have to be external? You can do both. Mm -hmm. I found that the external seems to really kind of create a shield that can last for quite a long time. Interesting. Yeah. So I would say that that would be something that you could definitely do that's good for you Mm -hmm. um, and is easy. I also think that um, understanding water and understanding the bio water, the water inside of your body Mm -hmm. and how it um, is intelligent, I think that sometimes we limit water with our own kind of um, limited understanding of it. Mm -hmm. But I think if we understood that water um, constantly seeks health and it's purpose really isn't to improve things it's always finding ways so it has to your back 
It's got your back. It's got your back. Okay. <laughs> One of the surprises you found also was that you were able to read the crystal structure of things like egg whites. Yes. And juice. Let's yes. talk about that for a moment. Well, I was wondering what would be the most naturally informed water on the planet and so I always thought it would be amniotic fluid. Mm-hmm. And since that's not readily available, mm-hmm. the next best thing was egg white. And it's quite good because eggs are in little containers. Mm-hmm. So I found that when you crack an egg open, um, the egg white or egg albumin is kind of in two parts, the gloopy gelatinous part and then the thin kind of more saliva-like part. Mm-hmm. When you freeze the thin saliva-like part, what you see in fresh, free-range, happy hen eggs is these beautiful sort of um, very complex patterns, and there's six of them that I've named. And what we see in caged hen eggs, it can only form two of those patterns, and they're the two most rudimentary. In standard farmed eggs. Yes. Yeah, in factories. Factory, factory eggs. eggs. Mm-hmm. And so what was interesting, because I was inspired by a man called Luke Montaneur, who did something which is kind of known as DNA teleportation. Well, I was thinking, what if I just put a free-range egg beside a caged hen egg and see if information is exchanged? Will one affect the other or will nothing happen? And so I, I did that and I left them overnight. And because I've done thousands of these, I know they always form the same patterns. So mm-hmm. it's not consciousness affecting the eggs. Mm-hmm. These these are very repeatable patterns. And so I'd never seen more than two patterns in caged hen eggs. But after I did the crystallography of having the free-range egg beside the caged hen egg, overnight the caged hen egg started to form incredible patterns. It improved and the free-range egg stayed beautiful. It wasn't degraded. But when I shared that on social media, everyone was like, Oh, yeah, that's cool. But what if you surround it by like bad eggs, so to speak? So I did that twice. I put a free range egg in the middle. I did controls and I surrounded it by caged hen eggs all from the same batch. And what we saw and we left them overnight. What I saw was that there was healing by proximity. The caged hen eggs that were the closest to the free range egg had all drastically improved to look just like free range eggs. The ones further away had improved, but not as much. And and this happened both times I did it. So what we're really seeing is that it's very similar to the one drop of uh, blessed water into a giant kind of ocean. It makes a difference. So if you want to look at it in human terms, if we start to heal ourselves, we naturally heal others. My teacher in India, he said some of the greatest saints that have ever walked the planet and the most beautiful people that have been here, they're like vessels of divine love. And their energy has reached and healed people that they will never meet because the energy has traveled so far across the world. And I think that this beautiful reality that we're seeing in eggs which of course That's amazing. What an amazing story. And mm-hmm. it I mean it just shows in living patterns entanglement. Yeah. Tangle entanglement on kind of a fundamental material level. Absolutely. Have you talked with Dean Radin and some of these people in the fields of consciousness and entanglement? It seems like water should be part of that story. Oh, I, it is part of the story. It, it is part of the story. Mm-hmm. It ties in with Rupert Sheldrake's morphic. Oh, absolutely. Fields. I absolutely agree with you. And and I also think that um Ancestral information is shared through the amniotic fluid. 
Yes. Yeah. Including in the eggs. Yes. Yeah. So one of the things I've wondered about for many years, I just contemplate is the notion that the bodies of water on earth are constantly receiving cosmic information. They're part of the solar system. And that information is here to help humanity evolve so the waters, therefore, with that imprintation, have to be doing the same. And then you have all the all of the animals and mammals that live inside the water as well. So what can, what can you share about the great bodies of water, the cosmos, the entanglement between the two, and maybe even species like whales and dolphins? Mm-hmm. Big conversation. Oh, if but, I could do it in one minute. No, I'll do it in one minute. <laughs> uh, basically, the oceans, um, they're kind of like a source, like source. And I always say that water isn't a resource, it's a source. source. Yeah. And we often forget that there's water in the air and water in the universe. And the word hydrogen means the creator of water. And some people think that hydrogen is the spirit of water. And so it's quite interesting because some people think that plasma is the mind of water and that liquid water is the body of water. And so when you think of the oceans, the oceans are full of salts. So they're storing so much information and they have electrical charge. I've always thought that electrical charge and the water in the air is the silver thread that connects the spirit to the body. And so in where water that's without a body as such is always in the spiritual stage. So there's constant energetic information sharing from all planets, stars, the universe. There is a constant movement and sharing of information from planet to planet, star to star, body to body, cell to cell. And what about just quickly dolphins or whales? And because they're known as well, whales in particular as memory keepers for mm-hmm. the planet. Well, I have a lovely story about whales. Please. Um, there's a man in New Zealand that does a lot of work with water and sound. And he has a device that essentially kind of can pick up the sound of plants, the sound of mushrooms, the sounds of trees, the sounds even of water, not just the trickling noises of water, but the actual sound that it makes. And so in New Zealand, we used to have a lot of whales that would move past beaches Mm -hmm. and they make sounds that travel very far. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people think that that sound only travels through the water, but actually the sound travels over through the water and over into the beach and then into the forests. And in New Zealand, we have a sacred tree, a native tree called the kauri tree. And the whales and the kauri tree have conversations Mm. and they know each other's sounds. So he took the sound of water and he thought, well, I wonder if we took the sound of the kauri tree and we went out into the deep ocean and we played the sound of the kauri tree, will the whales come? Mm-hmm. And I was talking to him just recently and he was going out on a boat to see if the whales came. And to my knowledge, they have. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So there is communication between trees and whales oh. as well. So beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of this, most of the people that are watching right now, it, it's taking you into a magical understanding of life, the interconnectedness of all of life. And we're simply, you know, another vehicle within that. No, obviously with a different type of consciousness. So let's go. We only have a few minutes left, so I'd like to get some more of the images in. So one, you 
talk to your mother on the other, she's deceased, as you mentioned, on the other side, and tell us about that and this image. Sure. Well, this is very special to me. So my mum was also my best friend, and she died in 1999. And years and years ago, I used to live in Japan, and my mum and I, would we would write letters to each other. And at the end of every letter, my mother would attempt to draw a circle. Her circles were terrible, and she'd draw a little heart in the middle. And I was missing her. And so I, I said to the water, can you connect to my mum? And when I froze the water after speaking that, um, I've pulled it out and there was this misshapen circle with a heart in the middle. <laughs> and of all of the things that water could have chosen to do, that, that one thing so personal between you. So personal. I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't yeah. projecting that. Yeah, it wasn't your mind. But now every, every time, uh, her birthday comes around, I ask the same question and I keep seeing the same response. Oh, yeah. That's just very heartwarming. And so also you started asking water about what life might be like on other planets. So Mm -hmm. tell us about a couple of these images. There's no limit to what you can ask water. Well, water really revealed what kind of looks like something from Star Wars a little bit, like this kind of long, tall buildings and various different kind of shapes. And when I asked it to show me what Mars looked like, it kind of looked, uh, even took on a kind of reddish color, which is interesting mm-hmm. because although you can see colors coming through the ice because of the background, the ice is very thin, I hadn't personally noticed anything very red. So there was a slight reddish tinge um, to the to the crystallography. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done a lot of things around asking water questions like, you know, what on earth was inspired by aliens? Oh, and there you got the pyramids of Giza. Uh-huh. Yeah, that image. Yeah. And we got an image, um, very much like one of the pyramids to, um, I think in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of a consistent. So then it's like, well, what is, alien, what is the word alien to water? I actually asked water, what is its first memory? And I think different bodies of water might have slightly different memories. Mm -hmm. And the image I saw was fascinating. It was kind of this very clear face with a very large eye and uh, the words I am were there. And when I have asked water, you know, who are you? I've got I am and I am consistently show up in the ice. Interesting. Well, we're just about out of time and people are listening to this and you say you're not using anything special, no special effects. You're using your iPhone to capture it. So just in the last bit, tell us how you capture these images in case some of our budding scientists at home want to do this themselves. Absolutely. Basically, I get a glass Petri dish. Glass is important. Um, I put a small amount of water in the dish And I freeze it for about five minutes and 20 seconds or until there's liquid on top and ice underneath. Then you pull it out, you tip the liquid water away, and then you quickly photograph the ice that is um, stuck to the Petri dish. Does it need to be on a light background, like on a light slide? No, I hold it up to the to the natural light. Natural light, okay. And I just use my iPhone. Children are doing it in schools. I love it. All kinds of people are doing it. Well, Betty, thank you so much for bringing water alive and central to our awareness. It's it's such a beautiful topic. And I see what you're saying in terms of it is the bridge between all of life. Absolutely. So thank you for the wonderful work you do and for the, having the due diligence to repeat these experiments and share it. And you got, I know you're going great places. So 
Thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing you again. It's my pleasure. I hope you found this as fascinating as I have lots to contemplate here. Keep an eye out for Veda's new book, and be sure to visit her site at VedaAustin.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Well, there we go. Wow. Watcher. Watcher. Gans water. <laughs> Where did they go to check that out? What's what's the website to check out TV. No, to check Gans water out. The specific oh. site. Um I gotta put um Dr. Mr. Cash. Just put Mr. Kesh, K-E-S-H-E, in the search engine and you'll find. Yeah. Okay. Gans Water, G-A-N-S, Water. And that's quite an interesting journey, (laughs) to say the least. But, um, so this one is called Megalithic Mysteries of Lake Titicaca. What information is encoded within architecture at Tiwanaku and Pumapunku near Lake Titicaca with megalithic ruins linking ancient sites worldwide. Experts and hypothesizing um, these wonders could belong to civilizations as old as Mu, Atlantis, or Lemuria. All right. Linking Timonaku and Pumapunku to Egypt and Easter Island, researchers and archaeologists have discovered connections between pre-Diluvian civilizations due to the advanced engineering and precise astronomical alignments and similar structures. With megalithic stonework and ruins linking ancient sites, experts are hypothesizing these wonders could belong to civilizations as old as ancient Mu, Atlantis, and Orlamuria. This is featuring Greg Braden, Freddie Silva, Kedrick Olson, Michael Cremo, Rita Louise, Maria Wheatley, Matthew LaCroix, um, William Henry, Andrew Collins, Hugh Newman, Armando Ma'i. And we shall, this is uh, in English, Deutsch, Frankreich, and Espanol. Yes, that's French, Spanish, German, and English. That's quite a combo Mm. of different languages and countries. So this is 27 minutes, and let's do it now. 
High in the Andes in South America sits the majestic Lake Titicaca. Embedded in myth, this body of water is unlike any other on the planet. This legendary lake is 12,507 feet above sea level and is 118 miles in length, straddling the border of Bolivia and Peru. According to mainstream, before the Inca Empire, the Tiwanaku Empire rose to power around this area of South America between 550 and 950 AD. The sacred site, now known as Tiwanaku, is considered one of the largest ancient pre-Diluvian sites in South America. Stretching over two miles, this is home to several mysterious structures that have puzzled researchers and archaeologists. There are foundations and carvings with powerful connections to Easter Island. Under the water of Lake Titicaca, ancient ruins remain buried under roughly four to six feet of silt. Megalithic stones are scattered around the lake as if they were thrown like pebbles. What was happening in this mysterious area long before the lake began rising from the never-ending storms and cataclysms during the end of the world? One of the most mysterious places in the southern Andes of Peru is Lake Titicaca. This is a mysterious lake, and geologically it's fascinating because there was a time that this lake was at sea level. And the marine life in the water at the time in the lake was from sea level. And when the mountain building episode occurred and the Andes rose and this lake rose with it, it captured whatever life was in this area, made it into a lake. And now that life, hundreds of generations, thousands of generations later, have become unique life forms that you don't see anywhere else in the world. They're their their own unique genre of, of life forms. So Lake Titicaca today, it sits at 12,000 feet above sea level, is the highest navigable lake in the world today. It is a hotbed for mysterious lights in the skies that enter and leave the water of the lake. The indigenous people say it's their ancestors that are coming and going. So I'm not surprised that it is near this lake that we find where the most mysterious archaeological sites as well. Tiwanaku is, uh, it is a large complex that is made of essentially three separate areas. And one of the largest of these is a platform called uh, Pumapunku. And it is on this site where we find some of the most mysterious aspects of Tiwanaku itself. Lake Titicaca is the highest lake in the world. And it's basically been off limits to archaeologists. I mean, diving in Lake Titicaca is, is very dangerous business. And it wasn't until April of 2019 that divers were able to dive to the bottom of Lake Titicaca. And they made some incredible discoveries. They found some pre-Inca artifacts that had been intricately carved. And they readily recognized that these were offerings that were given to the lake. To the Incas, Lake Titicaca was supernatural, was mysterious. It was, a, it was a place where humans could connect with the gods. And the very fact that they were 
ultimately and finally able to dive down and, and make this discovery suggests that perhaps Lake, Lake Titicaca has even more secrets to reveal and that maybe now is the time for those secrets to start to unravel. In the center of the Tiwanaku complex is the Kalasasaya, which translates to stopped stones. Within these walls stands a monument called Puerta del Sol, meaning Gateway of the Sun. The sophistication of design around the pre-Diluvian megalith further promotes a knowledge and understanding of our universe far beyond our current understanding. Just in front of the Kalasasaya is a subterranean temple named Cantatalita, also referred to as Temple of the Moon. Adding more mystery to the Tiwanaku Temple complex, the Akapana Stepped Pyramid Mound stands roughly 59 feet tall and appears to have been massively destroyed from its original shape. Another powerful ceremonial site right next to Tiwanaku is Pumapunku, which translates to Gate of the Puma. Modern legend from Tiwanaku is full of tales from the Inca Empire and how it rose to power between 1438 to 1533. But what about the cultures who didn't desire to rise to power, didn't need to call any land their own? The cultures who were trying to connect the above with the below. How many of those cultures have inhabited these mysterious lands before the younger Dryas? Tuanaku is a huge city complex that consists of a number of very important uh, architectural features. You have this massive courtyard known as the Kalasasaya. Um, and next to the Kalasasaya, you've got this sunken courtyard that's orientated northwest with these walls that have these human heads carved in stone as tenants, uh, all of them all very different. And this structure is very clearly the oldest of all of them because it's on a different alignment to everything else and may well have been present hundreds if not thousands of years before the rise of the monuments that we see. The problem with this is that there was a much older culture that occupied the site. Their monuments are beneath those of what we see today. When we look at Tiwanaku, we can look at it from a couple of different perspectives, from the architecture itself and from the information encoded into the architecture. The architecture itself is astounding. What we find in Tiwanaku and Pumapunku are stones that are created with such precision beyond what can be done with machines today. The mysterious H-shaped stones that interlock like Legos. Each stone is created with absolute precision and this was not done with hammers and chisels. We know this with certainty. We begin to find joints of these stones that are carved or poured, perhaps, with such precision that you can't even slip a piece of paper in between the joints. And the mysterious series of 
perfect six millimeter diameter holes, evenly spaced. All along the stones suggest that these stones may have been used for something even more than what we see in use today. They were obviously used for uh, an astronomical site, an astronomical marker. And this comes into play because when we ask how old is Tiwanaku? There are many theories. One of the theories that was developed early in the 20th century is that the site, different places within the site are oriented toward the sun and solstice markers. The problem is that it is slightly off based upon where the sun is today. And if we were to realign the sites with the sun to make these these markings as precise as everything else, it means that we would have to go back in time between between 12 and 17,000 years before present. Now, that's controversial in terms of traditional archaeology. However, it fits perfectly into what we're seeing in other ancient sites from Egypt and from North America, from Corral uh, in northern Peru. Many other sites, we're talking about pre-Diluvian sites. We're talking about sites that were built during the Ice Age or in the warming periods within the Ice Age that were subject to the conditions of the ice melting or of the torrential rains that happened from the weather pattern changes at the melting of the Ice Age. Tiwanaku and Pumapunka are located in the same place on the Altiplano of Bolivia. They once stood right next to Lake Titicaca many thousands of years ago. Now the thing is, they've raised in elevation hugely from where they probably were. So how did this happen? So there's a big story that there was some kind of cataclysm that took place at Tiwanaku and at Pumapunku. And you can see this when you go there. You can literally see stones are being flung around. Many of these multi-ton stones, probably up to a hundred tons, some of them, they've just been knocked out of place. So what could have caused that, we don't know. But it looks like it was some kind of tidal wave, possibly in Lake Titicaca, when there was huge shifts in the land. Now, Viracocha, according to local traditions, he appears in Tiwanaku uh, after a, a global catastrophe. Now, here's the problem with this story. Uh, the fact is that there are different building methods in Tiwanaku. And it's very obvious to anyone who's been there, there is a very early uh, primordial period. There's a second building period. There's a rebuilding period as though it's been, the place has been completely devastated by a catastrophe. Uh, like the whole of Lake Titicaca just emptied onto the city of Tiwanaku and someone came afterwards and rebuilt it. Now, in my understanding, that's the moment when Peter Kosher and his group of people suddenly appear. So he was coming back to rebuild something that was already established in that era. And according to some of the uh, archaeological discoveries at the area and also the alignment of the temple of Tiwanaku, there is a suggestion that the place is much, much older than the flood. Researchers of ancient civilizations are enamored with the, the idea of a lost civilization in the Pacific, Lemuria or Mu, and then of course Atlantis. And they wonder, is it possible that they met in Tiwanaku? The reason for this speculation comes from a book published in 1945 by Arthur Poznansky from an archaeoastronomy perspective. This corresponds perfectly with the time frame of Plato's Atlantis story, that Atlantis was a civilization that existed 9,000 years before Plato's time. When we look around 
Tiwanaku, we find incredible stone buildings that match other stone buildings that researchers are dating to the Atlantean time period. Plato expressly stated that the Atlantean buildings were made of red, black, and white stone. And that's exactly what we find at Tiwanaku, confirming this possibility that Tiwanaku is a, an Atlantean civilization, possibly. Now, that opens up, again, this idea that perhaps the people from Mu were able to then travel over to Tiwanaku and meet the Atlanteans, and we find, therefore, a confluence of these two highly enigmatic civilizations. Arthur Poznanski, known for his strong personality and exotic ideas, was a former officer for the Austro-Hungarian Navy, who also worked nearly 50 years on his archaeological quest to uncover the truth of the ancient Andes. His book, Tiwanaku, The Cradle of American Man, dates the building of Tiwanaku to 15,000 BC. His controversial ideas have opened the doors for alternative researchers to explore the fringe of Andean archaeology. Poznanski talks about the Kalasasaya courtyard in which is this very famous monument, which is known as the Gateway of the Sun. And what he said is that the Kalasasaya is orientated specifically east-west. Nothing strange about that. But that the corners of the Kalasasaya were the rising points of the sun at the time of the solstices. So that's the summer solstice and the winter solstice. And that the points that the sun rises at solstice change across a period of 41,000 years, only by a few degrees. And although this might not tell us exactly how old the structure is that we see today, what it tells us is that there could well have been a foundation on that spot. And that's very, very important because if that's so, that's evidence of a lost civilization. The work of Arthur Poznanski in the early 1900s put the date back to 17,000 years. Now, this was dated on very precise archaeoastronomy of the Kalasasaya Temple. Basically, if you stand in a specific spot of the temple, this is the huge rectangular temple, which has the huge monoliths that form this kind of almost like a square around it. If you look towards the east, you can actually observe the movement of the sun over the whole solar year, going from the extreme solstice to the other extreme solstice, like the winter to the summer. And in the middle, the middle stone would mark the equinox. Also, if you just look at the site, you look at the lichen on the stones, you look at the way they're extremely weathered, the ones that have been above the surface, and you look at the destruction there. It looks like something that's been there for 20 or 30,000 years. It's absolutely incredible. Poznanski said there's something about these temples that suggests an even older period. Least of all because the semi-subterranean temple nearby was not semi-subterranean at all. It's only semi-subterranean because the mud that's been built up around it because of the deposits laid by Lake Titicaca made it subterranean. And for that requires over 10,000 years of flooding and reflooding. And during my time there, I've made the observation that the temples around the Kalasasai quadrangle are offset by three degrees, which means that these three temples 
are looking at the horizon in a completely different period of time. So let's take uh, Poznansky's uh, quadrangle measurement, 15,000 BC as your benchmark. You add 20,000 years to allow for the tilt of the Earth to have moved three degrees, that gives you 36,000 years. And it fits into the scheme of where the Tiwanakan culture and the Egyptian culture may have been forming part of the same group of global civilization at that particular time. The evidence that Tiwanaku is aligned with the stars is a powerful pre-Diluvian clue. But several other mathematical messages present an even stronger connection to the gods' technology. So we talk about the information encoded into the temples. In Tiwanaku, we have to talk about what is called the Gate of the Sun. And this is a fascinating single piece of stone that is carved approximately 10 feet tall, And there is a figure in the center with a face and the navel is very present. When we draw a line from the navel at the center and we draw that line down to the base of the door, we have a perfect golden triangle. If you were to draw a line underneath the rectangular windows about midpoint and you draw the lines, you have another perfect golden triangle, and if you transpose the Vitruvian man from Leonardo da Vinci's work, where you see with his arms outstretched and his legs showing all of the body proportions and the phi ratio proportions of sacred geometry, if you were to superimpose that upon the this particular monument, what we find is numerable intersection points between the human body and the marks and the sites that are on this stone. So clearly we're looking at architecture, which is extraordinary. Within the architecture, we're looking at an information system that was left without writing for those that would understand how to decode these sacred proportions that apply to all life, that apply to us, and apply to our relationship to time. The mathematics that we see encoded into the Gate of the Sun, Tiwanaku, These are precisely the mathematics that we see encoded in some of the most ancient and sophisticated temples remaining in the world today, from Saqqara in Egypt to the Giza Plateau. We see them throughout Northern Europe. We see them even in the sites, the Mesoamerican sites that we find, such as Chaco Canyon and Corral. This is a universal language that transcends words. It transcends writing because it's based upon universal principles of the world we live in and nature herself. This sacred land, nearly two and a half miles above sea level, holds foundational evidence providing links back to the precision of building found in ancient Egypt. Pumapunku, believed to be a pyramidal structure, is a site that mostly remains buried and is a deeper mystery to researchers and archaeologists. Could this potential pyramid be another clue that this area was visited and influenced by pre-Diluvian gods? What other trails of evidence did they leave for us to lead future generations to these sacred sites? Pumapunku is really quite unique when it comes to design, shape, style, and also the types of stone, because we have two main types of stone. We have the sandstone, which comes from about eight miles away from a quarry to the south, 
This is very rich in iron, so it has these kind of magnetic qualities. And the main stone used there is andesite. This is a very hard type of volcanic stone. And this comes from Kerokapia, which is a mountain on the other side of the lake. And it's around 50 miles away. And so there's actually a trail of stones from the quarry at that mountain all the way across the lake, all the way to Tiwanaku. And these are called the lazy stones or the tired stones. It's almost like they've been dropped there deliberately by the builders to mark this ancient sacred route, bringing the stones from their sacred birthplace at Kerokapia. At Puma Punka, for example, the stones were cut into modular geometric shapes that remind the use a precise technological system. But how did the men of the time cut such hard stones so precisely? So according to experts, this is possible only using precise advanced devices. It is also remarkable that the builders used metal staples to fix the stones, putting them together. And I believe this is a further evidence of a building plane very sophisticated. So the clues of an advanced technology that was used to build Tiawanaco and Pumapunka, that are witness of an ancient civilization living on Earth before the Great Flood. When we leave Pumapunku in the incredible H-blocks and look around, we find corresponding examples in Egypt. The incredible Osirion behind the Temple of Seti at Abydos features these massive or cyclopean red granite blocks that are perfectly fitted together. You can hardly slip a razor in between the joints, yet there's no mortar. And it suggests a, a capability, a manufacturing capability that was known not only at Pumapuku, but also in Egypt at the same time. The natural question that emerges is, how is it possible that both of these cultures separated by oceans had the same type of advanced machining ability to work with these stones? There must have been communication with them, and it could possibly be that they are in fact the same builders at each site. Tiwanaku and Pumapunku both display very sophisticated engineering and knowledge. But the question remains, who were the builders? The first decision in coming to Bolivia and Peru, uh, all the territory that I remember with the name Harinmibu, was the territory under the power of Mu. The Mu civilization was basically like the keepers of all this coming from the skies in all the Pacific Ocean. So they were the builders of the bases for them to come, to have the meetings, to have the trespass of information. And Tiwanaku was one of these special spots where all the energy of the planet was flowing through. There was a main difference between the Mu civilization and the Atlantean. The Mu civilization was much more connected with the flow of everything, much more connected with the energy of the things. And the Atlantean civilization was much more mathematical and trying to understand the patterns that creates everything. And that's why there are two types of, of building there. The basements that are from the Mu time, they didn't make temples in uh, Mu time. They, they just did the platforms. It was all open. And then the Atlanteans came and built temples on the top of it. 
the Atlantean civilization used to build these three main gates everywhere in every one of their colonies because we're the gates for certain stars in certain moments of the year that would open the specific information from those stars. So the people in those temples in certain moments of the year, they would become the stars through those portals. The part of Mu in that in Tiwanaku would be all um, kind of missing, just a few blocks on the ground that hold what was once the the main base of those who came from the skies. So nothing really to be able to be seen. It's more, it's, everything is much more covered by the Atlantis of the station that built the doors, that built everything. But you can still see some of the new civilization in some parts along the entire Pacific. Do the pre-Diluvian sites around Lake Titicaca connect with some of the oldest ancient civilizations on the planet? And were they constructed by the Mu civilization only to be rebuilt by the Atlanteans before and after the Great Flood? As with most cultures that rise to the empire level, the elders and leaders are highly protected and informed. Could these powerful empires that have occupied these sacred sites around Titicaca have had access to legendary information passed down from the pre-Diluvian gods? Did they know the legends of Zeptepi, the Anuna, Sumer, Mu, and Atlantis? Was discovering these megalithic stones and sophisticated foundations of these temples something the early elders believed was their gift from the gods? Were they searching for these sacred places to be used in their efforts to control? Or did they believe they had found their new home to connect with the ancient knowledge designed and built before the end of the world? lot of uh, very uh, concentrated information, huh, Rama? Yeah. Knowledge coming straight from stones of the earth. Stone people. The stone people. Mm. Yeah, they have sentience, these stones, right now? Yeah. Okay. Now, this is uh, called Dream Interpretation. Natalie Buttress asks Peter Planica to interpret a a prophetic dream and get guidance. Mm. Interpreters like Peter Planica view dreams as channels of communication between the physical world and the other side, providing messages that can be used to help people face their past, 
and trauma. In this episode, Peter and Natalie Buttress work together to unveil the messages hidden within her dreams, as well as provide education on the benefits everyone can gain from an interpretation. Again, featuring Peter Planica, and in parentheses, that I guess that that last name means gold, Fibin, P-H-Y-B as in boy, N. I never heard that word before. Mm. Have you? Mm-mm. No. And Natalie Buttress. This is 24 minutes, and so we shall proceed. Here we go. However, sort of, there was a lot of procrastination, but one day all my buttons were pressed when I suffered severe back pain, back problems. And um, I was supposed to have surgery, all these sort of things, but um, I didn't get to it. A miracle came uh, through an American doctor called um, Isa Lindvall and his wife, Yolanda. They were practicing releasing work. And um, in that process, I learned how to release burdens and problems. And I was completely um, freed from that burden, having a lot of fear about back problem and not being able to work. I had a spiritual experience. I just flipped 
when are released enough, one says it's like a balloon that wants to rise, but something is holding it back. And I was held back by a few little problems. When I released that, I took off. So being on a spiritual path at the time of meditation, I had a spiritual master and um, I met that master on the other side in the other world. And so there was a link created between the spiritual world and me being here. This was a process that flung me into um, the higher worlds. During this process, I met my higher self and also guided guiding entities, as well as the releasing master. So I got internal guidance on where to go, what to do, and what to attend to. And one of the projects which were uh, cut out for me was to learn about angelic um, concepts. And uh, the dream world is part of it. So um, I tended to what they call angelic script, which is, uh, they call it light script, which is part of uh, the higher world type of uh, communication system and also how this relates to being here on earth and how it relates to dream worlds. It was a complete retraining of everything. So I never really read any books on dreams, but it became such a fascinating uh, subject for me. So I started to interpret my dreams and uh, I got inner help also how to decipher things. And this was my first step into the world of dreams. Dreams have long been regarded as a map to the subconscious mind. Dream interpreters take this further, seeing them as a channel of communication between our world and the spirit realms, transmitting messages ready to be decoded. So most people on this planet dream, some don't, but most people do. And there's an amazing, I discovered there's an amazing importance to it because there is this part in ourselves that would like to connect to the other worlds. So we live by assumption, what is it like in the heavens? What is it like in the astral worlds? And we read books, this and that, and different information. But um, doing it yourself is very different. One very important aspect on dream interpretation is um one often gets referred back to life purpose and also healing. If um, your neighbor is not well, your child is not well, the husband or the wife is not well, there is definite information what the problem is. And so through the dreams, you might connect with ancient karmas, which um, says this is the problem, okay? And it needs to be resolved. Another one is that um, before one would fall ill of any sort or has an accident, there's the dream that will hint at something is going to happen. And um, so the miracle is, of course, what do you do with the dream? A lot of people write down and dot down the dream, but still don't know uh, what it actually means.
So today um, we have a little business with Natalie. Um, Natalie had a dream and um, she's wondering what to do about it. She will give me the dream. I will look at it. I'll dot down um, all the different elements and then uh, decipher the exact meaning of her dream, which is, of course, uh, angelic language, angelic uh, symbolism and also colors. So we, we do that as an exercise. We will see what happens in the end. Coming up on the other side, we meet Natalie, who is searching for the meaning behind one of her most significant dreams yet. Dreams have always been sacred uh, to me. Um, from family lineage heritage. I've always been guided by my dreams. I've listened to them. I've learned to know them and remember them. And I really believe in the sacredness of dreams. When we were children, we were asked to write down our dreams and hand them in for interpretation. Um, and I sort of developed a culture of years of really paying attention to my dreams and in the past I've been gifted with prophetic dreams which have guided me warned me, assisted me over the years and I actually had a dream um, just recently the other day it was a prophetic dream and it announced the arrival of a long lost friend that I hadn't seen in more than a year and I dreamt, him, I dreamt about him the night before and the very next day he rocked up here at the house <laughs> And I just looked at my, my husband um, and we both chuckled because I told him about the dream. So for me, dreams are special. They are sacred in a sense. And if we pay enough attention, a lot of our answers or conflicts or dilemmas can be answered by our dreams. Dreams are a vital part of the human experience. Many of us dream in vivid imagery, rich colors, and powerful emotion. Yet, few of us understand what it all means. I had a dream a while ago that involved a very beautiful and special part of the area in which I live. So I was asked to share this particular dream by spirit. I was walking down a pathway from the shore towards the beach um, and I was at friend's house and I came across these sort of newly built but unfinished um, construction. Um, they were unfinished but inhabited. There were tables, there were chairs, um, clothing, but no one was around. It was sort of empty and quiet. And I walked through, I announced my presence um, when I came to the entrance, sort of saying, hello, is there anyone there? Hello. Um, and no one responded. So I continued to walk through the home. And I walked through the, the, the building and onto the rest of the beach, and I came across these sort of 
uh, tropically sort of decorated cabanas. And these were all people that I knew. Um, they were all family friends and it wasn't any special event or gathering. It was just sort of everyday life and people were happy and they were all sharing. And it was quite, um, this lovely Afrikaans word I like to use, geselig, which means sort of festive and, you know, with people around. And I was saying hello, greeting everybody. And all of a sudden, I saw Jason Momoa. <laughs> yes, I am a fan. Um, and he arrived, but he had wings and he sort of landed flying. He was flying and he landed on the beach. And I asked him if he was sort of involved in the new buildings. And he said, yes, we are, we've landed. We are here now. Um, and I said, well, you can't just sort of land here. You, you can't sort of be here without speaking to the people who live here. You have to sort of ask or sort of make yourself acquainted with the people that live here. I remember seeing him fly um, up the Roburg because the setting of the dream was on the beach and the Roburg, which is a very well-known landmark in our part of the world, um, is right there. And I sort of remember him flying with wings up the Roburg and then flying down. Um, there wasn't sort of any adulation on my part. I was talking to him as if he was just sort of another person coming to visit. Um, and I remember vividly him flying up from the Roburg and then flying down. And there were lots of kids and it was, it was very beautiful. And I felt that I was somehow in the dream welcoming him and sort of trying to introduce him to the people that were already sort of on the beach. So I haven't had that specific dream opened up for me or interpreted. And I usually do have people who interpret dreams for me. And that particular one stuck out because it involves a very special place to me. And I think most people who live in this area, um, it's a very special beach and a very special landmark. So... I'm very keen to have this dream interpreted and opened up for me. So we have Nataline here, and uh, Nataline will present me with a dream. And um, it's a very important dream, and we're going to go through the entire system and uh, decipher what the spirit world is telling you. Um, it's it's a dream that I haven't actually had interpreted uh, to me, and I'm glad I'm getting this opportunity now. And also because it sort of involves a little bit of our beautiful area that we live in. Super. And it was colorful. It yes. was a very beautiful, festive, colorful feeling that I had. But like I said, not a it wasn't a special gathering oh, or yeah. event. It was mm-hmm. just sort of normal. The semi-finished building, did it look like brick? It it was grey, like plastered, but not painted. Right. I've got it. Okay. I've been uh, working with this dream. Okay. And uh, it won't take long. Thank you. And we'll take you to another, to different heights. (laughs) (laughs) With Jason (laughs) Lomawa. Yes. (laughs) 
coming up on the other side. Peter unveils the messages hidden within Natalie's dream. Now, um, you're mentioning um, there's the beach. Okay. Um, so the ocean and the base stands for your financial business activities, which are run the divine way. So the beach, yes. there's the ocean out there. You're not in the ocean, you're not making money and such. But no. again, you've got the Kabbalah kind of set up. Yes. So this is so much like you. Yes. You're informal. Yeah. Very informal. Yes. Um, the little bit of healing it would need is um, surrendering and releasing yeah. the sand, doing the same thing again ah. without actually going to the divine because doing the next step going within meeting your higher self or your master it needs divine grace so you are having a good time the way you are it's all positive then Jason Momoa comes Jason Momoa comes he flies exactly him out of all people now um so there wasn't another name tag on it to say it's so-and-so, it's the president or whatever. But no, but I, I, I did feel that he was a person of authority in the dream, besides being me recognizing him as that person. Yes. But in the dream, I felt that he was a person of authority and I was completely awestruck by yeah. him. So he has a twist in angelic uh, projection okay. of a person because... This person is no other than your higher self. Okay, wow. That's the way he showed himself. Ah. So it okay. appears um, you're not uh, guided by the soul, but higher self. It's another higher frequency. So there's this information. And he's happy, he's very joyful how things go, how you run your life and what you do. Isn't that flying? Mm. So, if you dream about flying, mm. it means you're going to have a very joyous occasion, this sort of thing. But here's the point also which needs healing. Okay. You know? yeah. The next step. So, which would be to give your higher self permission to enter you completely and to connect with you completely. Mm. Because it's like holding out, hey, what are you doing mm. here? I'm having time and doing everything right. Mm. So the next step um, would be to open up. Mm. And surrender. And surrender. Mm. So dreams offer the eye of the needle for yes. this particular breakthrough for you to become a much bigger person. Releasing more clutter. This is your dream. Yes. Wow, thank you. That's very beautiful. So, uh, to sum it all up, um, this particular session with Natalie, which she says was uh, very interesting and very helpful. And just to point out um, the points of healing through dreams, aspects of yourself, um, 
still wandering about um, in this world without actually connecting to another wish she has, uh, which is her divine, her uh, higher self. Um, there is also healing um, for the higher self in a form of um, he's separate to his female higher self. And so this takes another another work, which um, I'm sure is true. Naturally, it can happen where both male and female higher self emerging. It was a beautiful session, um, quite revealing, a lot of deep healing needed. I was completely blown away by everything that I'd heard and discovered about myself as we do when we have our dreams opened. Um, but not surprised because it's kind of something that's been lingering in the back. I think something that I maybe didn't really want to look at. I would, I would really advocate um, people, if you are struggling with dreams or if you sort of, something sort of disturbing you about a dream, Find someone that can do a dream interpretation because I really do believe that a lot of our messages and guidance for a lot of people who can't sit quietly and meditate or take the time needed to discover their higher selves or their spiritual path, dreams are a good way to, to access the other side. So I just want to say thank you to Peter. Um, he's always been an amazing source of counseling, wisdom. I'm grateful for the work that he does because it is about the healing and it's about reconnecting with self and your higher self. One could think of, okay, what's the whole point of all this? But um, so the point is growth, growing. It's the evolution, our evolution here on this planet to grow, uh, to shed the past through releasing, surrendering, adapting to a higher frequency, and that uh, brings freedom. Um, having connection to the other world, understanding the soul world, the spirit world, and the divine world. This is our destiny. And so this is the healing of um, dreams. For those like Peter, the seemingly nebulous world of dreams is in fact carrying meaning in every shape, color, and place. A portal that lies within the collective subconscious, transmitting information and knowledge through symbols, carrying messages from the other side.
Yugam, that was great. <clears throat> so many are teaching, so many are <coughs> awakening. It's a beautiful time to be in the world, everybody, to share the experience together. So, we are going to play some more music from the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. This is just about a half hour. But, uh, I'm sure that we will enjoy that. So, we will do that. And let us begin. Let me just turn up the sound here. Let's get that down. Okay, and then we turn it on. Here we go. You're home all day long with a little lift from BYU TV. During difficult days, we need the warmth and reassurance that God offers His children. He knows us perfectly and wants happiness and joy for us today and forever. You're watching BYU TV on KBYU DT Provo, Salt Lake City. hundred years, the Nutcracker Ballet has delighted audiences at Christmas time. The ballet opens with family and friends gathering on Christmas Eve. The gift of a Nutcracker unleashes a fantastic adventure for a little girl named Clara, complete with gingerbread soldiers, dancing snowflakes, a handsome prince, and a sugar plum fairy. Audiences around the world love the imaginative story. The unforgettable musical score by Tchaikovsky and the fanciful choreography and sets. But at least part of the magic of the Nutcracker happens in gathering, the coming together of different people, not only on stage, but also in the audience. Gathering is also a big part of the magic of Christmas. Something about this season brings families and friends together. In some cases, we're continuing a tradition of generations. In others, we're hoping to start a new tradition. Either way, we sense that Christmas is meant to be shared, to be experienced together. It involves giving and receiving and connecting. In a sense, gathering is an act of faith. We gather at Christmas because we believe, among other things, in each other, in humanity, in the ambitious promise repeated every Christmas of peace on earth. And as we gather, something special happens, something sacred even. We wish each other joy and happiness. We look past differences and see common hopes and desires. There may still be misunderstandings and disagreements. That's almost unavoidable when people gather. But even if it's only for a few hours, our gathering takes us a small step closer to peace on earth. Just like the family in the Nutcracker, many families gather on Christmas Eve. One common tradition is to read the Christmas story found in Luke chapter 2. There we read about good tidings of great joy. We repeat the angelic plea for peace, 
goodwill toward men. We read about the holy gathering around the humble manger. We reflect on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And those words, if we let them, change us. We feel more inclined to open our hearts to others. Our love for the Lord strengthens our love for each other and for all of God's children. We feel moved to gather, to truly come together, different though we may be. And as we gather, we feel God's love because it's his love, ultimately, that draws us together. Till we meet again. We've been doing this for a long time, everybody. We're not stopping now. So Rama's got something we found for tonight. Tell us about this, Rama. This is Alan Watts talking about um, stop thinking, stay centered. Stop thinking, stay centered. A bit of zen. A bit of zen for this evening. Here we go. This is 20 minutes, everybody. Oh, I gotta turn the sound up. Yes, you do. <laughs> is this all the way up? Yeah, you gotta turn it over here. Uh-huh. Which way? That way. This way? It's the yeah. high? Yeah, it's... Okay. Are you sure? Or is it this? Yeah, just okay. like that. All right. Well, I have a sort of suggestion. And that is this that before we decide either to save the planet or to destroy it, we pause for a moment of silence. I don't mean that kind of grim silence which one observes when somebody says, uh, such and such a famous person has just died and we'll observe a moment of silence in his honor. And everybody frowns and thinks very serious thoughts. That's not silence at all. I mean real silence, in which we stop thinking and experience reality as reality is. Because after all, if I talk all the time, I can't hear what anyone else has to say. And if I think all the time, and by that I mean specifically talking to yourself subvocally inside your skull, If I think all the time, I have nothing to think about except thoughts. And so I'm never in touch with the real world. Now, what is the real world? Some people have the theory that the real world is material or physical. and say it's made a kind of a stuff. Other people have the theory that the real world is spiritual or mental. But I want you to point out that both those theories of the world are concepts. They are construction of words. 
And the real world is not an idea. It is not words. Reality is... You'll find, therefore, that if you get with reality, all sorts of illusions disappear. And I will mention several illusions that have not this kind of existence. Let's begin with some very down-to-earth ones, like money. Money is a very useful method of accounting. It is a measure of wealth in the same way as inches are measures of length and grams measures of weight. You cannot eat money. You could have a fantastic quantity of dollar bills and uh, stock certificates on a desert island and they would be useless to you. What you would need would be food and uh, animals and companions. Money simply represents wealth in rather the same way that the menu represents the dinner. Only we are psychologically perverted in such a way that we would, some of us would rather have money than real wealth. But you know, you cannot drive in five cars at once, even though they be Cadillacs. You cannot live simultaneously in six houses or eat 12 roasts of beef at one meal. There is a limit to what one can consume. So that's one of the sort of confusions I'm talking about. I once talked to a woman who came to me and said she was afraid of death. And uh, we went into it in a long conversation. I said, what are you really afraid of? And she thought it over and thought it over. And he said, you know, what I'm going to be afraid of is what other people are going to say. They're going to say, poor old Gert, she couldn't last it through. <laughs> because you see, <laughs> who you think you are is entirely dependent on who people have told you you are. You're not that. Then another thing that bothers, bothers us is time. Most people nowadays say, I have no time. Of course you don't. Because you are not aware of the present. You know, the present is represented on your watch by a hairline that is as thin as possible as is consistent with visibility. And so everybody thinks the present is instead of Now, the present is the only real time. There is no past, and there isn't a future, and there never will be.
We think ordinarily of the present as an infinitesimal point at which the future changes into the past. And we also do a terrible thing. We imagine ourselves to be results of the past. And we're always passing the buck over our shoulders, like uh, when God approached Adam in the Garden of Eden and said, Hast thou eaten of the fruit of the tree whereof I told thee thou shouldst not eat? And Adam said, This woman thou gavest me, she tempted me, and I did eat. And God looked at Eve and said, Hast thou eaten of the fruit of the tree whereof I told thee thou shouldst not eat? And she said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And God, out of the corner of his eye, looked at the serpent. The serpent said nothing. So you see, we're always passing the buck. Don't realize that the past is caused by the present, as the wake of a ship flows back from the prow. Now, the wake doesn't drive the ship any more than the tail wags the dog. But we've all got excuses. My mother had a fit while she was carrying me in the womb. Uh, They didn't bring me upright. And then they go to the mother and say, how is it that you could have been so irresponsible with your children? And she says, well, it was my parents didn't bring me up right. (laughs) Everybody passes the buck. But the truth of the matter is it all begins here. This is where the creation begins. And you're doing it and won't admit it. Because, of course, you're all God in disguise. Jesus found that out and they crucified him for saying so. Because the Jewish people had a sense of God as the cosmic king, the boss. It was modeled on Pharaoh, on Cyrus of Persia. The king of kings and the lord of lords was Cyrus's title. Kyrie eleison means Cyrus have mercy on us. But you don't have to think of God in that image when modern Protestant theologians of the sort of liberal type are saying God is dead. They mean not that literally. They mean a certain image of God is dead. Outworn. Because it was, after all, an idol. And when it says thou shalt not make to thyself any graven image, it doesn't mean merely images of wood and stone, which nobody took seriously anyway. It means, above all, images made of imagination. Images made of concepts. That one had feet of clay. But it doesn't mean that God is dead. That life is nothing more than a trip from the maternity ward to the crematorium. It's much more spooky than that. Much more wonderful. But you see, you can't conceive reality. We could say God is reality. But if I call this the sound of a gong, it isn't the same as this. You see? The sound of a gong is a different sound from that sound. The sound of a gong, the sound of a gong, the sound of a gong, the sound of a gong is not. (laughs) 
So then, there is practiced throughout the world, rather more in Asia than here, although always by a minority of people, a discipline called meditation, which is to get in touch with reality. The word meditation in English doesn't have quite the same meaning because when we talk of someone meditating, we think of deeply pondering about something. When the Orientals are asked, what do you meditate on? They look slightly puzzled. We don't meditate on anything. We just meditate. In Sanskrit, it is called jhana. In Chinese, it is called chan. In Japanese, it is called zen. And it means, very simply, to stop thinking. Temporary. Not again that thinking is something bad. But if you don't, you have to stop thinking at certain times. Once you get the knack of that, you can do it even while you're thinking. So you can be a scholar and practice meditation. This is not an anti-intellectual point of view. I imagine that most of you here are uh, either in college or college educated. And the foundation of the intellectual life. Good scholarship requires that you meditate. But in saying that, I have got myself into a linguistic trap. Because you see, I seem to be pitching it to you as if it was something good for you. As if it would give you a better future. As if it would improve you. Now, so long as such motivations and considerations exist, you're not meditating. We talk sometimes about the practice of meditation as if it were like practicing the piano, preparing for a concert. It's much more like the practice of medicine. As when you say, well, I practice medicine. Because you do it every day, it's your way of life. So you, this is a very odd thing for Westerners to understand, and particularly for Americans. Because we are so fixated on the future. When we say we want to put something down, we say it has no future. Well, do you? Much better to have a present. Because if you don't, it's useless to make plans. Because when they work out, you won't be there to enjoy them. You'll be thinking of something else. So this is one activity which is curiously different from all others. It has no purpose. It's rather like music or dancing in that respect. Why do you listen to music? Supposing there would be a culture with no music, would you consider that a high culture? But why do you do it? Well, some people say, well, we go to the concert to improve our minds. Well, if you do that, you're not listening. <laughs> 
As you see, music is peculiar in that it is a marvelous pattern of sounds that doesn't mean anything. There is some inferior music that means something. Uh, what we call program music, like the Tchaikovsky 1812 Overture. Or some of uh, Debussy's perpetrations, such as the Englutted Cathedral. <laughs> Whereas creating visual pictures or imitating natural noises, the beat of horses' hooves or uh, rollings of military drums and uh, the sound of the waves, etc. Just imitation. Now, great music, as composed by Bach or Mozart or uh, the Hindu music uh, or some of the great contemporary composers, doesn't mean anything except itself. It isn't going anywhere. Otherwise, the fastest orchestras would be considered the best. So we, in music, become centered. We come into the present. Not a hairline present, mind you. It's an expanded present, because if you had a hairline present, you wouldn't be able to hear one note after another. You wouldn't know what note you'd heard before. So you couldn't hear melody. But in this, you are released into reality. That's why it is said that the angels in heaven have hearts. And why they circle the throne of God and sing, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Which, although it does mean hail to the Lord, doesn't really mean anything. When you really get swinging with an alleluia, this is an alleluia. You don't think of the meaning of it, you see, because you can't think of the meaning of God. What does God mean? What is God useful for? And so in the same way, you can ask, what does a tree mean? What does a cloud mean? What does a fern mean? What's it all about? Well, we've got on all kinds of weird theories that ferns exist in a certain way in order to propagate themselves. Like birds do all this thing in order to lay eggs so more birds come out. And the whole point of that is that there shall be more birds still. This is a purely engineering approach to life. Uh, which is completely senseless. Things don't mean anything. Birds don't mean anything. Trees don't mean anything. Words mean something, yes, because they point to something beyond themselves. They are signs. But if you take words too seriously, you're like a person who climbs a signpost instead of going where it points. And so if you suddenly say, but my life has no meaning. You're identifying yourself with a word. And that's what we do. When we, when, if I would identify myself with Alan Watts, that would be identifying myself with a concept, with words. In a rather complicated mess of words, to be sure. But still, <laughs> I would have made that mistake. So then, 
it has to be understood about meditation that it's not an exercise, it's not a gymnastic, it's not the ordinary sort of self-improvement procedure. And one does it not to be good for you, but just because you dig it. Because at last you find yourself in the center, the eternal now, in which past and future drop away. in which divisions created by words drop away. Can you point to the division between my four, my five fingers? Can you, in other words, touch the difference between them? Can't be done. Because the difference is conceptual. True. They can all move independently but only because they're one with the body and the body is one with its environment. You cannot separate those like bees and flowers. Where there are no flowers, there are no bees. Where there are no bees, there are no flowers. They look very different, but they are essentially one organism. The head and the feet look very different but they are parts of one organism. Not really parts. Parts is a mechanical word. Like on his spare parts. The organism doesn't have parts. It has um, features. Now, there's not very much point in merely talking about this. You can understand it only by doing it. What if we could make the world go forward? What if we could do for finance what the internet did for information? Hey, it's me, your skin. This acne craves a powerful cleanse. New CeraVe acne wash treats with max strength benzoyl peroxide. CeraVe with three essential ceramides. Just commercials. Oh my gosh. Um. Yes, Don. Dougie to get Rainbird because we need her in a few minutes. Okay, honey. I will read something here. That's what I will do. Can you get Rainbird, Doug? I don't know if she can hear you. Oh. Might have to write on there. But, uh, I will read something in the meantime. This is our friend, Aurora. We are grateful for her words of wisdom. So it says here, today humanity is finally prepared for full disclosure and cooperation with the galactic 
federation through increasing contact and activations, the federation now works to accelerate Earth's ascension and transition into a golden age of peace, abundance, and interplanetary unity. And go in another room if you're going to call, okay? Yeah, go in another room. And I can read that way. All right. So, here we go. Cosmic Secrets Revealed The Untold History of the Galactic Federation The Galactic Federation, also known as the Galactic Federation of Light or the Galactic Confederation, is an interplanetary alliance of civilizations from multiple star systems and galaxies that watch over the evolution of the Earth and guide humanity toward ascension. The Galactic Federation has several million members spanning hundreds of thousands of different worlds. These extraterrestrial civilizations have come from star systems in the Milky Way galaxy, as well as Andromeda, Pleiades, and other nearby galaxies. They have been watching over humans for thousands of years, as not longer. The Federation was originally formed over four million years ago in order to prevent interdimensional dark forces from dominating the galaxy in the Vega star system before expanding to to include civilizations from Sirius, Alpha Centauri, Arcturus, Orion, and more. Its initial establishment aimed to safeguard spiritual civilizations from the threat posed by the Dark and Chara Alliance. The Federation began with just a few hundred star systems and grew over millennia to include millions of star nations dedicated to the cause of supporting spiritual enlightenment throughout the Milky Way galaxy. The Galactic Federation has a prime directive to allow civilizations to evolve without direct interference. However, got a call. Got a good call. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> they apparently make contact with select individuals on Earth to impart messages and teachings to help guide humanity's spiritual development and transition into a peaceful galactic society. Some contactees have physically met with extraterrestrial members of the Federation, while other communications are telepathic in nature. 
The ultimate purpose of the Galactic Federation is to bring human civilization into the greater galactic community. They are especially focused on helping Earth transition into a higher age and dimension. This event, commonly referred to as ascension, involves quantum leap, involves a quantum leap in spiritual evolution and consciousness expansion, facilitated by vibrational increases and DNA upgrades. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Commander. The Federation is assisting with this process while also protecting the Earth from hostile alien influences. Some of the key events in the history of the Galactic Federation include uniting the Andromedan and Milky Way galaxies approximately 2 million years ago after long periods of warring strife between the two regions. This marked a major milestone in establishing peace, stopping the expansion plans of the reptilian race of Alpha Draconis around one million years ago. The Alpha Draconians had aimed to conquer many star systems, yet were defeated in a series of battles by the Federation. Ongoing monitoring of Earth's development and interactions with humanity over thousands of years. While not always intervening directly, the Federation has aimed to steer humanity's evolution in a positive direction and counter threats. Providing technological and spiritual support to enlightened civilizations such as Lemuria and Atlantis around 50,000 years ago before both societies ultimately fell due to internal corruption and darkness working extensively from behind the scenes in recent decades to counteract regressive extraterrestrial influences over humanity, paving the way for massive spiritual awakening. While the full scope of the Federation's activities may never be known, they have played a major role in shaping galactic history and spiritual evolution. Their core mission of spreading enlightenment continues to this day. Galactic Federation's relationship with Earth. The Galactic Federation first made contact with Earth over 70 years ago, during the late 40s and early 50s. While the specifics of early contact remain unclear, reports indicate that the Federation approached Earth following humanity's first use of nuclear weapons at the end of World War II. Concerned by humanity's destructive potential, the Federation is said 
to have begun monitoring Earth more closely while also attempting to make peaceful contact with world governments. Their early diplomatic efforts were met with fear and skepticism by most. However, a few isolated contactees and channelers did begin communicating with the Federation during this time. Throughout the 50s and 60s, the Galactic Federation continued their watchful presence over humanity, seeking to uplift consciousness and accelerate spiritual evolution. They provided inspiration and guidance and guidance to light workers and early New Age movements. However, no wide-scale contact occurred as humanity remained unevolved and gripped by conflicts. As humanity progressed into the 70s and beyond, the Federation stepped up their contact efforts through abduction experiences, channelings, and crop circles. While still cautious of directly intervening, they aimed to guide humanity's awakening by transmitting philosophy and visions of ascension. The Federation's goal has been to help humanity manifest peace and reach a level of consciousness ready for open first contact and membership in the galactic community. Today, humanity is finally prepared for full disclosure and cooperation with the Federation and their message of unity, service, and spiritual evolution. Through increasing contact and activations, the Federation now works to accelerate Earth's ascension and transition into a golden age of peace, abundance, and interplanetary unity. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho, Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. And so it is. And I think it's time for me to pass the talking stick to our sister Rainbird. And again, this talking stick has angels and fairies and feathers and rainbows and crystals and Menahuni and Sasquatch and Bigfoot and um, all other beings of light, large and small. And here it comes, Rainbird, here it comes. And Excalibur and who else? Quetzalcoatl. That's right, Quetzalcoatl. Here it comes, Rainbird. Okay, I got it. <laughs> and thank you. And happy solstice. We've got solstice coming. So magic magic is a foot. And lots of gratitude for this evening, this afternoon. We covered a lot of territory and 
I love the music. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, thank you. And I pass this talk to Okay, Rama. You want to play some music for us? Yes, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. You got something. We're going to just, are, are this, is this Christmas music or what? That's, uh, no, just, um, you'll, you'll, you'll hear. I'm sure we're going to enjoy it. All right, here we go, everyone. But I'm not the only one 
that's the song of songs, but I'm going to just read a little bit, and maybe Ram will find one more song for the end. Oh. And I'll do that so you get a little time, Mama. Oh. Everything is now in position. This is another roar away from Friday. Everything is now in position for the commencement of the new era on Earth. The Pleiadian motherships... Let me just just pull this forward here. Um, The Pleiadian motherships are here to help. Using their 6D technology, they can assist our planet in its ascension process. The dark forces know all about... How about... um, What's that song, that beautiful song... That that little girl sang. There's so many good Christmas songs. Find something, Mama. You'll find something. The dark forces know all about the motherships. They want to destroy them. The actual reality that most people don't know is that a few motherships have been hidden in a secret location on Earth for many millennia waiting for the right time to reveal themselves again. This time is now. They will open up portals throughout our planet so that they can beam down supplies and material assistance to our people who need it most. The motherships will be able to beam down various types of food and supplies, such as wheat, rice, seeds, beans, etc., as well as water purification supplies, such as filters and desalinization units, so that those living in areas where there is no clean drinking water can have access to a source of fresh water once again. The water supply has been poisoned by man-made chemicals, The dark forces are aware of Earth's ascension process and have been working hard to prevent it. They are aware that the motherships are here to assist us, yet they do not know exactly how they can do this. The Pleiadian motherships employ 6D technology that facilitates the transition of humans from the third dimension, 3D, to the fifth dimension, 5D. This is their specialty. They are able to help Earth ascend by teaching us how to live in harmony with nature, love ourselves inside and out, and create a world where everybody has enough food, water, and shelter. There are thousands of Pleiadian motherships in orbit around Earth right now, and they will soon be joined by more. They are waiting for us to call out to them and ask for their help before they come down to Earth with all their supplies and technology. We have been given a choice. As you are a light worker who wants to help make our planet better, 
then you need to get out there and work on your projects. <laughs> it's a good thing to think about because we are all going to have enough to help others uh, to work on our projects now. You need to put forth your best efforts into making your decision, your vision, into making your vision manifest so that it can be realized sooner than later. As you are not working on any projects at all, then it's time for you to start because as you do not make some changes soon, we might be able to see things spiral out of control very quickly. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho, Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. How can we help? Ask in your meditations. Ask for a, a message of guidance to the clarity of who we can help, where we can touch in. Yes, we can, is the word. And um, Lord Ram, did you find something for us? Mm. Uh, let me see what this does. <laughs> Rainbird, any more thoughts? <laughs> Anymore. Oh, well, we've got a powerful week ahead with the Galactic Center lineup. I, I just am very inspired, and I know that shift is in the air. I smell it. <laughs> we got a powerful week with, with what? The, the, uh, the, the, the lineup with the Galactic Center, that's happening. This week, the lock, like the the lineup with the Galactic Center. Oh, yeah. Well, and that return to fifty second round of the going around that Zolkin since nineteen eighty seven. We're right in that in that fifty uh, two year return. It's a cycle on the Mayan calendar, so oh, it's right. really auspicious for that. And that super galactic center we're lining up with. with yeah, yeah. 20, 26 other galaxies. Yeah. yeah. And the Hunab Ku. Mm-hmm. Okay. You find something, darling? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's... Really. I mean, it's... All the music out there. How about Silent Night? <laughs> oh, that young girl. I wonder if she's got her music still okay, on there. Here's something. You found something? Yes. All right. Here we go. And until we meet again, which will be the day before Christmas Eve, right on this Saturday, next Saturday, mm-hmm. will be the 23rd. Um, um, peace in our hearts and 
let's especially keep uh, all the hot spots in the world where there's discord um, in our meditations. And of course, especially in the Middle East there, um, equality beyond anything that might come up to differentiate. No separation. Love is. It just is. We love you. We love everyone. Sat Nam. Sat Nam D. Thirteen thank yous. Honey in the heart. No evil. Live long and prosper. Namaste everyone. Aloha. See you on the bridge. Namaste.